Chapter 61 Dead Nettle After my trip to Severin, I deposited my loot case in my room and made my way to Alvaron's private rooms as quickly as possible. Stapes was not pleased to see me, but he showed me in with the same bustling efficiency as always. Alvaron lay in a sweaty stupor, his bedclothes twisted around him. It was only then I noticed how thin he had grown. His arms and legs were stringy, and his complexion had faded from pale to gray. He glowered at me as I entered the room. Stapes arranged the mayor's covers in a more modest fashion and helped him into a seated position, propping him up with pillows. The mayor endured these ministrations stoically, then said, Thank you, Stapes, in a tone of dismissal. The manservant left slowly, giving me a decidedly uncivil stare. I approached the mayor's bed and brought several items from the pockets of my cloak. I found everything I needed, Your Grace, though not everything I hoped for. How do you feel? He gave me a look that spoke volumes. It took you a damn long time getting back. Corticus came while you were away. I fought down a wave of anxiety. What happened? He asked me how I was feeling, and I told him the truth. He looked in my eyes and down my throat and asked me if I'd thrown up. I told him yes, and that I wanted more medicine, and to be left alone. He left and sent some over. I felt a panic rise in me. Did you drink it? If you'd been gone much longer, I would have, and to hell with your fairy stories. He brought another vial from beneath his pillow. I can't see what harm it could do. I can feel myself dying already. He thrust it toward me angrily. I should be able to improve matters, Your Grace. Remember, tonight will be the most difficult. Tomorrow will be bad. After that, all should be well. If I live so long as that, he groused. It was just the petulant grumble of a sick man, but it mirrored my thoughts so precisely that ice ran down my back. Earlier, I hadn't considered that the mayor might die despite my intervention, but when I looked at him now, frail and gray and trembling, I realized the truth. He might not live through the night. First, there's this, Your Grace. I took out the tippling flask. Brandy? He said with muted anticipation. I shook my head and opened it. He wrinkled his nose at the smell and sank back onto the pillows. God's teeth! As if my dying wasn't bad enough! Cod liver oil? I nodded seriously. Take two good swallows, Your Grace. This is part of your cure. He made no move to take it. I've never been able to stomach the stuff, and lately I even vomit up my tea. I won't put myself through the hell of drinking it only to sick it back up. I nodded and restoppered the flask. I'll give you something to stop that. There was a pot of water on the bedside table, and I began to mix him a cup of tea. He craned weakly to see what I was doing. What are you putting in that? Something to keep you from being sick, and something to help you pass the poison out of your system. A bit of laudanum to ease your craving, and tea. Does your grace take sugar? Normally, no. But I'm guessing it will taste like stump water without it. I added a spoonful, stirred, and handed him the cup. 
you first, Alvaron said. Pale and grim, he watched me with his sharp gray eyes. He smiled a terrible smile. I hesitated, but only for a moment. To your grace's health, I said, and took a good swallow. I grimaced and added another spoonful of sugar. Your grace predicted it quite well. Stump water it is. He took the cup with both hands and began to drink it in a number of quick, determined sips. Dreadful, he said simply, but better than nothing. Do you know what a hell it is to be thirsty but not be able to drink for fear of throwing up? I wouldn't wish it on a dog. Wait a bit to finish it, I cautioned. That should settle your stomach in a few minutes. I went into the other room and added the new vial of medicine to the Flitz feeders. I was relieved to see they were still sipping at the medicated nectar. I had worried they might avoid it due to a change in flavor or some natural instinct for self-preservation. I also worried that lead might not be poisonous to sipquakes. I worried they might take a span to show any ill effects, not mere days. I worried at the mayor's rising temper. I worried at his illness. I worried at the possibility I might be wrong about everything I'd guessed. I returned to the mayor's bedside and found him cradling the empty cup in his lap. I mixed a second cup similar to the first, and he drank it quickly. Then we sat in silence for the space of fifteen minutes or so. How do you feel, Your Grace? Better, he admitted grudgingly. I detected a slight dullness to his speech. Much better. That is probably the laudanum, I commented. But your stomach should be settled by now. I picked up the flask of cod liver oil. Two good swallows, your grace. Is this really the only thing that will do? He asked distastefully. If I had access to the apothecaries near the university, I could find something more palatable. But at the moment, this is the only thing that can be done. Get me another cup of tea to wash it down with. He picked up the flask, took two sips, and handed it back, his mouth turned down in a ghastly expression. I sighed internally. If you're going to sip it, we'll be here all evening. Two solid swallows, the kind sailors use to drink cheap whiskey. He scowled. Don't speak to me as if I were a child. Then act the part of a man, I said harshly stunning him to silence. Two swallows every four hours. That whole flask should be finished by tomorrow. His gray eyes narrowed dangerously. I would remind you who you are speaking to. I am speaking to a sick man who will not take his medicine, I said levelly. Anger smoldered behind his laudanum-dulled eyes. A pint of fish oil is not medicine, he hissed. It is a malicious and unreasonable request. It can't be done. I fixed him with my best withering stare and took the flask out of his hand. Without looking away, I drank the whole thing down. Swallow after swallow of the oil passed my gullet as I held the mayor's eye. I watched his face shift from angry to disgusted, then finally settle into an expression of muted, sickened awe. I upended the flask, ran my finger around the inside of it and licked it clean. I pulled out a second flask from a pocket of my cloak. 
This was going to be your dose for tomorrow, but you will need to use it tonight. If you find it easier, one swallow every two hours should suffice. I held it out to him, still holding his eyes with mine. He took it mutely, drank two good swallows, and stoppered the flask with a grim determination. Pride is always a better lever against the nobility than reason. I fished in one of the pockets of my rich burgundy cloak and brought out the mayor's ring. I forgot to return this to you before, Your Grace. I held it out to him. He began to reach out for it, then stopped. Keep it for now, he said. You've earned that much, I imagine. Thank you, Your Grace, I said, careful to keep my expression composed. He wasn't inviting me to wear the ring, but allowing me to keep it was a tangible step forward in our relationship. No matter how his courtship of the Lady Lackless went, I had made an impression on him today. I poured him more tea and decided to finish his instructions while I had his attention. You should drink the rest of this potful tonight, Your Grace, but remember, it's all you'll have until tomorrow. When you send for me, I'll brew you some more. You should try to drink as many fluids as you can tonight. Milk would be best. Put some honey in it and it will go down easier. He agreed and seemed to be easing towards sleep. Knowing how difficult his night would be, I let him nod off. I gathered my things before letting myself out. Stapes was waiting in the outer rooms. I mentioned to him that the mayor was sleeping and told him not to toss out the tea in the pot, as his grace would be wanting it when he woke up. As I left, the look Stapes gave me was not merely chilly as it had been before. It was hateful, practically venomous. Only after he closed the door behind me did I realize what this must look like to him. He assumed I was taking advantage of the mayor in his time of weakness. There are a great many such people in the world, traveling physicians with no qualms about preying on the fears of the desperately ill. The best example of this is Dead Nettle, the potion seller in Three Pennies for Wishing. Easily one of the most despised characters in all drama, there's no audience that doesn't cheer when Dead Nettle gets pilloried in the fourth act. With that in mind, I began to dwell on how fragile and gray the mayor had looked. Living in Tarbian, I had seen healthy young men killed by Ophelum withdrawal, and the mayor was neither young nor healthy. If he did die, who would be blamed? Certainly not Cauticus, trusted advisor. Certainly not Stapes, beloved manservant. Me. They would blame me. His condition had worsened soon after I arrived. I didn't doubt Stapes would quickly bring to light the fact that I'd been spending time alone with the mayor in his rooms, that I'd brewed him a pot of tea right before he had a very traumatic night. At best, I would look like a young dead nettle. At worst, an assassin. Such was the turning of my thoughts as I made my way through the mayor's estate back to my rooms, pausing only to lean out one of the windows overlooking Severin Low and vomit up a pint of cod liver oil. Chapter 62 Crisis The next morning I made my way to Severin Low before the sun was up. I ate a hot breakfast of eggs and potatoes while I waited for an apothecary to open. When I was finished, I bought two more pints of cod liver oil and a few other oddments I hadn't thought of the day before. Then I walked the entire length of Tinnery Street, 
hoping to stumble onto Denna despite the fact that it was far too early in the morning for her to be up and about. Wagons and farmers' carts vied for space on the cobbled streets. Ambitious beggars were laying claim to the busiest corners while shopkeepers hung out their shingles and threw wide their shutters. I counted twenty-three inns and boarding houses on Tinnery Street. After making note of the ones Denna would probably find appealing, I forced myself back to the mayor's estates. This time, I took the freight lifts, partly to confuse anyone following me, but also because the purse the mayor had given me was nearly empty. Since I needed to keep a normal face on things, I remained in my rooms, waiting for the mayor to send for me. I sent my card and ring to Braden, and soon he was sitting across from me, thrashing me at tack and telling stories. So the mayor had him hung in a gibbet, right alongside the eastern gate, hung here for days, howling and cursing, saying he was innocent, saying it wasn't right and how he wanted a trial. I couldn't quite bring myself to believe it. A gibbet? Braden nodded seriously. An actual iron gibbet. Who knows where he managed to find one in this day and age? It was like something out of a play. I searched for something relatively noncommittal to say. While it did sound grotesque, I also knew better than to openly criticize the mayor. Well, I said, banditry is a terrible thing. Braden began to place a stone on the board then reconsidered. Quite a few folks thought the whole thing was in rather... He cleared his throat. Bad taste. But nobody said so very loudly, if you catch my meaning. It was a grisly thing, but it got the point across. He finally chose the placement of his stone, and we played quietly for a time. It's a strange thing, I said. I ran into someone the other day who didn't know where Codicus would rank in the overall scheme of things. That's not terribly surprising, Braden gestured to the board. The giving and receiving of rings is a lot like tack. On the face of it, the rules are simple. In execution, they become quite complicated. He clicked down a stone, his dark eyes crinkling with amusement. In fact, the other day I was explaining the intricacies of the custom to a foreigner not familiar with such things. That was kind of you, I said. Braden gave a gracious nod. It seems simple at first glance, he said. A baron ranks above a baronet, but sometimes young money is worth more than old blood. Sometimes control of a river is more important than how many soldiers you can put to field. Sometimes a person is actually more than one person, technically speaking. The Earl of Svanis is, by strange inheritance, also the Viscount of Tevon. One man, but two different political entities. I smiled. My mother once told me she knew a man who owed fealty to himself, I said. Owed himself a share of his own taxes every year, and if he were ever threatened— there were treaties in place demanding he provide himself with prompt and loyal military support. Braden nodded. It happens more often than folk realize, he said, especially with the older families. Stapes, for example, exists in several separate capacities. Stapes? I asked. But he's just a manservant, isn't he? 
Well, Braden said slowly, he is that, but he's hardly just a manservant. His family is quite old, but he has no title of his own. Technically, he ranks no higher than a cook, but he owns substantial lands. He has money, and he is the mayor's manservant. They've known each other since they were boys. Everyone knows he has Alvaron's ear. Braden's dark eyes peered at me. Who would dare insult such a man with an iron ring? Go to his room, and you will see the truth. There is nothing in his bowl but gold. Braden excused himself shortly after our game, claiming a prior engagement. Luckily, I now had my loot to occupy my time. I set about retuning it, checking the frets, and fussing over the tuning peg that was constantly coming loose. We had been away from each other for a long while, and it takes time to get reacquainted. Hours passed. I discovered myself absent-mindedly playing Dead Nettle's Lament and forced myself to stop. Noon came and went. Lunch was delivered and cleared away. I retuned my lute and ran some scales. Before I knew it, I found myself playing Leave the Town Tinker. Only then did I realize what my hands were trying to tell me. If the mayor was still alive, he would have called for me by now. I let the lute fall silent and began to think very quickly. I needed to leave. Now. Stapes had seen me bringing medicine to the mayor. I could even be accused of tampering with the vial I had brought from Codicus's rooms. Slow fear began to knot my gut as I realized the helplessness of my situation. I didn't know the mayor's estates well enough to attempt a clever escape. On my way to Severin Low this morning, I'd gotten turned around and had to stop to ask directions. The knock on the door was louder than usual, more forceful than that of the errand boy who normally came to deliver the mayor's invitation. Guards. I froze in my seat. Would it be best to answer the door and tell the truth? Or duck out the window into the garden and somehow try to make a run for it? The knock came again louder. Sir? Sir? The voice was muffled by the door, but it was not a guard's voice. I opened the door and saw a young boy carrying a tray with the mayor's iron ring and card. I picked them up. The card had a single word written in a shaky hand. Immediately. Stapes looked uncharacteristically ragged around the edges and greeted me with an icy stare. Yesterday, he'd looked as if he wanted me dead and buried. Today, his look implied that simply buried would be good enough. The mayor's bedroom was generously decorated with cellus flowers. Their delicate smell was almost enough to cover the odors they'd been brought in to conceal. Combined with Stapes' appearance, I knew my predictions of the night's unpleasantness had been close to the truth. Alvaron was propped into a sitting position in his bed. He looked as well as could be expected, which is to say exhausted, but no longer sweating and racked with pain. As a matter of fact, he looked almost angelic. A rectangle of sunlight washed over him, lending his skin a frail translucency and making his disarrayed hair shine like a silver crown around his head. As I stepped closer, he opened his eyes, breaking the beatific illusion. No angel ever had eyes as clever as Alvaron's. 
I trust I find your grace well, I asked politely. Passing fair, he responded, but it was mere social noise, telling me nothing. How do you feel? I asked in a more serious tone. He gave me a long look that let me know he did not approve of my addressing him so casually, then said, Old. I feel old and weak. He took a deep breath. But for all that, I feel better than I have in several days. A little pain, and I'm mightily tired. But I feel... clean. I think I've passed the crisis. I did not ask about last night. Would you like me to mix you another pot of tea? Please. His tone was measured and polite. Unable to guess his mood, I hurried through the preparations and handed him his cup. He looked up at me after sampling it. This tastes different. There is less laudanum in it, I explained. Too much would be harmful to your grace. Your body would begin to depend on it as surely as it craved the ophalum. He nodded. You'll note my birds are doing well, he said in an overly casual tone. I looked through the doorway and saw the Sipquicks darting about in their gilded cage, lively as ever. I felt a chill at the implication of his comment. He still didn't believe Cauticus was poisoning him. I was too stunned to make a quick reply, but after a breath or two I managed to say, Their health does not concern me nearly so much as your own. You do feel better, don't you, Your Grace? That is the nature of my illness. It comes and goes. The mayor set down his cup of tea, still three-quarters full. Eventually it fades entirely, and Cauticus is free to go off gallivanting for months at a time, gathering ingredients for his charms and potives. Speaking of, he said, folding his hands in his lap, would you do me the favor of fetching my medicine from Cauticus? Certainly, Your Grace. I stretched a smile over my face, trying to ignore the unease settling in my chest. I cleaned up the clutter I had created while fixing his tea, tucking packages and bundles of herbs back into the pockets of my burgundy cloak. The mayor nodded graciously, then closed his eyes and seemed to lapse back into his tranquil, sunlit nap. Our fledgling historian, Cauticus said as he gestured me inside and offered me a seat. If you'll excuse me for a moment, I'll be right back. I sank into the padded chair and only then noticed the array of rings on the nearby table. Cauticus had gone so far as to have a rack built for them. Each was displayed with the name facing outward. There were a great many of them, silver, iron, and gold. Both my gold ring and Alvaron's iron one sat on a small tray on the table. I reclaimed them, taking note of this rather graceful way of wordlessly offering the return of a ring. I looked around the large tower room with muted curiosity. What possible motive could he have for poisoning the mayor? Barring access to the university itself, this place was every arcanist's dream. Curious, I got to my feet and wandered to his bookshelves. Cauticus had a respectable library with nearly a hundred books crowding for space. I recognized many of the titles. Some were chemical references, 
Some were alchemical. Others dealt with the natural sciences, herbology, physiology, bestiology. The vast majority seemed to be historical in nature. A thought occurred to me. Perhaps I could get the native vintage superstition to work to my advantage. If Codicus was a serious scholar and even half as superstitious as a native vint, he might know something about the Chandrian. Best of all, since I was playing the dim-witted lordling, I didn't need to worry about damaging my reputation. Codicus came around the corner and seemed somewhat taken aback when he saw me standing by the bookshelves, but he rallied quickly and gave me a polite smile. See anything you're interested in? I turned, shaking my head. Not particularly, I said. Do you know anything about the Chandrian? Codicus looked at me blankly for a moment, then burst out laughing. I know they're not going to come into your room at night and steal you out of your bed, he said, wiggling his fingers at me the way you'd tease a child. You don't study mythology, then? I asked, fighting down a wave of disappointment at his reaction. I tried to console myself with the fact that this would firmly solidify me as a half-wit lordling in his mind. Codicus sniffed. That's hardly mythology, he said dismissively. One could barely even stoop to calling it folklore. It's superstitious bunk, and I don't waste my time with it. No serious scholar would. He began to putter around the room, restoppering bottles and tucking them into cabinets, straightening up stacks of papers and returning books to their shelves. Speaking of serious scholarship, if I remember correctly, you were curious about the Lackless family? I simply stared at him for a moment. With everything that had happened since, I'd all but forgotten the pretense of the anecdotal genealogy I'd invented yesterday. If it wouldn't be any trouble, I said quickly, as I've said, I know practically nothing of them. Codicus nodded seriously. In that case, you might be well served in considering their name. He adjusted an alcohol lamp underneath a simmering glass alembic in the midst of an impressive array of copper tubing. Whatever he was distilling, I guessed it wasn't peach brandy. You see, names can tell you a great deal about a thing. I grinned at that, then fought to smother the expression. You don't say... He turned back to face me just as I got my mouth under control. Oh, yes, he said. You see, names are sometimes based on other, older names. The older the name, the closer it lies to the truth. Lackless is a relatively new name for the family, not much more than six hundred years old. For once, I didn't have to feign amazement. Six hundred years is new? The Lackless family is old. He stopped his pacing and settled down into a threadbare armchair. Much older than the House of Alvaron. A thousand years ago, the Lackless family enjoyed a power at least as great as Alvaron's. Pieces of what are now Vintus, Modeg, and a large portion of the small kingdoms were all Lackless lands at one point. What was their name before that? I asked. He pulled down a thick book and flipped its pages impatiently. Here it is. The family was called Leoclos, or Loclos, or Leolos. They all translate the same. Lockless. Spelling was rather less important in those days. What days are those? 
I asked. He consulted the book again. About nine hundred years ago, but I've seen other histories that mention the Leoclos a thousand years before the fall of Atur. I boggled at the thought of a family older than empires. So the Lockless family became the Lackless family. What reason could a family have for changing its name? There are historians who would cut off their own right hands to answer that, Codicus said. It's generally accepted that there was some sort of falling out that splintered the family. Each piece took on a separate name. In Atur they became the Lack-Key family. They were numerous, but fell on hard times. That's where the word lackey comes from, you know. All those paupered nobility forced to scrape and bow to make ends meet. In the south, they became the lackliffs, who slowly spiraled into obscurity. The same with the Cape Saiyan in Modeg. The largest piece of the family was here in Vintus, except Vintus didn't exist back then. He closed the book and held it out to me. You can borrow this if you like. Thank you. I took the book. You're too kind. There was the distant sound of a belling tower. I'm too long-winded, he said. I've talked away our time and haven't given you anything of use. Just the history makes a great difference, I said gratefully. Are you sure I can't interest you in a few stories from other families? He asked, walking over to a work table. I wintered with the Jackis family not long ago. The Baron is a widower, you know. Quite wealthy and somewhat eccentric. He raised both eyebrows at me, his eyes wide with implied scandal. I'm sure I could remember a few interesting things if I were assured of my anonymity. I was tempted to break character for that, but instead I shook my head. Perhaps when I'm done working on the lackless section, I said with all the self-importance of someone devoted to a truly useless project. My research is quite delicate— I don't want to get tangled up in my head. Codicus frowned a bit, then shrugged it away as he rolled up his sleeves and began to make the mayor's medicine. I watched him go through his preparations again. It wasn't alchemy. I knew that from watching Simon work. This was barely even chemistry. Mixing a medicine like this was closer to following a recipe than anything. But what were the ingredients? I watched him move through it step by step. The dried leaf was probably bite few. The liquid from the stoppered jar was no doubt muratum or aquafortis, some sort of acid at any rate. When it bubbled and steamed in the lead bowl, it dissolved a small amount of lead, maybe only a quarter scruple. The white powder was probably the ophalum. He added a pinch of the final ingredient. I couldn't even guess what that was. It looked like salt, but then again, most everything looks like salt. As he went through the motions, Codicus nattered on about court gossip. Defer's eldest son had broken his leg jumping out a brothel window. Lady Hesua's most recent lover was Yilish and didn't speak a word of Aturin. There was a rumor of highwaymen on the king's road to the north, but there are always rumors of bandits, so that was nothing new. I don't care one whit for gossip, but I can fake interest when I must. All the while I watched Codicus for some telltale sign, some whisper of nervousness, a bead of sweat, a moment's hesitation, but there was nothing, not the slightest indication he was preparing a poison for the mayor. He was perfectly comfortable, utterly at ease.
Was it possible he was poisoning the mayor by accident? Impossible. Any arcanist worth his gilder knew enough chemistry to... Then it dawned on me. Maybe Cauticus wasn't an arcanist at all. Maybe he was simply a man in a dark robe who didn't know the difference between an alligator and a crocodile. Maybe he was just a clever pretender who happened to be poisoning the mayor out of simple ignorance. Maybe that was peach brandy in his distillery. He tamped the cork into the vial of amber liquid and handed it to me. There you are, he said. Make sure you take it to him straight away. It will be best if he gets it while it's still warm. The temperature of a medicine doesn't make one whit of difference. Any physiker knows that. I took the vial and pointed to his chest as if I'd just noticed something. My word, is that an amulet? He seemed confused at first and then drew out the leather cord from underneath his robes. Of sorts, he said with a tolerant smile. At a casual glance, the piece of lead he wore around his neck looked very much like an Arcanum Gilder. Does it protect you from spirits? I asked in a hushed voice. Oh, yes, he said flippantly. All sorts. I swallowed nervously. May I touch it? He shrugged and leaned forward, holding it out to me. I took it timidly with my thumb and forefinger, then jumped back a step. It bit me! I said, pitching my voice somewhere between indignation and anxiety as I wrung my hand. I saw him fighting down a smile. Ah, yes. I need to feed it, I suspect. He tucked it back inside his robes. Go on now. He made a shooing motion toward the door. I made my way back to the mayor's rooms, trying to massage some feeling back into my numb fingers. It was a genuine Arcanum Gilder. He was a real Arcanist. He knew exactly what he was doing. I returned to the mayor's rooms and engaged in five minutes of painfully formal small talk while I refilled the flit's feeders with the still-warm medicine. The birds were unnervingly energetic, humming and chirruping sweetly. The mayor sipped a cup of tea as we talked, his eyes following me quietly from the bed. When my work with the birds was finished, I made my goodbyes and left as quickly as propriety allowed. Though our conversation hadn't touched on anything more serious than the weather, I could read his underlying message as plainly as if he'd written it for me to read. He was in control. He was keeping his options open. He didn't trust me. Chapter 63 The Gilded Cage After my brief taste of freedom, I was trapped in my rooms again. Though I hoped the mayor was through the worst of his recovery, I still needed to be at hand, should his condition worsen and he call on me. I couldn't justify even a brief trip to Severin Lowe, no matter how desperately I wanted to head back to Tinnery Street with the hope of meeting up with Denna. So, I called on Braden and spent a pleasant afternoon playing tack. We played game after game, and I lost each one in new and exciting ways. This time, when we parted ways, he left the game table with me, claiming his servants were tired of carrying it back and forth between our rooms. In addition to tack with Braden and my music, I had a new distraction, albeit an irritating one. Cauticus was every bit the gossip he seemed to be, and word had spread about my story genealogy. So now, in addition to courtiers trying to pry information out of me, 
I was deluged with a steady flow of people eager to air everyone else's dirty laundry. I dissuaded those I could and encouraged the especially rabid to write their stories down and send them to me. A surprising number of them took time to do this, and a stack of slanderous stories began to accumulate on a desk in one of my unused rooms. The next day, when the mayor summoned me, I arrived to find Alvaron sitting in a chair near his bed, reading a copy of Fiorin's Claim of Kings in the original Eld Vintic. His color was remarkably good, and I saw no trembling in his hands as he turned a page. He didn't look up as I entered the room. Without speaking, I prepared a new pot of tea with the hot water waiting at the mayor's bedside table. I poured a cup and set it at the table by his elbow. I checked the gilded cage in his sitting room. The flits darted back and forth to the feeders, playing dizzying aerial games which made them difficult to count. Still, I was reasonably certain there were twelve of them. They seemed none the worse despite three days of poisonous diet. I resisted an urge to knock the cage about a bit. Finally, I replaced the mayor's flask of cod liver oil and found it was still three-quarters full. Yet another sign of my fading credibility. Wordlessly, I gathered up my things and prepared to leave, but before I made it to the door, the mayor turned his eyes up from his book. Quoth? Yes, Your Grace? It seems I'm not as thirsty as I thought. Would you mind finishing this for me? He gestured to the untasted cup of tea that sat on the table. To your grace's health, I said, and drank a sip. I made a face and added a spoon of sugar, stirred, and drained the rest of it with the mayor watching me. His eyes were calm, clever, and too knowing to be wholly good. Cauticus let me in and ushered me into the same seat as before. You'll excuse me for a moment, he said. I have an experiment I must attend to, or I fear it will be ruined. He hurried up a set of steps that led to a different part of the tower. With nothing else to occupy my attention, I eyed his display of rings again, realizing that a person could make a fair guess at his position in the court by using the rings themselves as triangulation points. Codicus returned just as I was idly considering stealing one of his gold rings. I was not sure if you wanted your rings back, Codicus said, gesturing. I looked back at the table and saw them resting on a tray. It seemed odd I hadn't noticed them before. I picked them up and slid them into an inner pocket of my cloak. Thank you kindly, I said. And will you be taking the mayor his medicine again today? He asked. I nodded, puffing myself up proudly. When I nodded, the motion of my head made me dizzy. It was only then I realized the trouble. I'd drunk a full cup of the mayor's tea. There hadn't been much laudanum in it, or rather, not much laudanum if you were in pain and being slowly weaned away from a budding addiction to ophalum. However, it was quite a bit of laudanum for someone like myself. I could feel the effects of it slowly creeping over me, a warm lassitude running through my bones. Everything seemed to be moving a little more slowly than normal. The mayor seemed eager for his medicine today, I said, taking extra care to speak clearly. I'm afraid I don't have much time to chat. I was in no condition to play the half-wit gentry for any length of time. 
Codicus nodded seriously and retreated to his work table. I followed him as I always did, wearing my best curious expression. I watched with half an eye as Codicus mixed the medicine, but my wits were fuddled by the laudanum, and what remained were focused on other matters. The mayor was hardly speaking to me. Stapes hadn't trusted me from the beginning, and the flits were healthy as ever. Worst of all, I was trapped in my rooms while Denna waited down on Tinnery Street, no doubt wondering why I hadn't come to visit. I looked up, aware that Codicus had asked me a question. "'Beg your pardon?' "'Could you pass me the acid?' Codicus repeated as he finished measuring out a portion of leaf into his mortar and pestle. I picked up the glass decanter and began to hand it to him before I remembered I was just an ignorant lordling. I couldn't tell salt from sulfur. I didn't even know what an acid was. I did not flush or stumble. I didn't sweat or stutter. I am a Dima Rue born, and even drugged and fuddled, I am a performer down to the marrow of my bones. I met his eyes and asked, This one, right? The clear bottle comes next. Codicus gave me a long, speculative look. I flashed him a brilliant grin. I've got a good eye for detail, I said smugly. I've watched you go through this twice now. I bet I could mix the mayor's medicine myself if I wanted to. I pitched my voice with all the ignorant self-confidence I could muster. This is the true mark of nobility, the unshakable belief that they can do anything, tan leather, shoe a horse, spin pottery, plow a field, if they really wanted to. Codicus looked at me a moment longer, then began to measure out the acid. I dare say you could, young sir. Three minutes later I was walking down the hall with the warm vial of medicine in my sweaty palm. It almost didn't matter whether I'd fooled him or not. What mattered was that for some reason Codicus was suspicious of me. Stapes stared daggers into my back as he let me into the mayor's rooms. And Alvaron ignored me as I poured the new dose of poison into the flit's feeders. The pretty things hummed about their cage with infuriating energy. I took the long way back to my rooms, trying to get a better feel for the layout of the mayor's estate. I already had my escape route half-planned, but Codicus's suspicion encouraged me to put the finishing touches on it. If the flits didn't start dying tomorrow, it would probably be in my best interest to disappear from Severin as quickly and quietly as possible. Late that night, when I was reasonably sure the mayor wouldn't call on me, I slipped out the window of my room and made a thorough exploration of the gardens. There were no guards this late at night, but I did have to avoid a half-dozen couples taking moonlight strolls. There were two others sitting in close, romantic conversation, one in a bower, the other in a gazebo. The last couple I nearly trod on while cutting through a hedgerow. They were neither strolling nor conversing in any conventional sense, but their activities were romantic. They didn't notice me. Eventually, I found my way onto the roof. From there, I could see the grounds surrounding the estate. The western edge was out of the question, of course, as it was pressed up against the edge of the shear, but I knew there had to be other opportunities for escape. While exploring the southern end of the estate, I saw lights burning brightly in one of the towers. What's more, they had the distinctive red tint of sympathy lamps. Codicus was still awake. 
I made my way over and risked a look inside, peering down into the tower. Cauticus was not simply working late. He was talking to someone. I craned my neck, but I couldn't see who he was speaking to. What's more, the window was leaded shut, and I couldn't hear anything. I was about to move to a different window when Cauticus stood and began to walk to the door. The other person came into view, and even from this steep angle I could recognize the portly, unassuming figure of Stapes. Stapes was clearly worked up about something. He made an emphatic gesture with one hand, his face deathly serious. Cauticus nodded several times in agreement before opening the door to let the manservant out. I noted Stapes wasn't carrying anything when he left. He hadn't stopped by for medicine. He hadn't stopped by to borrow a book. Stapes had stopped by in the middle of the night to have a private conversation with the man who was trying to kill the mayor. Chapter 64 Flight Though no family can boast a truly peaceful past, the Lacklesses have been especially ripe with misfortune. Some from without, assassination, invasion, peasant revolt, and theft— more telling is misfortune that comes from within. How can a family thrive when the eldest heir forsakes all family duty? Small wonder they are often called the luckless by their detractors. It seems a testament to the strength of their blood that they have survived so much for so long. Indeed, if not for the burning of Caleptina, we might possess records tracing the Lackless family back far enough for them to rival the royal line of Modeg in its antiquity. I tossed the book onto the table in a way that would have made Master Lawrence spit blood. If the mayor thought this sort of information was enough to woo a woman, he was in worse need of my help than he thought. But, as things currently stood, I doubted the mayor would be asking me for any help with anything, least of all something as sensitive as his courting. Yesterday, he hadn't summoned me to his rooms at all. I was clearly out of favor, and I sensed Stapes had a hand in it. Given what I had seen two nights ago in Cauticus's tower, it was fairly obvious Stapes was part of the conspiracy to poison the mayor. Though it meant spending all day trapped in my rooms, I stayed where I was. I knew better than to jeopardize Alvaron's already low opinion of me by approaching him without being summoned first. An hour before lunch, Viscount German stopped by my rooms with a few pages of handwritten gossip. He also brought a deck of cards— apparently thinking to take a page from Braden's book. He offered to teach me how to play thrush, and, as I was just learning the game, agreed to play for the pittance of a single silver bit per hand. He made the mistake of letting me deal, and left in a bit of a huff after I won eighteen hands in a row. I suppose I could have been more subtle. I could have played him like a fish on a line and bilked him for half his estate, but I was in no mood for it. My thoughts were not pleasant, and I preferred to be alone with them. An hour after lunch, I decided I was no longer interested in currying favor with the mayor. If Alvaron wished to trust his treacherous manservant, that was his business. I'd be damned if I would spend one more minute sitting idle in my room, waiting by the door like a whipped dog. I threw on my cloak, grabbed my loot case, and decided to take a walk down Tinnery Street. If the mayor needed me while I was away, he could damn well leave a note. I was halfway into the hall when I saw the guard standing at attention outside my door. 
He was one of Alvaron's own, clad in sapphire and ivory. We stood for a moment, motionless. There was no sense in asking if he was there on my account. Mine was the only door for twenty feet in any direction. I met his eye. And you are... Jay, sir. At least I still rated a sir. That was worth something. And you're here because... I'm to accompany you if you leave your room, sir. Right. I stepped back into my room and closed the door behind me. Were his orders from Alvaron or Stapes? It didn't really matter. I went out my window into the garden, over the little streamlet, behind a hedgerow, and up a section of decorative stone wall. My burgundy cloak was not the best color for sneaking around in the garden, but it worked quite nicely against the red of the roofing tiles. After that, I made my way onto the roof of the stables, through a hayloft, and out the back door of a disused barn. From there, it was just a matter of jumping a fence, and I was off the mayor's estate. Simple. I stopped at twelve inns on Tinnery Street before I found the one where Denna was staying. She wasn't there, so I continued along the street, keeping my eyes open and trusting to my luck. I spotted her an hour later. She was standing at the edge of a crowd, watching a street-corner production of, believe it or not, Three Pennies for Wishing. Her skin was darker than when I'd seen her last at the university, tanned from travel and she wore a high-necked dress after the local fashion. Her dark hair fell in a straight sheaf across her back, all except a single slender braid that hung close to her face. I caught her eye just as Dead Nettle shouted out his first line in the play. I've cures for what ails you. My wares never fails you. I've potions for pennies, results guaranteed. So if you've got a dicky heart... Or can't get her legs apart, come straight away to my cart, you'll find what you need. Denna smiled when she saw me. We might have stayed for the play, but I already knew the ending. Hours later, Denna and I were eating sweet vintage grapes in the shadow of the shear. Some industrious stonemason had carved a shallow niche into the white stone of the cliff, making smooth seats of stone. It was a cozy place we had discovered while walking aimlessly through the city. We were alone, and I felt myself to be the luckiest man in the world. My only regret was that I didn't have her ring with me. It would have been the perfect unexpected gift to go with our unexpected meeting. Worse yet, I couldn't even tell Denna about it. If I did, I'd be forced to admit I'd used it as collateral for my loan with Davy. You seem to be doing fairly well for yourself, Denna said, rubbing the edge of my burgundy cloak between her fingers. Have you given up the bookish life? Taking a vacation, I hedged. Right now I'm assisting the Mayor Alvaron with a thing or two. Her eyes widened appreciatively. Do tell. I looked away uncomfortably. I'm afraid I can't. Delicate matters and all that. I cleared my throat and tried to change the subject. What of you? You seem to be doing fairly well yourself. I brushed two fingers across the embroidery that decorated the high neck of her dress. Well, I'm not rubbing elbows with the mayor, she said, making an exaggerated deferential gesture in my direction. But, as I mentioned in my letters, I— Letters? I asked. You sent more than one? 
She nodded. Three since I left, she said. I was about to start a fourth, but you've saved me the trouble. I only got the one, I said. Dennis shrugged. I'd rather tell you in person anyway. She paused dramatically. I finally have my formal patronage. You have? I said, delighted. Denna, that's wonderful news! Denna grinned proudly. Her teeth were white against the light nut color of her travel-tanned face. Her lips, as always, were red without the aid of any paint. Is he part of the cord here in Severin? I asked. What's his name? Denna's grin faded into a serious look, a confused smile playing around her mouth. You know I can't tell you that, she chided. You know how closely he guards his privacy. My excitement fell away, leaving me cold. Oh, no. Denna, it's not the same fellow as before, is it? The one who sent you to play for that wedding in Traben? Denna looked puzzled. Of course it is. I can't tell you his real name. What was it you called him before? Master Elm? Master Ash, I said, and it felt like a mouthful of ashes when I said it. Do you at least know his real name? Did he tell you that much before you signed up? I expect I know his real name, she shrugged, running a hand through her hair. When her fingers touched the braid, she seemed surprised to find it there and quickly began to unravel it, her deft fingers smoothing it away. Even if I don't, what does it matter? Everyone has secrets, Quoth. I don't particularly care what his are so long as he continues to deal square with me. He's been very generous. He's not just secretive, Denna, I protested. From the way you've described him, I'd say he's either paranoid or tangled up in dangerous business. I don't know why you're carrying such a grudge against him. I couldn't believe she could say that. Denna, he beat you senseless. She went very still. No. Her hand went to the fading bruise on her cheek. No, he didn't. I told you. I fell while I was out riding. The stupid horse couldn't tell a stick from a snake. I shook my head. I'm talking about last fall in Traben. Denna's hand fell back to her lap where it made an absent-minded fidgeting gesture, trying to toy with a ring that wasn't there. She looked at me, her expression blank. How did you know about that? You told me yourself. That night on the hill, waiting for the Dracus to come? She looked down, blinking. I... I don't remember saying that. You were a little addled at the time, I said gently. But you did. You told me all about it. Denna, you shouldn't have to stay with someone like that. Anyone who could do that to you... He did it for my own good, she said, her dark eyes beginning to flicker with anger. Did I tell you that? There I was without a scratch on me, and everyone else at the wedding dead as leather. You know what small towns are like. Even after they found me unconscious, they thought I might have had something to do with it. You remember? I put my head down and shook it like an ox worrying its yoke. I don't believe it. There had to be another way around the situation. I would have found another way. Well, I guess we can't all be as clever as you, she said. Clever doesn't have anything to do with it. I came close to shouting. He could have taken you away with him. He could have come forward and vouched for you. 
He couldn't let anyone know he was there, Dennis said. He said, he beat you. And as I spoke the words, I felt a terrible anger come together inside me. It wasn't hot and furious, as some of my flashes of temper tend to be. This was different, slow, and cold. And as soon as I felt it, I realized it had been there inside me for a long while, crystallizing, like a pond slowly freezing solid over a long winter night. He beat you, I said again, and I could feel it inside, a solid block of icy anger. Nothing you can say will change that, and if I ever see him, I'll likely stick a knife in him rather than shake his hand. Denna looked up at me then, the irritation fading from her face. She gave me a look that was all sweet fondness and mingled pity. It was the sort of look you give a puppy when it growls, thinking itself terribly fierce. She put her hand gently on the side of my face, and I felt myself flush hot and hard, suddenly embarrassed by my own melodrama. Can we not argue about it? she asked. Please? Not today. It's been so long since I've seen you. I decided to let it go rather than risk driving her away. I knew what happened when men pressed her too hard. Fair enough, I said. For today. Can you at least tell me what sort of thing your patron brought you out here for? Denna leaned back in her seat, smiling a wide smile. Sorry, delicate matters and all that, she mimicked. Don't be that way, I protested. I'd tell you if I could, but the mayor values his privacy very highly. Denna leaned forward again to lay her hand over mine. Poor Quoth, it's not out of spite. My patron is at least as private as the mayor. He made it very clear that things would go badly if I ever made our relationship public. He was quite emphatic about it. Her expression had gone serious. He's a powerful man. She seemed as if she would say more, then stopped herself. Though I didn't want to, I understood. My recent brush with the mayor's anger had taught me caution. What can you tell me about him? Denna tapped a finger against her lips thoughtfully. He's a surprisingly good dancer. I think I can say that without betraying anything. He's quite graceful, she said, then laughed at my expression. I'm doing some research for him, looking into old genealogies and histories. He's helping me write a couple songs so I can make a name for myself. She hesitated, then shook her head. I think that's all I can say. Will I get to hear the songs after you're done? She gave a shy smile. I think that can be arranged. She leapt to her feet and grabbed my arm to pull me to my feet. Enough talking. Come and walk with me. I smiled, her enthusiasm as infectious as a child's. But when she pulled at my hand, she let out a tiny yelp, flinching and pressing one of her hands to her side. I was standing next to her in a second. What's the matter? Denna shrugged and gave me a brittle smile, holding her arm close to her ribs. My fall, she said. That stupid horse. I get a twinge when I forget and move too quickly. Has anyone looked at it? It's just a bruise, she said, and the sort of doctor I can afford I wouldn't trust to touch me. What of your patron? I asked. 
Certainly he could arrange something. She slowly straightened. It's really not a problem. She lifted her arms above her head and made a quick, clever dance step, then laughed at my serious expression. No more talk of secret things for now. Come walk with me. Tell me dark and lurid gossip from the mayor's court. Very well, I said as we began to walk. I've heard the mayor is marvelously recovered from a long-standing illness. You're a poor rumor-monger, she said. Everyone knows that. The Baronet Bramston played a disastrous deck of pharaoh last night. Denna rolled her eyes. Boring. The Comtesse de Fer lost her virginity while attending a performance of Deonica. Oh! Denna raised her hand to her mouth, stifling a laugh. Did she really? She certainly didn't have it with her after the intermission, I said in a hushed voice. But it turns out she had just left it behind in her rooms, so it was merely misplaced, not really lost. The servants found it two days later when they were cleaning up. Turns out it had rolled underneath a chest of drawers. Denna's expression turned indignant. I can't believe I believed you, she swatted at me then grimaced again, sucking a sharp breath through her teeth. You know, I said softly, I've been trained at the university. I'm not a physiker, but the medicine I know is good. I could take a look at it for you. She gave me a long look, as if she wasn't quite sure what to make of my offer. I think, she said at last, that might be the most circumspect route anyone has ever tried for getting me out of my clothes. I... I felt myself blush furiously. I didn't mean... Denna laughed at my discomfiture. If I let anyone play doctor with me, it would be you, my quoth, she said. But I'll tend to it for now. She linked arms with me and we continued our walk down the street. I know enough to take care of myself. I returned to the mayor's estate hours later, taking the direct route rather than come in over the rooftops. When I arrived in the hallway leading to my room, I found two guards standing there instead of the single one that had been waiting before. I guessed they had discovered my escape. Even this couldn't dampen my spirits overmuch, as the time I'd spent with Denna had left me feeling twelve feet tall. Better yet, I was meeting with her tomorrow to go riding. Having a specific time and place to meet was an unexpected treat where Denna was concerned. Good evening, gentlemen. I said as I came down the hall. Anything interesting happen while I was out? You're to be confined to your rooms, Jay said grimly. I noticed he left off the sir this time. I paused with my hand on the doorknob. Beg pardon? You're to remain in your rooms until we get further orders, he said, and one of us is to stay with you at all times. I felt my temper flare up. And does Alvaron know about this? I asked sharply. They looked at each other uncertainly. It was Stapes giving the orders then. That uncertainty would be enough to keep them from laying hands on me. Let's get this sorted out straight away, I said, and started down the hall at a brisk walk, leaving the guards to catch up with me, their armor clattering. My temper fanned itself hotter as I made my way through the halls. If my credibility with the mayor was truly ruined, I preferred to have it done with now. 
If I couldn't have the mayor's goodwill, I would at least have my freedom and the ability to see Denna when I wished. I turned the corner just in time to see the mayor emerging from his rooms. He looked as healthy as I had ever seen him, carrying a sheaf of papers under one arm. As I approached, irritation flashed across his face, and I thought he might simply have the guards carry me away. Nevertheless, I approached him as boldly as if I had a written invitation. "'Your Grace,' I said with cheery cordiality. "'Might we talk for a moment?' "'Certainly.' He replied in a similar tone as he swung open the door he had been about to close behind himself. Do come in. I watched his eyes and saw an anger as hot as mine. A small, sensible part of me quailed, but my temper had the bit in its teeth and was galloping madly ahead. We left the bemused guards in the antechamber, and Alvaron led me through the second set of doors into his personal rooms. Silence hung dangerous in the air like the calm before a sudden summer storm. I cannot believe your impudence, the mayor hissed once the doors were closed. Your wild accusations, your ridiculous claims. I mislike public unpleasantness, so we will deal with this later. He made an imperious gesture. Return to your rooms and do not leave until I decide how best to deal with you. Your grace... I could tell by the set of his shoulders that he was ready to call the guards. I do not hear you, he said flatly. He met my gaze then. His eyes were hard as flint, and I saw how angry he truly was. This wasn't the anger of a patron or employer. It wasn't someone irritated by my failure to respect the social order. This was a man who had ruled everything around him from the age of sixteen, this man thought nothing of hanging someone from an iron gibbet to make a point. This was a man who, but for a twist of history, would now be king of all Vintus. My temper sputtered and went out like a snuffed candle, leaving me chilled. I realized then that I had misjudged my situation badly. When I was a child, homeless on the streets of Tarbian, I'd learned to deal with dangerous people, drunken dock workers, guardsmen, even a homeless child with a bottle-glass knife can kill you. The key to staying safe was knowing the rules of the situation. A guard wouldn't beat you in the middle of the street. A dock worker wouldn't chase you if you ran. Now, with sudden clarity, I realized my mistake. The mayor was not bound by any rules. He could order me killed, then hang my body over the city gates. He could throw me in jail and forget about me. He could leave me there while I grew starved and sickly. I had no position, no friends to intercede on my behalf. I was helpless as a child with a willow-switch sword. I realized this in a flash and felt a gnawing fear settle in my belly. I should have stayed in Severin Low while I had the chance. I never should have come here in the first place and meddled in the affairs of powerful folk such as this. It was just then that Stapes bustled in from the mayor's dressing room. Seeing us, his normally placid expression flickered briefly into panic and surprise. He recovered quickly. I beg your pardon, sirs, he said, and hurried back the way he came. Stapes? The mayor called out before he could leave. Come here! Stapes slunk back into the room. He wrung his hands nervously. His face had the stricken look of a guilty man, a man caught in the midst of something dishonest. 
Alvaron's voice was stern. Stapes, what do you have there? Looking closer, I saw the manservant wasn't wringing his hands. He was clutching something. It's nothing. Stapes! The mayor barked. How dare you lie to me! Show me at once. Numbly, the portly manservant opened his hands. A tiny gem-bright bird lay lifeless on his palm. His face had lost all hint of color. Never in the history of the world has the death of a lovely thing brought such relief and joy. I had been certain of Stapes's betrayal for days now, and here was the unquestionable proof of it. Nevertheless, I kept quiet. The mayor had to see this with his own eyes. What is the meaning of this? the mayor asked slowly. It's not good to think of such things, sir, the manservant said quickly, and worse to dwell on them. I'll just fetch another one. It'll sing just as sweet. There was a long pause. I could see Alvaron struggling to contain the rage he'd been ready to unleash on me. The silence continued to stretch. Stapes, I said slowly. How many birds have you replaced these last few days? Stapes turned to me, his expression indignant. Before he could speak, the mayor broke in. Answer him, Stapes. His voice sounded almost choked. Has there been more than this one? Stapes gave the mayor a stricken look. Oh, Rand, I didn't want to trouble you. You were so bad for a time. Then you asked for the birds and had that terrible night. Then the next day one of them died. Looking down at the tiny bird in his hand, his words came faster and faster, almost tumbling over each other, too clumsy to be anything but sincere. I didn't want to fill your head with talk of dying things, so I snuck it out and bought in a new one. Then you kept getting better and they started falling four or five a day. Every time I looked, there would be another one lying in the bottom of the cage like a little cut flower. But you were doing so well, I didn't want to mention it. Stapes covered the dead sipquick with a cupped hand. It's like they were giving up their little souls to make you well again. Something inside the man suddenly gave way, and he began to cry. The deep, hopeless sobs of an honest man who had been frightened and helpless for a long time watching the slow death of a well-loved friend. Alvaron stood motionless for a stunned moment, all the anger spilling out of him. Then he moved to put his arms gently around his manservant. Oh, Stapes, he said softly. They were, in a way. You haven't done anything you can be blamed for. I quietly left the room and busied myself removing the feeders from the gilded cage. An hour later, the three of us were eating a quiet supper together in the mayor's rooms. Alvaron and I told Stapes what had been happening over the last several days. Stapes was almost giddy, both at his master's health and at the knowledge it would continue to improve. As for myself, after suffering a few days under Alvaron's displeasure, being so suddenly in his good graces again was a relief. Nevertheless, I was shaken by how close to disaster I had been. I was honest with the mayor about my misguided suspicion of Stapes, and I offered the manservant my sincere apology. 
Stapes in turn admitted his doubts about me. In the end, we shook hands and thought much better of each other. As we were chatting over the last bits of supper, Stapes perked up, excused himself, and hurried out. My outer door, the mayor explained. He has ears like a dog. It's uncanny. Stapes opened the door to admit the tall man with the shaven head who had been looking over maps with Alvaron when I'd first arrived, Commander Dagon. As Dagon stepped into the room, his eyes flicked to each of the corners, to the window, to the door, briefly over me, then back to the mayor. When his eyes touched me, all the deep feral instincts that had kept me alive on the streets of Tarbian told me to run, hide, do anything so long as it took me far away from this man. Ah, Dagon, the mayor said cheerily. Are you well this fine day? Yes, your grace. He stood attentively, not quite meeting the mayor's eye. Would you be good enough to arrest Cordicus for treason? There was a half-heartbeat pause. Yes, your grace. Eight men should be sufficient, providing they are not likely to panic in a complicated situation. Yes, your grace. I began to sense subtle differences in Dagon's responses. Alive, Alvaron responded, as if answering a question. But you needn't be gentle. Yes, your grace. With that, Dagon turned to leave. I spoke up quickly. Your grace, if he's truly an arcanist, you ought to take certain precautions. I regretted the word ought as soon as I had said it. Ought was presumptuous. I should have said, you may wish to consider taking certain precautions. Alvaron seemed to take no notice of my misstep. Yes, of course. Set a thief to catch a thief. Dagon, before you settle him downstairs, bind him hand and foot with good iron chain. Pure iron, mind you. Gag and blindfold him. He thought for a brief moment, tapping his lips with a finger. And cut off his thumbs. Yes, your grace. Alvaron looked at me. Do you think that should be sufficient? I fought down a wave of nausea and forced myself not to wring my hands in my lap. I didn't know which I found more unsettling, the cheerful tone with which Alvaron delivered the commands or the flat emotionless one with which Dagon accepted them. A full arcanist was nothing to trifle with, but I found the thought of crippling the man's hands more horrifying than killing him outright. Dagon left, and after the door closed, Stapes shuddered. Good Lord, Rand! He's like cold water down the back of my neck. I wish you'd get rid of him. The mayor laughed. So someone else could have him? No, Stapes. I want him right here, my mad dog on a short leash. Stapes frowned, but before he could make anything more of it, his eyes were drawn through the doorway into the sitting room. Oh, there's another one. He walked to the cage and returned with another dead flit, holding its tiny body tenderly as he carried it out of the chambers. I know you needed to test the medicine on something, he said from the other room, but it's a little rough on the poor little Calanthus. Beg pardon? I asked. Our stapes is old-fashioned, Alvaron explained with a smile, and more educated than he cares to admit. Calanthus is the Eldvintic name for them. I could swear I've heard that word somewhere else. 
It's also the surname of the royal line of Vintus, Alvaron said chidingly. For someone who knows so much, you're curiously blind in places. Stapes craned his neck to look toward the cage again. I know you had to do it, he said, but why not use mice or Comptus de Fer's nasty little dog? Before I could answer, there was a thump from the outer rooms, and a guard burst through the inner door before Stapes could come to his feet. Your Grace, the man said breathlessly as he jumped to the room's only window and slammed the shutters. Next, he ran to the sitting room and did the same with the window in there. There followed other similar noises from rooms farther back I had never seen. There was a faint sound of furniture being moved. Stapes looked puzzled and half rose to his feet, but the mayor shook his head and motioned for him to sit down. Lieutenant, he called out, a tinge of irritation in his voice. Beg pardon, your grace, the guard said as he re-entered the room, breathing heavily. Dagon's orders. I was to secure your room straight away. I take it all is not well, Alvaron said dryly. There was no answer from the tower when we knocked. Dagon had us force the door. There was... I don't know what it was, your grace. Some malignant spirit. And as he's dead, your grace. Codicus is nowhere in his rooms, but Dagon is after him. Alvaron's expression darkened. Damn! He thundered, striking the arm of his chair with a fist. His brow furrowed, and he let out an explosive sigh. Very well. He waved the guard away. The guard stood stiffly. Sir, Dagon said I'm not to leave you unguarded. Alvaron gave him a dangerous look. Very well, but stand over there. He pointed to the corner of the room. The guard appeared perfectly happy to fade into the background. Alvaron leaned forward, pressing the tips of his fingers to his forehead. How in the name of God did he suspect? The question seemed rhetorical, but it set the wheels of my mind spinning. Did your grace pick up his medicine yesterday? Yes, yes. I did everything the same as I had done in days past. Except you didn't send me to get your medicine, I thought to myself. Do you still have the vial? I asked. He did. Stapes brought it to me. I uncorked it and ran a finger along the inside of the glass. How does your grace's medicine taste? I've told you, brackish, bitter. I watched the mayor's eyes go wide as I brought my finger to my mouth and touched it lightly to the tip of my tongue. Are you mad? Alvaron said incredulously. Sweet. I said simply. Then I rinsed my mouth with water and spat it as delicately as possible into an empty glass. I took a small folded packet of paper from a pocket in my vest, shook a small amount into my hand, and ate it, grimacing. What's that? Stapes asked. Liguelin, I lied, knowing the real answer, charcoal would only provoke more questions. I took a mouthful of water and spat it out as well. This time it was black and Alvaron and Stapes stared at it, startled. I bulled ahead. Something must have made him suspect you were not taking your medicine, Your Grace. If it suddenly tasted different, you would have asked him. The mayor nodded. I saw him yesterday evening. He asked after my health. He beat his fist softly under the arm of his chair. All the cursed luck. If he has any wit, he's been gone half a day. We'll never catch him. 
I thought about reminding him that if he had believed me from the first, none of this would have happened, then thought better of it. I'd advise your men to stay out of his tower, your grace. He's had time to prepare a great deal of mischief in there, traps and the like. The mayor nodded and passed his hand in front of his eyes. Yes, of course. See to it, Stapes. I believe I'll take a bit of rest. This business may take a while to sort out. I gathered myself to leave, but the mayor gestured me back into my seat. Quoth, stay a moment and make me a pot of tea before you go. Stapes rang for servants. While clearing the remains of our lunch away, they glanced at me curiously. Not only sitting in the mayor's presence, I was sharing a meal with him in his private chambers. This news would be rumored through the estate in under ten minutes. After the servants left, I made the mayor another pot of tea. I was preparing to leave when he spoke over the top of his cup, too softly for the guard to overhear. Quoth, you have proved perfectly trustworthy, and I regret any doubts I briefly entertained about you. He sipped and swallowed before continuing. Unfortunately, I cannot allow news of a poisoning to spread, especially with the poisoner escaped. He gave me a significant look. It would interfere with the matter we discussed before. I nodded. Widespread knowledge that his own arcanist had nearly killed him would hardly help Alvaron win the hand of the woman he hoped to marry. He continued. Unfortunately, this need for silence also precludes my giving you a reward you all too richly deserve. With a situation different, I would consider the gift of lands mere token thanks. I would grant you title, too. This power my family still retains, free from the controlment of the king. My head reeled at the implication of what the mayor was saying as he continued. However, if I were to do such a thing, there would be need of explanation, and an explanation is the one thing I cannot afford. Alvaron extended his hand, and it took me a moment to realize he intended me to shake it. One does not typically shake hands with the mayor Alvaron. I immediately regretted that the only person present to see it was the guard. I hoped he was a gossip. I took his hand solemnly, and Alvaron continued. I owe you a great debt. If you ever find yourself in need, you shall have at your command all the help a grateful lord can lend. I nodded graciously, trying to keep a calm demeanor despite my excitement. This was exactly what I had been hoping for. With the mayor's resources, I could make a concerted search for the emir. He could get me access to monastery archives, private libraries, places where important documents hadn't been pruned and edited as they had in the university. But I knew this wasn't the proper time to ask. Alvaron had promised his help. I could simply bide my time and choose what type of help I wanted most. As I stepped outside the mayor's rooms, Stapes surprised me with a sudden, wordless embrace. The expression on his face couldn't have been more grateful if I'd pulled his family from a burning building. Young sir, I doubt you understand how much I'm in your debt. If there's anything you ever need, just make me wise of it. He gripped my hand, pumping it up and down enthusiastically. At the same time, I felt him press something into my palm. Then I was standing in the hallway. I opened my hand and saw a fine silver ring with Stapes's name etched across the face. Alongside it was a second ring that wasn't metal at all. It was smooth and white 
and also had the manservant's name carved in rough letters across the surface of it. I had no idea what such a thing might signify. I made my way back to my rooms, almost dizzy with my sudden fortune. Chapter 65 A Beautiful Game The next day my meager belongings were moved to rooms the mayor deemed more suitable for someone firmly in his favor. There were five of them in all, three with windows overlooking the garden. It was a nice gesture, but I couldn't help but think that these rooms were even farther from the kitchens. My food would be cold as a stone by the time it made its way to me. I'd barely been there an hour before a runner arrived bearing Braden's silver ring and a card that read, Your Glorious New Rooms. When? I turned the card over, wrote, As soon as you like, and sent the boy on his way. I placed his silver ring on a tray in my sitting room. The bowl next to it now had two silver rings glittering among the iron. I opened the door to see Braden's dark eyes peering owlishly out at me from the halo of his white beard and hair. He smiled and bowed, his walking stick tucked under one arm. I offered him a seat, then excused myself politely and left him alone in the sitting room for a moment, as was the gracious thing to do. I was barely through the doorway before I heard his rich laugh coming from the other room. Ho, ho, he said, now there's a thing. When I returned, Braden was sitting by the tack board holding the two rings I had recently received from Stapes. This is certainly a turn for the books, he said. Apparently I misjudged things yesterday when my runner was turned away from your door by an altogether surly guard. I grinned at him. It's been an exciting couple of days, I said. Braden tucked his chin and chuckled, looking even more owlish than usual. I dare say, he said, holding up the silver ring, this tells quite a story. But this, he gestured to the white ring with his walking stick, this is something else entirely. I pulled up a seat across from him. I'll be frank with you, I said. I can only guess what it's made of, let alone what it signifies. Braden raised an eyebrow. That's remarkably forthright of you. I shrugged. I feel somewhat more secure in my position here, I admitted. Enough that I can be a little less guarded with the people who have been kind to me. He chuckled again as he lay the silver ring on the board. Secure, he said. I dare say you are at that. He picked up the white ring. Still, it's not odd that you wouldn't know about this. I thought there were just three types of rings, I said. That's true for the most part, Braden said. But the giving of rings goes back quite a ways. The common folk were doing it long before it became a game for the gentry. And while Stapes may breathe the rarefied air with the rest of us, his family is undeniably common. Braden set the white ring back onto the board and folded his hands over it. Those rings were made of things ordinary folk might find easily at hand. A young lover might give a ring of new green grass to someone he was courting. A ring of leather promises service, and so on. And a ring of horn? A ring of horn shows enmity, Braden said. Powerful and lasting enmity. Ah, I said, somewhat taken aback. I see. 
Braden smiled and held the pale ring up to the light. But this, he said, is not horn. The grain is wrong, and Stapes would never give a horn ring alongside a silver one. He shook his head. No, unless I miss my guess, this is a ring of bone. He handed it to me. Wonderful, I said glumly, turning it over in my hands. And that means what? That he'll stab me in the liver and push me down a dry well? Braden gave me his wide, warm smile. A ring of bone indicates a profound and lasting debt. I see. I rubbed it between my fingers. I have to say I prefer being owed a favor. Not just a favor, Braden said. Traditionally, a ring such as this is carved from the bone of a deceased family member. He raised an eyebrow. And while I doubt that is currently the case, it does get the point across. I looked up, still slightly dazed by it all. And that is... That these things are not given lightly. It's not a part of games the gentry play, and not the sort of ring you should display. He gave me a look. If I were you, I'd tuck it safe away. I put it carefully into my pocket. You've been such help, I said. I wish I could repay— He held up a hand, cutting me off mid-sentence. Then, moving with solemn care, he pointed one finger downward, made a fist, and wrapped a knuckle on the surface of the tack board. I smiled and brought out the stones. I think I'm finally getting my teeth into the game. I said an hour later after losing by the narrowest of margins. Braden pushed his chair away from the table with an expression of distaste. No, he said. Quite the opposite. You have the basics, but you're missing the whole point. I began to sort out the stones. The point is that I'm finally close to beating you after all this time. No, Braden said. That's not it at all. Tack is a subtle game. That's the reason I have such trouble finding people who can play it. Right now, you are stomping about like a thug. If anything, you're worse than you were two days ago. Admit it, I said. I nearly had you that last time. He merely scowled and pointed imperiously to the table. I set to it with a will, smiling and humming, sure that today I would finally beat him. But nothing could be further from the truth. Braden set his stones ruthlessly, not a breath of hesitation between his moves. He tore me apart as easily as you rip a sheet of paper in half. The game was over so quickly, it left me breathless. Again, Braden said, a note of command in his voice I'd never heard before. I tried to rally, but the next game was worse. I felt like a puppy fighting a wolf. No, I was a mouse at the mercy of an owl. There was not even the pretense of a fight. All I could do was run. But I couldn't run fast enough. This game was over sooner than the last. Again, he demanded. And we played again. This time, I was not even a living thing. Braden was calm and dispassionate as a butcher with a boning knife. The game lasted about the length of time it takes to gut and bone a chicken. At the end of it, Braden frowned and shook his hands briskly to both sides of the board, as if he had just washed them and was trying to flick them dry. 
Fine, I said, leaning back in my chair. I take your point. You've been going easy on me. No, Braden said with a grim look. That is far gone from the point I am trying to make. What then? I'm trying to make you understand the game, he said. The entire game, not just the fiddling about with stones. The point is not to play as tight as you can. The point is to be bold, to be dangerous, be elegant. He tapped the board with two fingers. Any man that's half awake can spot a trap that's laid for him. But to stride in boldly with a plan to turn it on its ear, that is a marvelous thing. He smiled without any of the grimness leaving his face. To set a trap and know someone will come in wary, ready with a trick of their own, then beat them, that is twice marvelous. Braden's expression softened, and his voice became almost like an entreaty. Tack reflects the subtle turning of the world. It is a mirror we hold to life. No one wins a dance, boy. The point of dancing is the motion that a body makes. A well-played game of tack reveals the moving of a mind. There is a beauty to these things for those with eyes to see it. He gestured at the brief and brutal lay of stones between us. Look at that. Why would I ever want to win a game such as this? I looked down at the board. The point isn't to win? I asked. The point, Braden said grandly, is to play a beautiful game. He lifted his hands and shrugged, his face breaking into a beatific smile. Why would I want to win anything other than a beautiful game? Chapter 66 Within Easy Reach Later that evening, I sat alone in what I guessed might be my drawing room. Or perhaps my sitting room. Honestly, I wasn't entirely sure what the difference was. I was surprised to find I liked my new rooms quite a lot. Not for the extra space, not because they had a better view of the garden, not because the inlay in the marble floor was more pleasing to the eye, not even because the room had its own exceptionally well-stocked wine cabinet, though that was quite pleasant. No, my new rooms were preferable because they had several cushioned armless chairs that were perfect for playing my lute. It's uncomfortable to play for any length of time in a chair with armrests, in my previous room, I'd usually ended up sitting on the floor. I decided to dub the room with the good chairs my lootery, or perhaps my performatory. I would need a while to come up with something suitably pretentious. Needless to say, I was pleased by the recent turn of events. By way of celebration, I opened a bottle of fine, dark Philoran wine, relaxed, and brought out my lute. I started quick and tripping, playing my way through Tintetatornin to limber up my fingers. Then I played sweet and easy for a time, slowly growing reacquainted with my lute. By the time I'd played for about half a bottle, I had my feet up and my music was mellow and content as a cat in a sunbeam. That's when I heard the noise behind me. I stopped in a jangle of notes and sprang to my feet, expecting Cauticus or the guards or some other deadly trouble. What I found was the mayor, smiling an embarrassed smile, like a child that's just played a joke. I trust your new rooms are to your satisfaction? 
I collected myself and made a small bow. It's rather much for the likes of me, your grace. It's rather little, considering my debt to you, Alvaron said. He sat on a nearby couch and made a gracious gesture indicating I should feel free to take a seat myself. What was that you were playing just now? I returned to my chair. It wasn't really a proper song, Your Grace. I was just playing. The mayor raised an eyebrow. It was of your own devising? I nodded, and he motioned to me. I'm sorry to have interrupted you. Please, continue. What would you like to hear, Your Grace? I have it on good report that Mellow and Lackless is fond of music and sweet words, he said. Something along those lines. There are many types of sweet, Your Grace, I said. I played the opening to Violet Bide. The notes rang out light and sweet and sad. Then I changed to The Lay of Savian, my fingers moving quickly through the complex cording, making it sound every bit as hard as it was. Alvaron nodded to himself, his expression growing more satisfied as he listened. And you can compose as well? I nodded easily. I can, Your Grace, though it takes time to do such things properly. How much time? I shrugged. A day or two, or three, depending on the sort of song you desire. Letters are easier. The mayor leaned forward. It pleases me that Threp's praise was not exaggerated, he said. I will admit I moved you to these rooms with more than gratitude in mind. A passage connects them to my own rooms. We will need to meet frequently in order to discuss my courting. It should prove most convenient, Your Grace, I said, then chose my next words carefully. I've learned her family's history, but that will only go so far toward courting a woman. Alvaron chuckled. You must take me for a fool, he said gently. I know you'll need to meet her. She will be here in two days, visiting with a host of other nobility. I have declared a month of festivities to celebrate the passing of my long illness. Clever, I complimented him. He shrugged. I'll arrange something to bring the two of you together early on. Is there anything you require for the practice of your art? A goodly amount of paper should suffice, Your Grace. Ink and pens. Nothing more than that? I've heard tell of poets who need certain extravagancies to aid them in their composition. He made an inarticulate gesture. A specific type of drink or scenery. I've heard of a poet quite famous in Rhaenyra who has a trunk of rotting apples he keeps close at hand. Whenever his inspiration fails him, he opens it and breathes the fumes they emit. I laughed. I am a musician, Your Grace. Leave the poets to their superstitious bone-rattling. All I need is my instrument, two good hands, and a knowledge of my subject. The idea seemed to trouble Alvaron. Nothing to age or inspiration? I would have your leave to freely wander the estates and Severin Lowe according to my will, Your Grace. Of course. I gave an easy shrug. In that case, I have everything I need for inspiration within easy reach. I had barely set foot on Tinnery Street when I saw her. With all the fruitless searching I had done over the last several months, it seemed odd that I should find her so easily now. 
Denna moved through the crowd with slow grace, not the stiffness that passes for grace in courtly settings, but a natural leisure of movement. A cat does not think of stretching. It stretches. But a tree does not even do this. A tree simply sways without the effort of moving itself. That is how she moved. I caught up to her as quickly as I could without attracting her attention. Excuse me, miss. She turned. Her face brightened at the sight of me. Yes? I would never normally approach a woman in this way, but I couldn't help but notice that you have the eyes of a lady I was once desperately in love with. What a shame to love only once, she said, showing her white teeth and a wicked smile. I've heard some men can manage twice or even more. I ignored her jibe. I'm only a fool once. Never will I love again. Her expression turned soft, and she laid her hand lightly on my arm. You poor man. She must have hurt you terribly. Struth, she wounded me more ways than one. But such things are to be expected, she said matter-of-factly. How could a woman help but love a man so striking as yourself? I know not, I said modestly. But I think she must not, for she caught me with an easy smile, then stole away without a word, like dew in dawn's pale light. Like a dream upon waking, Denna added with a smile. Like a fairy maiden slipping through the trees. Denna was silent for a moment. She must have been wondrous indeed to catch you so entire, she said, looking at me with serious eyes. She was beyond compare. Oh, come now. Her manner changed to jovial. We all know that when the lights are out, all women are the same height. She gave a rough chuckle and ribbed me knowingly with an elbow. Not true, I said with firm conviction. Well, she said slowly, I guess I'll have to take your word for it. She looked back up at me. Perhaps in time you can convince me. I looked into the deep brown of her eyes. That has ever been my hope. Denna smiled, and my heart stepped sideways in my chest. Maintain it. She slid her arm inside the curve of mine and fell into step beside me. For without hope, what do any of us have? Chapter 67 Telling Faces I spent a fair portion of the next two days under Stapes' tutelage, ensuring I knew the proper etiquette for a formal dinner. I was already familiar with a great deal of it from my early childhood, but I was glad for the review. Customs differ from place to place and year to year, and even small missteps can lead to great embarrassment. So Stapes conducted a dinner for just the two of us, then informed me of a dozen small but important mistakes I had made. Setting down a dirty utensil was considered crude, for example. That meant it was perfectly acceptable to lick one's knife clean. In fact, if you didn't want to dirty your napkin, it was the only seemly thing to do. It was improper to eat the entirety of a piece of bread. Some portion should always be left on the plate, preferably more than crust. The same was true of milk. The final swallow should always remain in the glass. The next day, Stapes staged another dinner, and I made more mistakes. Commenting on the food wasn't rude, but it was rustic. The same was true of smelling the wine, and apparently 
the small soft cheese I'd been served possessed a rind, a rind any civilized person would have recognized as inedible and meant to be pared away. Barbarian that I am, I had eaten all of it. It had tasted quite nice, too. Still, I took note of this fact and resigned myself to throw away half of a perfectly good cheese if it was set in front of me. Such is the price of civilization. I arrived for the banquet wearing a suit of clothes tailored just for the occasion. The colors were good for me, leaf green and black. There was too much brocade for my taste, but tonight I made a grudging bow to fashion as I would be seated to the left of Meloan Lackless. Stapes had staged six formal dinners for me in the last three days, and I felt prepared for anything. When I arrived outside the banquet hall, I expected the hardest part of the evening would be feigning interest in the food. But while I might have been prepared for the meal, I was not prepared for the sight of Melo and Lackless herself. Luckily, my stage training took hold, and I moved smoothly through the ritual motion of smiling and offering my arm. She nodded courteously, and we made our procession to the table together. There were tall candelabra with dozens of candles, engraved silver pitchers held hot water for hand bowls and cold water for drinking glasses. Old vases with elaborate floral arrangements sweetened the air. Cornucopia overflowed with polished fruit. Personally, I found it gaudy, but it was traditional, a showcase for the wealth of the host. I walked the Lady Lackless to the table and held out her chair. I had avoided looking in her direction as we walked the length of the room, but as I helped her into her seat, her profile struck me with such a strong resemblance that I couldn't help but stare. I knew her. I was certain of it. But I couldn't for the life of me remember where we might have met. As I took my seat, I tried to guess where I might have seen her before. If the lackless lands weren't a thousand miles away, I would have thought I knew her from the university, but that was ridiculous. The lackless heir wouldn't study so far from home. My eyes wandered over maddeningly familiar features. Might I have met her at the Aeolian? That didn't seem likely. I would have remembered. She was strikingly lovely, with a strong jaw and dark brown eyes. I'm sure if I'd seen her there... Do you see aught that interests you? She asked without turning to look at me. Her tone was pleasant, but accusation lay not far beneath the surface. I had been staring. Hardly a minute at the table, and I was already putting my elbow in the butter. I beg your pardon, but I am a keen observer of faces, and yours struck me. Meloin turned to look at me, her irritation fading a bit. Are you a tourageur? Tourageurs claim to be able to tell your personality or future from your face eyes, and the shape of your head. Pure-blooded Vintic superstition. I dabble a bit, milady. Really? What does my face tell you, then? She looked up and away from me. I made a show of looking over Meloin's features, taking note of her pale skin and artfully curled chestnut hair. Her mouth was full and red without the benefit of any paint. The line of her neck was proud and graceful. I nodded. I can see a piece of your future in it, milady. One of her eyebrows went up a bit. Do tell. You will be receiving an apology shortly. 
Forgive my eyes, they flit like the Calanthus, place to place. I could not keep them from your fair flower face. Meloen smiled, but did not blush. Not immune to flattery, but no stranger to it either. I tucked that bit of information away. That was a fairly easy fortune to tell, she said. See you anything else? I took another moment to search her face. Two other things, milady. It tells me you are Meloen Lackless, and that I am at your service. She smiled and gave me her hand to kiss. I took hold of it and bowed my head over it. I didn't actually kiss it, as would have been proper back in the Commonwealth. Instead, I pressed my lips briefly onto my own thumb that held her hand. Actually kissing her hand would have been terribly forward in this part of the world. Our banter was stalled by the arrival of the soups, forty servants placing them before forty guests all at once. I tasted mine. Why in God's name would anyone make a sweet soup? I ate another spoonful and pretended to enjoy it. From the corner of my eye, I watched my neighbor, a tiny older man I knew to be the viceroy of Bannis. His face and hands were wrinkled and spotted, his hair a disarrayed tousle of gray. I watched him put a finger into his soup without a hint of self-consciousness, taste it, then push the bowl aside. He rummaged in his pockets and opened his hand to show me what he'd found. I always bring a pocket full of candied almonds to these things, he said in a conspiratorial whisper, his eyes as cunning as a child's. You never know what they'll try to feed you. He held his hand out. You can have one if you like. I took one, thanked him, and faded from his awareness for the rest of the evening. When I glanced back several minutes later, he was eating unabashedly from his pocket and bickering with his wife about whether or not the peasantry could make bread from acorns. From the sound of it, I guessed it was a small piece of a larger argument that they had been having their entire lives. To Meloin's right, there was a Yilish couple, chatting away in their own lilting language. Combined with strategically placed decorations that made it difficult to see the guests on the other side of the table, Meloin and I were more alone than if we had been walking together in the gardens. The mayor had arranged his seating well. The soup was taken away and replaced with a piece of meat I assumed was pheasant covered in a thick cream sauce. I was surprised to find it quite to my taste. So, how do you think we came to be paired? Meloin asked conversationally. Mr. Quoth, I made a small seated bow. It could be because the mayor wished you to be entertained, and I am at times entertaining. Quite. Or it could be I paid the steward an incredible sum of money. Her smile flickered again as she took a drink of water. Enjoys boldness, I thought to myself. I wiped my fingers and almost set the napkin on the table, which would have been a terrible mistake. That was a signal to remove whatever course was currently being served. Done too soon, it implied a silent but scathing criticism of the host's hospitality. I felt a bead of sweat begin to trickle down my back between my shoulder blades as I deliberately folded the napkin and laid it on my lap. So, how do you occupy yourself, Mr. Quoth? She hadn't asked as to my employment, which meant she assumed I was a member of the nobility. Luckily, I'd already laid the groundwork for this. I write a bit, 
genealogies, a play or two. Do you enjoy the theater? Occasionally. Depending. Depending on the play? Depending on the performers, she said, an odd tension touching her voice. I wouldn't have noticed it if I hadn't been watching her so closely. I decided to change the subject to safer ground. How did you find the roads on your way to Severin? I asked. Everyone loves to complain about the roads. It's as safe a topic as the weather. I heard there has been some difficulty with bandits to the north. I hoped to excite the conversation a little. The more she talked, the better I could get to know her. The roads are always thick with rue bandits this time of year, Malowin said coldly. Not just bandits, rue bandits. She said the word with such a weight of cold loathing in her voice that I was chilled to hear it. She hated the rue. Not the simple distaste most people feel for us, but a true, sharp hate with teeth in it. I was saved from making a response by the arrival of chilled fruit pastries. To my left, the viceroy argued acorns to his wife. To my right, Malowin slowly tore a strawberry pastry in half, her face pale as an ivory mask. Watching her flawless, polished nails tear the pastry into pieces, I knew her thoughts were dwelling on the rue. Aside from her brief mention of the Adima rue, the evening went quite well. I slowly set Malowin at her ease, talking casually of small things. The elaborate dinner lasted two hours, giving us ample time for discussion. I found her to be everything Alvaron had suggested, intelligent, attractive, and well-spoken. Even the knowledge that she loathed the rue could not entirely keep me from enjoying her company. I returned to my room immediately after dinner and began to write. By the time the mayor came to call, I had three drafts of a letter, an outline of a song, and five sheets filled with notes and phrases I hoped to use later. Come in, your grace. I glanced up as he entered. He hardly seemed the same sickly, doddering man I'd nursed back to health. He'd put on some weight and looked five years younger. What did you think of her? Alvaron said. Did she mention any suitors when you spoke? No, your grace, I said handing him a folded piece of paper. Here is the first letter you will want to send to her. I trust you can find a way of delivering it to her secretly. He unfolded it and began to read, his lips moving silently. I labored out another line of song, scratching out the cording alongside the words. Eventually, the mayor looked up. Don't you think this is a little much? He said uncomfortably. No, I paused in my writing long enough to gesture with my pen toward a different piece of paper. That one is too much. The one in your hand is just enough. She's got a streak of romance in her. She wants to be swept from her feet, though she'd probably deny it. The mayor's expression was still doubtful, so I pushed myself away from the table and set down my quill. Your Grace, you were right. She is a woman well worthy of pursuit. In a handful of days, there will be a dozen men in the estates who would gladly take her to wife. Am I right? There are already a dozen here, he said grimly. Soon, there will be three dozen. Add another dozen she will meet at dinner or walking in the garden. Then another dozen who will court her merely for the chase. Of those dozens, how many will write her letters and poems? They will send her flowers, trinkets, tokens of affection— Soon she will be receiving a deluge of attention. 
You have one best hope. I pointed to the letter. Act quickly. That letter will catch her imagination, her curiosity. In a day or two, when the other notes are cluttering her desk, she will already be awaiting the second one of ours. He seemed to hesitate a moment. Then his shoulders bowed. Are you sure? I shook my head. There are no certainties in this, Your Grace. Only hopes. That is the best one I can give you. Alvaron hesitated. I know nothing of this, he said with a hint of petulance. I wish there were some book of rules a man could follow. For a moment, he looked very much like an ordinary man and very little like the Mayor Alvaron at all. Truthfully, I was more than slightly concerned myself. What I personally knew about courting women could comfortably fit into a thimble without taking it off your finger first. On the other hand, I had a vast wealth of secondary knowledge. Ten thousand romantic songs, plays, and stories taken all together had to be worth something. And on the negative side, I'd seen Simon pursue nearly every woman within three miles of the university with the doomed enthusiasm of a child trying to fly. What's more, I had watched a hundred men dash themselves to pieces against Denna like ships attempting to ignore the tide. Alvaron looked at me, his face still showing honest concern. Will a month be enough time, do you think? When I spoke, I was surprised by the confidence in my own voice. Your Grace, if I cannot help you catch her in the space of a month, then it cannot be done. Chapter 68 the cost of a loaf. The days that followed were pleasant ones. My sunlight hours were spent with Denna in Severin Low, exploring the city and surrounding countryside. We spent time riding, swimming, singing, or simply talking the afternoons away. I flattered her outrageously and without hope, because only a fool would hope to catch her. Then I would return to my rooms and pen the letter that had been building inside me all day or I would pour out a torrent of song to her, and in that letter or song I said all the things I hadn't dared to tell Denna during the day, things I knew would only frighten her away. After I finished the letter or the song, I would write it again. I would dull its edges a little, remove an honesty or two. I slowly smoothed and stitched until it fit Malo and Lackless as snugly as a calfskin glove. It was idyllic, I had better luck finding Denna in Severin than I ever had in Imre. We met for hours at a stretch, sometimes more than once a day, sometimes three or four days in a row. Though, in the interest of honesty, things were not perfect. There were a few burrs in the blanket, as my father used to say. The first was a young gentleman named Jared, who accompanied Denna on one of our early meetings down in Severin Low. He didn't know her as Denna, of course. He called her Elora, and so did I for the rest of the day. Jared's face held the doomed expression I had come to know very well. He had known Denna long enough to fall for her, and he was just beginning to realize his time was drawing to an end. I watched as he made the same mistakes I'd seen others make before him. He put his arm around her possessively. He gave her the gift of a ring— as we strolled the city, if her eye focused on anything for more than three seconds, he offered to buy it for her. He tried to pin her down with a promise of some future meeting, 
a dance at the de Fer's manse, dinner at the golden board. The tenpenny king was being performed tomorrow by Count Abelard's men. Individually, any of these things would have been fine, perhaps even charming. But taken together, they showed themselves as pure, white-knuckled desperation. He clutched at Denna as if he were a drowning man and she a plank of wood. He glared at me when she wasn't watching, and when Denna bid the two of us goodbye that evening, his face was drawn and white as if he were already two days dead. The second burr was worse. After I'd been helping the mayor court his lady for almost two span, Denna disappeared. No trace or word of warning, no note of farewell or apology. I waited for three hours at the livery where we'd agreed to meet. After that, I went to her inn, only to find that she had left with all her things the night before. I went to the park where we had taken lunch the previous day, then to a dozen other places where we'd made a habit of each other's company. It was near midnight by the time I took the lifts back to the top of the shear. Even then, some foolish part of me hoped she would greet me at the top, rushing into my arms again with her wild enthusiasm. But she wasn't there. That night, I wrote no letter or song for Meloin. The second day, I ghosted through Severin Lowe for hours, worried and wounded. Later that night in my rooms, I sweat and cursed and crumpled my way through twenty sheets of paper before I arrived at three brief, half-tolerable paragraphs which I gave to the mayor to do with as he wished. The third day my heart sat like a stone in my chest. I tried to finish the song I'd been writing for the mayor, but nothing worthwhile came of my efforts. For the first hour the notes I played were leaden and lifeless. The second hour they grew discordant and faltering. I pressed on until every sound my lute made grated like a knife against teeth. I finally let my poor, tortured lute fall silent, remembering something my father had said long ago. Songs choose their hour and their own season. When your tune's tin, there is a reason. The tone of a tune is your heart's metal, and there's no clear water from a muddy well. All you can do is let the silt settle, or you'll sound sour as a broken bell. I lowered my loot into its case, knowing the truth of it. I needed a few days before I could productively return to courting Meloin on the mayor's behalf. The work was too delicate to force or fake. On the other hand, I knew the mayor would not be pleased with a delay. I needed a diversion, and since the mayor was too clever by half, it needed to be at least halfway legitimate. I heard the telltale sigh of air that signaled the mayor's secret passage opening in my dressing room. I made sure I was pacing anxiously by the time he came through the doorway. Alvaron had continued to put on weight in the last two span, and his face was no longer hollow and drawn. He cut quite a figure in his finery, a creamy ivory shirt and stiff jacket of deep sapphire blue. "'I got your message,' he said brusquely. "'Have you finished the song, then?' I turned to face him. No, your grace. Something more important than the song has come to my attention. As far as you are concerned, there is nothing more important than the song, the mayor said firmly, tugging the cuff of his shirt to straighten it. I've heard from several people that Meloin was greatly pleased with the first two. You should focus the whole of your efforts in that direction. Your grace, I'm well aware that— Out with it, Alvaron said impatiently, 
glancing at the face of the tall gear clock that stood in the corner of the room. I have appointments to keep. Your life is in further danger from Codicus. I'll give this to the mayor. He could have made his living on the stage. The only break in his composure was a brief hesitation as he tugged his other cuff into place. And how is that? he asked, apparently unconcerned. There are ways for him to harm you other than poison, things that can be done from a distance. A spell, you mean? Alvaron said. He means to conjure up ascending and set it to be devil me? Telu, anyway, spells and sendings. It was easy to forget this intelligent, subtle, and otherwise educated man was little better than a child when it came to arcane matters. He probably believed in fairies and the walking dead. Poor fool. However, attempting to re-educate him would be tiresome and counterproductive. There is a chance of that, Your Grace, as well as other more direct threats. He dropped some of his unconcerned poise and looked me in the eye. What could be more direct than ascending? The mayor was not the sort of man to be moved through words alone, so I picked up an apple from a bowl of fruit and polished it on my sleeve before handing it to him. Would you hold this for a moment, Your Grace? He took it suspiciously. What's this about, then? I walked over to where my lovely burgundy cloak hung on the wall and retrieved a needle from one of its many pockets. I'm showing you the sort of thing Codicus is capable of, Your Grace. I held out my hand for the apple. He gave it back, and I looked it over. Holding it at an angle to the light, I saw what I'd hoped for, smudged onto the glossy skin of the apple. I muttered a binding, focused my alar, and pushed the needle into the center of the blurry imprint his forefinger had made on the apple's skin. Alvaron twitched and made an inarticulate noise of surprise, staring at his hand as if it had been unexpectedly, say, pricked with a pin. I'd half expected him to rebuke me, but he did nothing of the sort. His eyes went wide, his face pale, and his expression grew thoughtful as he watched the bead of blood swell on the pad of his finger. He licked his lips and slowly put his finger into his mouth. I see, he said quietly. Such things can be guarded against? It wasn't really a question. I nodded, keeping my expression grave. Somewhat, Your Grace. I believe I can create a... a charm to protect you. I only regret I didn't think of this sooner, but with one thing and another... Yes, yes, the mayor waved me into silence. And what will you require for such a charm? It was a layered question. On the surface, he was asking what materials I would need. But the mayor was a practical man. He was asking me my price as well. The workshop in Codicus's tower should have the equipment I need, Your Grace. What materials he doesn't have on hand, I should be able to find in Severin, given time. Then I paused, considering the second portion of his question thinking of the hundred things the mayor could grant me. Money enough to swim in. A newly crafted loot of the sort only kings could afford. I felt a shock run through me at the thought. An Antresser loot. I'd never even seen one, but my father had. He'd played one once in Annalyn, and sometimes, when he'd had a cup of wine, he would talk about it, 
his hands making gentle shapes in the air. The mayor could arrange this sort of thing in the blink of an eye. All that and more, of course. Alvaron could arrange access to a hundred private libraries. A formal patronage would be no small thing either coming from him. The mayor's name would open doors as quickly as the king's. There are a few things, I said slowly, that I have been hoping to discuss with your grace. I have a project I need assistance to pursue properly, and I have a friend, a talented musician, who could use a well-placed patron. I trailed off meaningfully. Alvaron nodded, his gray eyes showing he understood. The mayor was no fool. He knew the cost of a loaf. I'll have Stapes get you the keys to Coracus's tower, he said. How long will this charm take to produce? I paused as if considering. At least four days, your grace. That would give me time for the muddy waters of my creative well to clear, or time for Denna to return from whatever errand had pulled her suddenly away. If I was sure of his equipment, it could be sooner, but I will have to move carefully. I don't know what Cauticus might have done to foul things before he fled. Alvaron frowned at this. Will you be able to continue your current projects as well? No, Your Grace. It will be rather exhausting and time-consuming, especially since I'm assuming you'd prefer I be circumspect while gathering my materials in Severin Low. Yes, of course. He exhaled hard through his nose. Damn and bother! Things were going so well. Who can I bring in to write letters while you're occupied? He said the last musingly, mostly to himself. I needed to nip that thought in the bud. I did not want to share credit for Malowin's courtship with anyone. I don't think that will be necessary, Your Grace. Seven or eight days ago, perhaps, but now, as you say, we have her interest. She's excited, eager for the next contact. If a few days pass with nothing from us, she will be disappointed, but more importantly, she will be anxious for the return of your attention. The mayor smoothed his beard with one hand, his expression pensive. I considered making a comparison to playing a fish on a line, but I doubted the mayor had ever engaged in anything so rustic as fishing. Not to presume, Your Grace, but in your younger days, did you ever attempt to win the affection of a young lady? Alvaron smiled at my careful phrasing. You may presume. Which did you find more interesting? The ones who leapt to your arms straight away, or those who were more difficult, reluctant, even indifferent to your pursuit? The mayor's eyes were far away with remembering. The same is true of women. Some cannot bear it when a man clings to them, and they all appreciate space to make their own choices. It's hard to long for something that is always there. Alvaron nodded. There is some truth in that. Absence feeds affection. He nodded more firmly. Very well. Three days. He glanced at the gear clock again. And now I must be one final thing, Your Grace, I said quickly. The charm I will make must be tuned specifically to you. It will require some of your cooperation. I cleared my throat. More precisely, some of your... I cleared my throat. Substance. Speak plainly. A small amount of blood, saliva, skin, hair, and urine. 
I sighed internally, knowing that to someone of the superstitious Vintic mindset, this would sound like a recipe for ascending or some other equally ridiculous thing. As I'd expected, the mayor's eyes narrowed at the list. While I am no expert, he said slowly, those seem to be the very things I should avoid parting with. How can I trust you? I could have protested my loyalty, pointed out my past service, or brought to his attention that I'd already saved his life, but over the last month I'd come to know how the mayor's mind worked. I gave him my best knowing smile. You are an intelligent man, Your Grace. I'm sure you know the answer without my telling you. He returned my smile. Humor me, then. I shrugged. You're of no use to me if you're dead, Your Grace. His gray eyes searched mine for a moment, then nodded, satisfied. Very true. Send a message when you need those things. He turned to leave. Three days. Chapter 69 Such Madness I made several trips to Severin Lowe to gather materials for Alvaron's gram. Raw gold, nickel and iron, coal and etching acids. I acquired the money for these purchases by selling off various pieces of equipment from Codicus's workshop. I could have asked the mayor for money, but I'd rather he thought of me as independently resourceful rather than an ongoing financial drain. Quite by coincidence, in the course of this buying and selling, I visited many of the places Denna and I had spent time together. I'd grown so accustomed to finding her that now I caught glimpses of her when she wasn't there. Every day my hopeful heart rose at the sight of her turning a corner, stepping into a cobbler's, raising her hand to wave from across a courtyard. But it was never truly her, and I returned to the mayor's estate each evening more desolate than the day before. Making things worse was the fact that Braden had left Severin several days ago to visit some nearby relatives. I didn't realize how much I'd come to depend on him until he was gone. As I've already said, a gram is not particularly difficult to make if you have the proper equipment, a schema, and an alar like a blade of Ramston steel. The metalworking tools in Codicus's tower were serviceable, though nowhere near as nice as those in the fishery. The schema was no difficulty either, as I have a good memory for such things. While I was working on the mayor's gram, I started a second one to replace the one I'd lost. Unfortunately, given the relatively crude nature of the equipment I was working with, I didn't have time to finish it properly. I finished the mayor's gram three days after talking to the mayor, six days after Denna's sudden disappearance. The following day, I abandoned my pointless searching and planted myself in one of the open-air cafes where I drank coffee and tried to find inspiration for the song I owed the mayor. Ten hours I spent there, and the only act of creation I accomplished was to magically transform nearly a gallon of coffee into marvelous aromatic piss. That night, I drank an unwise amount of scutton and fell asleep at my writing desk. Meloin's song was still unfinished. The mayor was less than pleased. Denna reappeared on the seventh day as I wandered our haunts in Severin Low. Despite all my searching, she saw me first and ran laughing to my side, excited to tell me about a song she'd heard the day before. 
We spent the day together as easily as if she'd never left. I didn't ask her about her unexplained disappearance. I'd known Denna for more than a year now, and I understood a few of the hidden turnings of her heart. I knew she valued her privacy. I knew she had secrets. That night, we were in a small garden that ran along the very edge of the shear. We sat on a wooden bench looking out over the dark city below, a messy splay of lamplight, streetlight, gaslight, with a few rare sharp points of sympathy light scattered throughout. I am sorry, you know, she said softly. We'd been sitting, quietly watching the lights of the city for nearly a quarter hour. If she was continuing some previous conversation, I couldn't remember what it was. Beg pardon? When Denna didn't say anything immediately, I turned to look at her. There was no moon, and the night was dark. Her face was dimly illuminated by the thousand lights below. Sometimes I leave, she said at last, quick and quiet in the night. Denna didn't look at me as she spoke, keeping her dark eyes fixed on the city below. It's what I do, she continued, her voice quiet. I leave. No word or warning first. No explanation after. Sometimes it's the only thing that I can do. She turned to meet my eyes then, her face serious in the dim light. I hope you know without my telling you, she said. I hope I don't need to say it. Denna turned back to look at the glimmering lights below. But for what it's worth, I am sorry. We sat for a while then, enjoying a comfortable silence. I wanted to say something. I wanted to say it didn't bother me, but that would be a lie. I wanted to tell her all that really mattered to me was that she came back, but I was worried that might be too much truth. So rather than risk saying the wrong thing, I said nothing. I knew what happened to the men who clung to her too tightly. That was the difference between me and the others. I did not clutch at her, try to own her. I did not slip my arm around her, murmur in her ear, or kiss her unsuspecting cheek. Certainly I thought of it. I still remembered the warmth of her when she had thrown her arms around me near the horse lift. There were times I would have given my right hand to hold her again. But then I thought of the faces of the other men when they realized Denna was leaving them. I thought of all the others who had tried to tie her to the ground and failed. So I resisted showing her the songs and poems I had written, knowing that too much truth can ruin a thing. And if that meant she wasn't entirely mine, what of it? I would be the one she could always return to without fear of recrimination or question. So I did not try to win her and contented myself with playing a beautiful game. But there was always a part of me that hoped for more, and so there was a part of me that was always a fool. Days passed, and Denna and I explored the streets of Severin. We lounged in cafes, attended plays, went riding. We climbed the face of the shear using the low road just to say we'd done it. We visited the dock markets, a traveling menagerie, and several curiosity cabinets. Some days we did nothing but sit and talk, and on those days, nothing filled our conversations as much as music. We spent countless hours discussing the craft of it, how songs fit together, how chorus and verse play against each other, about tone and mode and meter. These were things I'd learned at an early age and thought about often. And though Denna was new to this study, 
In some ways, that worked to her advantage. I'd learned about music since before I could talk. I knew ten thousand rules of melody and verse better than I knew the backs of my own hands. Denna didn't. In some ways, this hampered her, but in other ways, it made her music strange and marvelous. I'm doing a poor job of explaining this. Think of music as being a great snarl of a city like Tarbian. In the years I spent living there, I came to know its streets. Not just the main streets, not just the alleys. I knew shortcuts and rooftops and parts of the sewers. Because of this, I could move through the city like a rabbit in a bramble. I was quick and cunning and clever. Denna, on the other hand, had never been trained. She knew nothing of shortcuts. You'd think she'd be forced to wander the city, lost and helpless, trapped in a twisting maze of mortared stone. But instead, she simply walked through the walls. She didn't know any better. Nobody had ever told her she couldn't. Because of this, she moved through the city like some fairy creature. She walked roads no one else could see, and it made her music wild and strange and free. In the end, it took twenty-three letters, six songs, and though it shames me to say it, one poem. There was more to it than that, of course. Letters alone cannot win a woman's heart. Alvaron did a fair piece of his own courting, and after he revealed himself as Meluin's anonymous suitor, he did the lion's share of the work, slowly wooing Meluin to his side with the gentle reverence he felt for her. But my letters caught her attention. My songs brought her close enough for Alvaron to work his slow, garrulous charm. Even so, I can take only a small piece of credit for the letters and songs. And as for the poem, there is only one thing in the world that could move me to such madness. Chapter 70 Clinging I met Denna outside her inn on Chalker's Lane, a little place called The Four Tapers. As I turned the corner and saw her standing in the light cast by a lantern hanging above the front door, I felt an upwelling of joy at the simple pleasure of being able to find her when I went looking. I got your note, I said. Imagine my delight. Denna smiled and made a one-handed curtsy. She was wearing a skirt, not a complicated dress of the sort a noblewoman would wear, but a simple sweep of fabric you could wear while bucking hay or going to a barn dance. I wasn't sure you would be able to make it, she said, it being past the hour most civilized folk have taken to their beds. I'll admit I was surprised, I said. If I was the sort of man to pry, I would wonder what kept you occupied until this most unseemly hour. Business, she said with a dramatic sigh. A meeting with my patron. He's in town again? I asked. She nodded. And he wanted to meet you at midnight? I asked. That's... odd. Dennis stepped out from under the inn sign, and we began to walk down the street together. The hand that holds the purse, she said, giving a helpless shrug. Odd times and inconvenient places are the rule with Master Ash. Some part of me suspects he might simply be some lonely noble bored with ordinary patronage. I wonder if it adds some spice for him, pretending he's meshed in some dark intrigue instead of just commissioning some songs from me. So what do you have planned for tonight? I asked. 
Only to pass time in your lovely company, Dennis said, reaching out and linking her arm with mine. In that case, I said, I have something to show you. It's a surprise. You'll have to trust me. I've heard each of those a dozen times. Denna's dark eyes glittered wickedly. But never altogether, and never from you. She smiled. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and save my world-weary jibes for later. Take me where you will. So we made our way to Severin High by way of the horse lifts, where we both gawked at the lights of the nighttime city below like the low-born Cretans we were. I took her on a long stroll through cobblestone streets, past shops and small gardens. Then we left the buildings behind, climbed over a low wooden fence, and moved toward the dark shape of an empty barn. At this, Denna was no longer able to keep quiet. Well, you've done it, she said. You've surprised me. I grinned at her and continued to lead the way into the dark of the barn. It was full of the smell of hay and absent animals. I led her to a ladder that disappeared into the dark above our heads. A hayloft? she demanded, her voice incredulous. She stopped walking and gave me an odd, curious look. You obviously have me mistaken for a fourteen-year-old farm girl named... Her mouth worked soundlessly for a moment. Something rustic. Greta? I suggested. Yes, she said. You obviously have me mistaken for a low-bodiced farm girl named Greta. Rest assured, I said, if I were going to try to seduce you, this isn't the way I would go about it. Is that so? She said, running her hand through her hair. Her fingers began to idly twine her hair into a braid. Then she stopped and brushed it out. In that case, what are we doing here? You mentioned how much you enjoyed gardens, I said, and Alvaron's gardens are particularly fine. I thought you might enjoy a turn about the place. In the middle of the night, Denna said. A charming moonlit stroll, I corrected. There's no moon tonight, she pointed out. Or if there is, it's barely a slender sliver. Be that as it may, I said, refusing to be daunted. How much moonlight does one actually need to enjoy the smell of gently blooming jasmine? In the hayloft, Dennis said, her voice thick with disbelief. The hayloft is the easiest way onto the roof, I said. Thence into the mayor's estates. Thence to the garden. If you're in the mayor's employ, she said, why not simply ask him to let you in? Ah, I said dramatically, holding up a finger. Therein lies the adventure. There are a hundred men who could simply take you strolling in the mayor's gardens, but there is only one who can sneak you in. I smiled at her. What I'm offering you, Denna, is a singular opportunity. She grinned at me. You know my secret heart so well. I extended my hand as if I were about to assist her into a carriage. Milady. Denna took my hand then stopped as soon as she put her foot onto the first rung of the ladder. Hold on. You aren't being genteel. You're trying to get a look up my dress. I gave her my best offended look, pressing my hand to my chest. Lady, as a gentleman, I assure you... She swatted at me. You've already told me you're not a gentleman, she said. You're a thief, and you're trying to steal a look. 
she stepped back and made a parody of my courtly gesture of a moment before. My lord. We made our way through the hayloft, onto the roof, and into the garden. The sharp sliver of moon above us was thin as a whisper, so pale that it did nothing to dim the light of the stars. The gardens were surprisingly quiet for such a warm and lovely night. Ordinarily, even at this late hour, couples would be strolling the paths or murmuring to each other on the bower benches. I wondered if some ball or courtly function had pulled them all away. The mayor's gardens were vast, with curving paths and cunningly placed hedges making them seem larger still. Denna and I walked side by side, listening to the sigh of the wind through the leaves. It was like we were the only people in the world. I don't know if you remember, I said softly, not wanting to intrude upon the silence. A conversation we had some time ago. We talked of flowers. I remember, she said just as softly. You said you thought all men had got their lessons in courting from the same worn book. Denna laughed quietly, more emotion than a sound. She put her hand to her mouth. Oh, I'd forgotten. I did say that, didn't I? I nodded. You said they all brought you roses. They still do, she said. I wish they would find a new book. You made me pick a flower that would suit you better, I said. She smiled up at me shyly. I remember. I was testing you. Then she frowned. But you got the better of me by picking one I'd never heard of, let alone seen. We turned a corner, and the path led down the dark green tunnel of an arching bower. I don't know if you've seen them yet, I said, but here is your cellus flower. There were only stars lighting our way, the moon so slender it was almost no moon at all. Under the trellis it was dark as Denna's hair. Our eyes were wide and stretching to the dark, and where the starlight slanted through the leaves, they showed hundreds of cellus blossoms yawning open in the night. If the scent of cellus were not so delicate, it would have been overpowering. Oh, Denna sighed, looking around with wide eyes. Under the bower, her skin was brighter than the moon. She reached out her hands to both sides. They're so soft. We walked in silence. All around us, cellus vines wove themselves around the trellis, clinging to the wood and wire, hiding their faces from the nighttime sky. When eventually we came out the other side, it seemed as bright as daylight. The silence stretched until I started to grow uncomfortable. So now you know your flower, I said. It seemed a shame you'd never seen one. They're rather difficult to cultivate from what I've heard. Perhaps they do suit me then, Denna said softly, looking down. I don't take root easily. We continued walking until the path turned and hid the bower behind us. You treat me better than I deserve, Dennis said at last. I laughed at the ridiculousness of that. Only respect for the silence of the garden kept it from rolling out of me in a great booming laugh. Instead, I stifled it as much as possible, though the effort threw me off my stride and made me stumble. Denna watched me from a step away, a smile spreading across her mouth. Eventually, I caught my breath. You who sang with me the night I won my pipes, 
you who have given me the finest gift I ever did receive. A thought occurred to me. Did you know, I said, that your loot case saved my life? The smile spread and grew wide as a flower. Did it now? It did, I said. I cannot ever hope to treat you as well as you deserve. Given what I owe you, this is but the smallest payment. Well, I think it is a lovely start. She looked up at the sky and drew a long, deep breath. I've always liked moonless nights best. It's easier to say things in the dark. It's easier to be yourself. She began walking again, and I fell into step beside her. We passed a fountain, a pool, a wall of pale jasmine open to the night. We crossed a small stone bridge that led us back among the shelter of the hedges. You could put your arm around me, you know, she said matter-of-factly. We are walking in the gardens alone, in the moonlight such as it is. Denna looked sideways at me, the side of her mouth quirking upward. Such things are permitted, you realize. Her sudden change in manner caught me off my guard. Since we had met in Severin, I had courted her with wild, hopeless pageantry, and she had matched me without missing a beat. Each flattery, each witticism, each piece of playful banter she returned to me, not in an echo, but a harmony. Our back and forth had been like a duet. But this was different. Her tone was less playful and more plain. It was so sudden a change that I was at a loss for words. Four days ago, I turned my foot on that loose flagstone, she said softly. Remember? We were walking on Mincet Lane. My foot slipped and you caught me almost before I knew that I was stumbling. It made me wonder how closely you must be watching me to see something like that. We turned a corner in the path and Dana continued to speak without looking up at me. Her voice was soft and musing, almost as if she were talking to herself. You had your hands on me then, sure as anything, steadying me. You almost had your arm around me. It would have been so easy for you then, a matter of inches. But when I got my feet beneath me, you took your hands away. No hesitation, no lingering, nothing I might take amiss. She started to turn her face to me, then stopped and looked down again. It's quite a thing, she said. There are so many men all endlessly attempting to sweep me off my feet. And there is one of you trying just the opposite, making sure my feet are firm beneath me lest I fall. Almost shyly, she reached out. When I move to take your arm, you accept it easily. You even lay your hand on mine as if to keep it there. She explained my movement exactly as I was making it, and I fought to keep the gesture from becoming suddenly awkward. But that's all. You never presume. You never push. Do you know how strange that is to me? We looked at each other for a moment, there, in the silent moonlight garden. I could feel the heat of her standing close to me, her hand clinging to my arm. Inexperienced as I was with women, even I could read this cue. I tried to think of what to say, but I could only wonder at her lips. How could they be so red as this? Even the cellars was dark in the faint moonlight. How were her lips so red? Then Denna froze. Not that we were moving much, 
but in a moment she went from motionless to still, cocking her head like a deer straining to catch a half-heard sound. Someone's coming, she said. Come on! Clinging to my arm, she pulled me off the path, over a stone bench, and through a low, narrow gap in the hedges. We finally came to rest in the center of some thick bushes. There was a convenient hollow where we both had room to crouch. Thanks to the work of the gardeners, there was no undergrowth to speak of, no dry leaves or twigs to crackle or snap under our hands and knees. In fact, the grass in this sheltered place was thick and soft as any lawn. There are a thousand girls who would walk with you along the moonlit garden paths, Dennis said breathlessly, but there's only one who will hide in the shrubbery with you. She grinned at me, her voice bubbling with amusement. Denna peered out of the hedge toward the path, and I looked at her. Her hair fell like a curtain down the side of her head, and the tip of her ear was peeking out through it. It was, at that moment, the most lovely thing that I had ever seen. Then I heard the faint grit of footsteps on the path. The soft sound of voices came sifting through the hedge, a man and a woman. After a moment, they came walking around the corner arm in arm. I recognized them immediately. I turned and leaned close, breathing softly into Denna's ear. That's the mayor, I said, and his young lady love. Denna shivered, and I shrugged out of my burgundy cloak, draping it over her shoulders. I peered back out at the two of them. As I watched, Maloin laughed at something he said and rested her hand atop his on her arm. I doubted he'd have much more need of my services if they were already on such familiar terms as that. Not for you, my dear, I heard the mayor say clearly as they passed near us. You shall have nothing but roses. Denna turned to look at me, her eyes wide. She pressed both her hands against her mouth to stifle her laughter. In another moment, they were past us, strolling slowly along, walking in step. Denna removed her hands and took several deep, shuddering breaths. He has a copy of the same worn book, she said, her eyes dancing. I couldn't help but smile. Apparently. So that's the mayor, she said quietly, her dark eyes peering between the leaves. He's shorter than I imagined. Would you like to meet him? I asked. I could introduce you. Oh, that would be lovely, she said with a gentle edge of mockery. She chuckled, but when I didn't join her laughter, she looked up at me and stopped. You're serious? She cocked her head to one side, her expression trapped between amusement and confusion. We probably shouldn't burst out of the hedge at him, I admitted, but we could come out on the other side and loop around to meet him. I gestured with my hand at the route we could take. I'm not saying he'll invite us to dinner or anything, but we can make a polite nod as we pass him on the path. Denna continued to stare at me, her eyebrows furrowing in the faint beginning of a frown. You're serious, she repeated. What do you... I stopped as I realized what her expression meant. You thought I was lying about working for the mayor, I said. You thought I was lying about being able to invite you in here. Men tell stories, she said dismissively. They like to brag a bit. I didn't think any less of you for telling me a bit of a tall tale. I wouldn't lie to you, I said, then reconsidered. No, that's not the truth. I would. 
You're worth lying for. But I wasn't. You're worth telling the truth for, too. Denna gave me a fond smile. That's harder to come by anyway. So would you like to? I asked. Meet him, I mean. She looked out of the hedge toward the path. No. When she shook her head, her hair moved like drifting shadows. I believe you. There's no need. She looked down. Besides, I've got grass stains on my dress. What would he think? I've got leaves in my hair, I admitted. I know exactly what he would think. We stepped out from the hedge. I picked the leaves out of my hair, and Denna brushed her hands down the front of her skirt, wincing a bit as she moved over the grass stains. We made our way back onto the path and started walking again. I thought of putting my arm around her, but didn't. I was no good judge of these things, but it seemed the moment had passed. Denna looked up as we passed a statue of a woman picking a flower. She sighed. It was more exciting when I didn't know I had permission, she admitted with a little regret in her voice. It always is, I agreed. Chapter 71 Interlude The Thrice-Locked Chest Quoth raised his hand, motioning Chronicler to stop. The scribe wiped the nib of his pen on a nearby cloth and rolled his shoulders stiffly. Wordlessly, Quoth brought out a worn deck of cards and began to deal them around the table. Bast picked up his cards and looked them over curiously. Chronicler frowned. What? Footsteps sounded on the wooden landing outside, and the door to the Waystone Inn opened, revealing a bald, thick-bodied man wearing an embroidered jacket. Mayor Land, the innkeeper said, putting down his cards and getting to his feet. What can I do for you? A drink? A bite to eat? A glass of wine would be quite welcome, the mayor said as he moved into the room. Do you have any red Grimsby in? The innkeeper shook his head. I'm afraid not, he said. The roads, you know, it's hard to keep things in stock. The mayor nodded. I'll take anything red then, he said. But I won't pay more than a penny for it, mind you. Of course not, sir, the innkeeper said solicitously, wringing his hands a bit. Anything to eat? No, the bald man said. I'm actually here to make use of the scribe. I thought I'd wait until things quieted down a bit so we could have some privacy. He looked around the empty room. I don't imagine you'd mind my borrowing the place for half an hour, would you? Not at all, the innkeeper smiled ingratiatingly. He made a shooing motion to Bast. But I had a full board! Bast protested, waving his cards. The innkeeper frowned at his assistant, then headed back into the kitchen. The mayor removed his jacket and laid it across the back of a chair while Bast gathered up the rest of the cards, grumbling. The innkeeper brought out a glass of red wine, then locked the front door with a large brass key. I'll take the boy upstairs with me, he said to the mayor, to give you some privacy. That's exceedingly kind of you the mayor said as he sat across from Chronicler. I'll give a shout when I'm finished. The innkeeper nodded and herded Bast out of the common room and up the stairs. Quoth opened the door to his room and gestured Bast inside. I wonder what old Lant wants to keep secret, Quoth said as soon as the door was closed behind them. I hope he's not too long about it.
He's got two children by the widow Creel, Bast said matter-of-factly. Quoth raised an eyebrow at that. Really? Bast shrugged. Everyone in town knows. Quoth humphed at this as he settled down into a large upholstered chair. What are we going to do with ourselves for half an hour? he asked. It's been ages since we've had lessons. Bast pulled a wooden chair away from the small desk and sat on the edge of it. You could teach me something. Lessons, Quoth mused. You could read Selim Tincture. Reshi, Bast said imploringly. It's so boring. I don't mind lessons, but do they need to be book lessons? Bast's tone wrung a smile from Quoth. A puzzle lesson, then? Bast's face broke into a grin. Very well. Let me think for a second. He tapped his fingers against his lips and let his eyes wander the room. It wasn't long before they were drawn to the foot of the bed where the dark chest lay. He made a casual gesture. How would you open my chest if you had a mind to? Bast's expression grew slightly apprehensive. Your thrice-locked chest, Reshi? Quoth looked at his student, then laughter bubbled up out of him. My what? he asked incredulously. Bast blushed and looked down. That's just how I think of it, he mumbled. As names go, Quoth hesitated, a smile playing around his mouth. Well, it's a little storybook, don't you think? You're the one who made the thing, Reshi, Bast said sullenly. Three locks and fancy wood and all that? It's not my fault it sounds storybook. Quoth leaned forward and rested an apologetic hand on Bast's knee. It's a fine name, Bast. Just caught me off my guard is all. He leaned back again. So, how would you attempt to plunder the thrice-locked chest of Quoth the Bloodless? Bast smiled. You sound like a pirate when you say it that way, Reshi. He gave the chest a speculative look from across the room. I suppose asking you for the keys is out of the question? He asked at last. Correct, Quoth said. For our purposes, assume I have lost the keys. Better yet, assume I am dead and you are now free to pry into all my secret things. That's a little grim, Reshi. Bast reproached gently. Life is a little grim, Bast, Quoth said without any hint of laughter in his voice. You'd best start getting used to it. He waved a hand toward the chest. Go on, I'm curious to see how you go about cracking this little chestnut. Bast gave him a flat look. Puns are worse than book lessons, Reshi, he said, walking over to the chest. He nudged it idly with his foot, then bent and looked at the two separate lock plates, one dark iron, the other bright copper. Bast prodded the rounded lid with a finger, wrinkling his nose. I can't say as I care for this wood, Reshi, and the iron lock is positively unfair. What a useful lesson this has already been, Quoth said dryly. You've deduced a universal truth. Things are usually unfair. There aren't any hinges either! Bast exclaimed, looking at the back of the chest. How can you have a lid without any hinges? That did take me a while to work out, Quoth admitted with a touch of pride. 
Bast got down on his hands and knees and looked into the copper keyhole. He lifted one hand and pressed it flat against the copper plate. Then he closed his eyes and went very still, as if he were listening. After a moment of this, he leaned forward and breathed against the lock. When nothing happened, his mouth began to move. While his words were spoken too softly to hear, they carried an undeniable tone of entreaty. After a long moment of this, Bast sat back on his haunches, frowning. Then he grinned playfully, reaching out with a hand, and knocked on the lid of the chest. It made barely any noise at all, as if he were wrapping his knuckle against a stone. Out of curiosity, Quoth asked, What would you do if something knocked back? Bast came to his feet, left the room, and returned a moment later with an assortment of tools. He got to one knee and, using a piece of bent wire, fiddled with the copper lock for several long minutes. Eventually, he began to curse under his breath. When he shifted position to get a different angle, his hand brushed the dull iron faceplate of the lock and he jerked back, hissing and spitting. Getting back to his feet, Bast threw down the wire and brought out a long pry bar of bright metal. He tried to work the thin end of it under the lid, but couldn't gain any purchase in the hair-thin seam. After a few minutes, he abandoned this as well. Next, Bast tried to tip the chest on its side to examine the bottom, but his best efforts only managed to slide it an inch or so across the floor. How much does this weigh, Reshi? Bast exclaimed, looking rather exasperated. Three hundred pounds? Over four hundred when it's empty, Quoth said. Remember the trouble we had getting it up the stairs? Sighing, Bast examined the chest for another long moment, his expression fierce. Then he extracted a hatchet from his bundle of tools. It wasn't the rough, wedge-headed hatchet they used to cut kindling behind the inn. It was slender and menacing, all forged of a single piece of metal. The shape of its blade was vaguely reminiscent of a leaf. He tossed the weapon lightly in his palm, as if testing its weight. This is where I would go next, Reshi, if I were genuinely interested in getting inside. He gave his teacher a curious look. But if you'd rather I not... Quoth made a helpless gesture. Don't look to me, Bast. I'm dead. Do as you will. Bast grinned and brought the hatchet down on the rounded peak of the chest. There was a strange, soft ringing noise, like a padded bell being struck in a distant room. Bast paused then rained a fury of angry blows down on top of the chest, first swinging wildly with one hand, then using both hands in great overhand chopping motions, as if he were splitting wood. The bright, leaf-shaped blade refused to bite into the wood, each blow turning aside as if Bast were attempting to chop apart a great, seamless block of stone. Eventually, Bast stopped, breathing hard, and bent to look at the top of the chest, running his hand over the surface before turning his attention to the hatchet's blade. He sighed. You do good work, Reshi. Quoth smiled and tipped an imaginary hat. Bast gave the chest a long look. I'd try to set fire to it, but I know Roa doesn't burn. I'd have better luck getting it hot enough so the copper lock would melt, but to do that I'd need to get the whole thing to sit face down in a forge fire. He looked at the chest, large as a gentleman's traveling trunk. But it would have to be a bigger forge than the one we have here in town, and I don't even know how hot copper needs to be in order to melt. Information such as that, Quilf said, 
would doubtless be the subject of a book lesson. And I expect you've taken precautions against that sort of thing. I have, Quoth admitted, but it was a good idea. It shows lateral thinking. An acid? Bast said. I know we have some potent stuff downstairs. Formic is useless against Roa, Quoth said. As is the muratic. You might have some luck with Aqua Regis, but the wood is quite thick, and we don't have much on hand. I wasn't thinking of the wood, Reshi. I was thinking of the locks again. With enough acid, I could eat clean through them. You're assuming they are copper and iron all the way through, Quoth said. Even if they were, it would take a great deal of acid, and you would have to worry about the acid itself spilling into the chest, ruining whatever's inside. The same is true with the fire, of course. Bast looked at the chest for another long moment, stroking his lips thoughtfully. That's all I have, Reshi. I need to think on it some more. Quoth nodded. Looking somewhat disheartened, Bast gathered up his tools and carried them away. When he returned, he pushed the chest from the other side, sliding it back a fraction of an inch until it was square with the foot of the bed again. It was a good attempt, Bast, Quoth reassured him. Very methodical. You went about it just as I would have. Hello? The mayor's voice came hollowly up from the room below. I'm finished! Bast hopped up and hurried to the door, pushing his chair back under the desk. The sudden motion disturbed one of the crumpled sheets of paper resting there, causing it to tumble to the floor where it bounced and rolled beneath the chair. Bast paused, then bent to pick it up. No, Quoth said grimly. Leave it. Bass stopped with his hand outstretched, then stood and left the room. Quoth followed, closing the door behind them. Chapter 72 Horses Several days after Denna and I had our moonlit stroll in the garden, I finished a song for Meloin called Nothing But Roses. The mayor specifically requested it, and I had leapt to the project with a will, knowing that Denna would laugh herself sick when I played it for her. I slid the mayor's song into an envelope and looked at the clock. I'd thought I'd be busy the entire night finishing it, but it had come with surprising ease. Consequently, I had the rest of the evening free. It was late, but not terribly late. Not late for kindling night in a lively city like Severin. Perhaps not too late to find Denna. I threw on a set of fresh clothes and hurried out of the estates. Since the money in my purse came from selling pieces of Cauticus's equipment and playing cards with nobles who knew more about fashion than statistics, I paid the full bit for the horse lifts, then jogged the half-mile to Newell Street. I slowed to a walk for the last several blocks. Enthusiasm is flattering, but I didn't want to arrive at Denna's Inn panting and sweating like a lathered horse. I wasn't surprised when I didn't find her at the Four Tapers. Denna wasn't the sort to sit and twiddle her thumbs just because I was busy, but the two of us had spent the better part of a month exploring the city together, and I had a few good guesses as to where I might find her. Five minutes later, I spotted her. She was moving through the crowded street with a definite purpose, walking as if she had somewhere important to be. I started to make my way toward her, then hesitated. Where would she be going so purposefully, alone, so late at night? She was going to meet her patron. I wish I could say I agonized before I decided to follow her, but I really didn't. 
The temptation of finally learning the identity of her patron was simply too strong. So I put up the hood of my cloak and began to ghost through the crowd behind Denna. It's remarkably easy if you have a little practice. I used to make a game of it in Tarbian, seeing how far I could follow someone without being seen. It helped that Denna wasn't a fool and stayed in the good parts of the city where the streets were busy, and in the dim light my cloak looked a nondescript black. I followed her for half an hour. We passed cart vendors selling chestnuts and greasy meat pies. Guards mingled with the crowd, and the streets were bright with scattered streetlights and lanterns hung outside the doors of inns. An occasional out-at-the-heels musician played with his hat in front of him, and once we passed a troop of mummers acting out a play in a small cobblestone square. Then Denna turned and left the better streets behind. Soon there were fewer lights and tipsy revelers. The musicians gave way to beggars who called out or clutched at your clothes as you walked by. Lamplight still poured through the windows of nearby pubs and inns, but the street was no longer bustling. People clustered in twos or threes, women wearing corsets and men with hard eyes. These streets weren't dangerous, strictly speaking, or rather, they were dangerous in a broken glass sort of way. Broken glass won't go out of its way to hurt you. You can even touch it if you're careful. Some streets are dangerous as frothing dogs, where no amount of care will keep you safe. I was beginning to get nervous when I saw Dennis stop suddenly at the mouth of a shadowed alley. She craned her neck for a moment, as if listening to something. Then, after peering into the dark, she darted inside. Was this where she was meeting her patron? Was she taking a shortcut to a different street? Or was she simply following her paranoid patron's instructions to make sure no one followed her? I began to curse under my breath. If I followed her into the alley and she saw me, it would be obvious I'd been trailing her. But if I didn't follow her, I'd lose her. And while this wasn't a truly dangerous part of the city, I didn't want to leave her walking alone so late at night. So I scanned the nearby buildings and spotted one fronted with crumbling fieldstone. After a quick glance around, I climbed the face of it quick as a squirrel, another useful skill from my misspent youth. Once I was on the roof, it was a simple matter to run over the tops of several other buildings, then slink into the shadow of a chimney before peering down into the alley. There was a sliver of moon overhead, and I expected to see Denna striding quickly along her shortcut, or having a hushed and hidden meeting with her dodgy patron. But what I saw was nothing of the sort. Dim lamplight from an upstairs window showed a woman splayed out motionless on the ground. My heart thudded hard for several beats until I realized it wasn't Denna. Denna was dressed in shirt and pants. This woman's white dress was crumpled around her, her bare legs pale against the dark stone of the street. My eyes darted around until I saw Denna outside the window's light. She stood close to a broad-shouldered man with moonlight shining on his bald head. Was she embracing him? Was this her patron? Finally, my eyes adjusted enough that I could see the truth. The two were standing very close and still, but she wasn't holding him. She had one hand hard against his neck, and I saw white moonlight glitter on metal there like a distant star. The woman on the ground started to stir, and Denna called out to her. The woman climbed unsteadily to her feet, staggering a bit as she stepped on her own dress, then edged slowly past them, keeping close to the wall as she made her way to the mouth of the alley. Once the woman was behind her, Denna said something else. 
I was too far away to make out any of the words, but her voice was hard and angry enough to raise the hair on the back of my arms. Denna stepped away from the man, and he backed away, one hand going to the side of his throat. He began to curse her viciously, spitting and making grasping motions with his free hand. His voice was louder than hers, but slurred enough that I couldn't make out much of what he said, though I did identify the word whore several times. But for all his talk, he didn't come anywhere close to within arm's reach of her. Denna simply stood facing him, her feet set squarely on the ground. She held the knife low in front of her, tilted at an angle. Her posture was almost casual. Almost. After cursing for a minute or so, the man took half a shuffling step forward, shaking a fist. Denna said something and made a short, sharp gesture with the knife towards the man's groin. Silence filled the alley, and the man's shoulders shifted a bit. Denna made the gesture again, and the man began to curse more softly, turning away and walking down the alley, his hand still pressed to the side of his neck. Denna watched him go, then relaxed and slid the knife carefully into her pocket. She turned and walked to the mouth of the alleyway. I scurried to the front of the building. On the street below, I saw Denna and the other woman standing under a street lamp. In the better light, I saw the woman was much younger than I'd thought, just a slip of a girl, her shoulders heaving with sobs. Denna rubbed her back in small circles, and the girl slowly calmed down. After a moment, they began walking down the street. I hurried back to the alley where I had spotted an old iron drain pipe, a relatively easy way to get back down onto the street, but even so, it cost me two long minutes and most of the skin off my knuckles to get cobblestones back under my feet. Only through a pure effort of will did I keep myself from running out of the alley to catch up with Denna and the girl. The last thing I wanted was for Denna to discover I'd been following her. Luckily, they weren't moving very fast, and I caught sight of them easily. Denna led the girl back to the nicer part of the city, then took her into a respectable-looking inn with a painted rooster on the sign. I stood outside for a minute, peering at the layout of the inn through one of the windows. Then I settled my hood more firmly over my face, walked casually around the back portion of the inn, and slid into a seat on the other side of a dividing wall, just around the corner from Denna and the young girl. If I'd wanted to, I could have leaned forward to peer at their table, but, as it was, neither one of us could see the other. The taproom was mostly empty, and a serving girl came up to me almost as soon as I took my seat. She eyed the rich fabric of my cloak and smiled. What can I get you? I eyed the impressive array of polished glass behind the bar. I motioned the serving girl closer and spoke softly with a rasp in my throat, as if I were recovering from the croup cough. I'll take a tumble of your best whiskey. I said, and a glass of fine Valoran red. She nodded and left. I turned my finely tuned eavesdropper's ears to the next table. Your accent, I heard Denna say. Where are you from? There was a pause and a murmur as the girl spoke. Since she was facing away from me, I couldn't hear what she said. That's in the Western Feral, isn't it? Denna asked. You're a long way from home. There was a murmuring from the girl, then a long pause where I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't tell if she'd stopped talking or if she was speaking too quietly for me to hear. I fought the urge to lean forward and peer at their table. Then the murmuring came back, very soft. I know he said he loved you, 
Denna said, her voice gentle. They all say that. The serving girl set a tall wine glass in front of me and handed me my tumble. Two bits. Merciful Taylor. With prices like that, no wonder the place was nearly empty. I tossed back the whiskey in a single swallow, fighting the urge to cough as it burned down my throat. Then I drew a full silver round out of my purse, set the heavy coin on the table, and put the empty tumble down over the top of it. I motioned the serving girl close again. I have a proposal for you, I said quietly. Right now, I want nothing more than to sit here quietly, drink my wine, and think my thoughts. I tapped the overturned tumble with the coin underneath. If I am allowed to do this without interruption, all of this, less the cost of my drinks, is yours. Her eyes went a little wide at that, darting down to the coin again. But if anyone comes over to bother me, even in a helpful way, even to ask if I would like anything to drink, I will simply pay and leave. I looked up at her. Can you help me get a little privacy tonight? She nodded eagerly. Thank you, I said. She hurried away and went immediately to another woman standing behind the bar, making a few gestures in my direction. I relaxed a bit, reasonably certain they wouldn't be drawing any attention to me. I sipped my wine and listened. Does your father do? Denna asked. I recognized the pitch of her voice. It was the same low, gentle tone my father had used when talking to skittish animals, a tone designed to calm someone and set them at their ease. The girl murmured, and Denna responded, That's a fine job. What are you doing here, then? Another murmur. Got handsy, did he? Denna said matter-of-factly. Well, that's the nature of eldest sons. The girl spoke up again, this time with some fire in her voice, though I still couldn't make out any of the words. I buffed the surface of my wine glass a little with the edge of my cloak, then tipped it out and away from me a bit. The wine was so deep a red that it was almost black. It made the side of the glass act like a mirror. Not a wonderful mirror, but I could see tiny shapes at the table around the corner. I heard Dennis sigh, cutting off the low murmur of the girl's voice. Let me guess, Dennis said, sounding exasperated. You stole the silver, or something similar, then ran off to the city. The small reflection of the girl just sat there. But it wasn't like you thought it would be, was it? Dennis said more gently this time. I could see the girl's shoulders begin to shake and heard a series of faint, heartbreaking sobs. I looked away from the wine glass and set it back on the table. Here. There was a the sound of a glass being knocked onto the table. Drink that, Dennis said. It will help a bit. Not a lot, but a bit. The sobbing stopped. The girl gave a surprised cough, choking a little. You poor silly thing, Dennis said softly. Meeting you is worse than looking in a mirror. For the first time, the girl spoke loudly enough for me to hear her. I thought, if he's going to take me anyway and get it for free, I might as well go somewhere I can pick and choose and get paid for it. Her voice trailed off until I couldn't make out any words, leaving only the low rise and fall of her muffled voice. The Tenpenny King? Denna interrupted incredulously, her tone more venomous than anything I'd ever heard from her before. Kissed and Crail, I hate that goddamn play. 
Modegan fairy story trash. The world doesn't work like that. But, the girl began. Denna cut her off. There's no young prince out there, dressed in rags and waiting to save you. Even if there were, where would you be? You'd be like a dog he'd found in the gutter. He'd own you. After he took you home, who would save you from him? A piece of silence. The girl coughed again, but only a little. So what are we going to do with you? Denna said. The girl sniffed and said something. If you could take care of yourself, we wouldn't be sitting here, Denna said. A murmur. It's an option, Denna said. They'll take half of what you make, but that's better than getting nothing and having your throat slit on top of it. I'm guessing you figured that out yourself tonight. There was the sound of cloth on cloth. I tipped my wine glass to get a look, but all I saw was Denna making some indistinct motion. Let's see what we have here, she said. Then there came the familiar clatter of coins on a table. The girl made an awed murmur. No, I'm not, Denna said. It's not so much when it's all your money in the world. You should know by now how expensive it is to make your own way in the city. A murmur that rose at the end. A question. I heard Denna draw a breath, then let it out again slowly. Because someone helped me once when I needed it, she said. And because if you don't get some help, you'll be dead in a span of days. Take it from someone who's made her own share of bad decisions. There was the sound of coins sliding on the table. Okay, Denna said. First option, we get you apprenticed up. You're a little old and it will cost, but we could do it. Nothing fancy, weaving, cobbling. They'll work you hard, but you'd have your room and board, and you'd learn a trade. A questioning murmur. With your accent? Denna asked archly. Can you curl a lady's hair, paint her face, mend her dress, tat lace? A pause. No, you don't have the training to be a maidservant, and I wouldn't know who to bribe. The sound of coins being gathered together. Option two, Denna said. We get you a room until that bruise is gone. Coins sliding. Then buy you a seat on a coach back home. More coins. You've been gone a month. That's the perfect amount of time for some serious worry to set in. When you come home, they'll just be happy you're alive. Murmur. Tell them whatever you like, Dennis said. But if you've got half a brain in your head, you'll make it sensible. Nobody's going to believe you met some prince who sent you home. A murmur so soft, I could hardly hear it. Of course it will be hard, you silly little bint, Dennis said sharply. They'll hold it over your head for the rest of your life. Folk will whisper when you walk by on the street. It'll be hard to find a husband. You'll lose friends, but that's the price you'll have to pay if you want to have anything like your normal life back again. The coins clinked as they were gathered together again. Third option. If you're certain you want to make a go of whoring, we can arrange it so you don't end up dead in a ditch. You've got a nice face, but you'll need proper clothes. Coins sliding. And someone to teach you manners. More coins. And someone else to get rid of that accent of yours. Coins again. Murmur. Because it's the only sensible way to do it, Denna said flatly. Another murmur. Denna gave a tight, irritated sigh. Okay. Your father's stablemaster, right? Think about the different horses the Baron owns. Plow horses, carriage horses, hunting horses. Excited murmur.
Exactly, Dennis said. So if you had to pick, what sort of horse would you want to be? A plow horse works hard, but does it get the best stall, the best feed? Murmur. That's right. That goes to the fancy horses. They get petted and fed and only have to work when there's a parade or someone goes hunting. Denna continued. So if you're going to be a whore, you do it smart. You don't want to be some dockside drab, you want to be a duchess. You want men to court you, send you gifts. Murmur. Yes, gifts. If they pay, they'll feel like they own you. You saw how that turned out tonight. You can keep your accent and that low bodice and have sailors paw you for half-penny a throw. Or you can learn some manners, get your hair done, and start entertaining gentlemen callers. If you're interesting and pretty and you know how to listen, men will desire your company. They'll want to take you dancing as much as take you to bed. Then you have the control. Nobody makes a duchess pay for her room in advance. Nobody bends a duchess over a barrel in an alley, then kicks out her teeth once he's had his fun. Murmur. No, Dennis said, her voice grim. There was the sound of coins being clinked softly into a purse. Don't lie to yourself. Even the fanciest horse is still a horse. That means sooner or later you're going to get ridden. A questioning murmur. Then you leave, Dennis said. If they want more than you're willing to give, that's the only way. You leave quick and quiet in the night. But if you do, you'll burn your bridges. That's the price you pay. A hesitant murmur. I can't tell you that, Dennis said. You need to decide what you want for yourself. You want to go home? There's a price. You want control over your life? There's a price. You want the freedom to say no? There's a price. There's always a price. There was the sound of a chair being pushed away from a table, and I pressed myself back against the wall as I heard the two of them stand up. It's something everyone has to figure out on their own, Dennis said, her voice growing more distant. What do you want more than anything else? What do you want so badly you'll pay anything to get it? I sat for a long time after they left, trying to drink my wine. Chapter 73 Blood and Ink In the Theophany, Tecum writes of secrets, calling them painful treasures of the mind. He explains that what most people think of as secrets are really nothing of the sort. Mysteries, for example, are not secrets. Neither are little-known facts or forgotten truths. A secret, Tecum explains, is true knowledge actively concealed. Philosophers have quibbled over his definition for centuries. They point out the logical problems with it, the loopholes, the exceptions. But in all this time, none of them has managed to come up with a better definition. That perhaps tells us more than all the quibbling combined. In a later chapter, less argued over and less well known, Tecum explains there are two types of secrets. There are secrets of the mouth and secrets of the heart. Most secrets are secrets of the mouth, gossip shared, and small scandals whispered. These secrets long to be let loose upon the world. A secret of the mouth is like a stone in your boot. At first you're barely aware of it, then it grows irritating, then intolerable. Secrets of the mouth grow larger the longer you keep them, swelling until they press against your lips. They fight to be let free. 
Secrets of the heart are different. They are private and painful, and we want nothing more than to hide them from the world. They do not swell and press against the mouth. They live in the heart, and the longer they are kept, the heavier they become. Tekum claims it is better to have a mouthful of poison than a secret of the heart. Any fool will spit out poison, he says, but we hoard these painful treasures. We swallow hard against them every day, forcing them deep inside us. There they sit, growing heavier, festering. Given enough time, they cannot help but crush the heart that holds them. Modern philosophers scorn Tekum, but they are vultures picking at the bones of a giant. Quibble all you like, Tekum understood the shape of the world. The day after I'd followed Denna through the city, she sent me a note, and I met her outside the Four Tapers. We'd met there dozens of times in the last several span, but today something was different. Today, Denna wore a long, elegant dress, not layered and high-necked in the current fashion, but close-fitting and open at the throat. It was a deep blue, and when she took a step, I could glimpse a long stretch of her bare leg beneath. Her harp case leaned against the wall behind her, and she had an expectant look in her eye. Her dark hair was lustrous in the sunlight, unadorned except for three narrow braids tied with blue string. She was barefoot, and her feet were grass-stained. She smiled. It's done, she said, excitement thrumming through her voice like distant thunder. Done enough to play you a piece at any rate. Would you like to hear it? I caught a bit of well-hidden shyness in her voice. As we were both working for patrons who valued their privacy, Denna and I didn't often discuss our work. We compared our ink-stained fingers and bemoaned our difficulties, but only in vague ways. I'd like nothing better than to hear it, I said, as Denna picked up her harp case and started down the street. I fell into step beside her. But won't your patron mind? Denna gave a too casual shrug. He says he wants my first song to be something that men will sing for a hundred years, so I doubt he'll want me to keep it bottled up forever. She gave me a sideways look. We'll go somewhere private, and I'll let you hear. So long as you don't go shouting it from rooftops, I should be safe. We started walking to the western gate by unspoken agreement. I'd have brought my loot, I said, but I finally found a luthier I trust. I'm having that loose peg mended. You'll serve me best as an audience today, she said. Sit wrapped in admiration as I play. Tomorrow I'll watch you all dewy-eyed with wonder. I'll marvel at your skill and wit and charm. She moved her harp to her other shoulder and grinned at me. Provided you aren't having them mended at the shop. I'm always up for a duet, I suggested. Harp and lute is rare, but not unheard of. That's delicately phrased. She glanced sideways at me. I'll think on it. As I had a dozen times before, I fought the urge to tell her I'd reclaimed her ring from Ambrose. I wanted to tell her the story of it, mistakes and all, but I was fairly certain the romantic impact of my gesture would be diminished by the end of the story, where I'd effectively pawned the ring before I left Imre. Better to keep it a secret for now, I thought, and surprise her with the ring itself. So what would you think, I asked, of having Mayor Alvaron for your patron? Denna stopped walking and turned to look at me. What? 
I'm currently in his good graces, I said, and he owes me a favor, too. I know you've been looking for a patron. I have a patron, she said firmly, one I've earned on my own. You have half a patron, I protested. Where's your writ of patronage? Your master Ash might be able to give you some financial support, but the more important half of a patron is their name. It's like armor. It's like a key that opens. I know how a patronage works, Dennis said, cutting me off. Then you know yours is shortchanging you, I said. If the mayor had been your patron when things went wrong at that wedding, no one in that shabby little town would have dared to raise their voice to you, let alone their hand. Even from a thousand miles away, the mayor's name would have protected you. He would have kept you safe. A patron can offer more than a name and money, Dennis said with an edge to her voice. I'm fine without the shelter of a title, and honestly, I'd be irritated if some man wanted to dress me in his colors. My patron gives me other things. He knows things I need to know. She gave me an irritated look as she flicked her hair over her shoulder. I've told you all this before. I'm content with him for now. Why not have both? I suggested. The mayor in public and your master Ash in secret. Surely he couldn't object to that. Alvaron could probably even look into this other fellow for you. Make sure he's not trying to win you with false... Denna gave me a horrified look. No! God, no! She turned to me, her expression earnest. Promise me you won't try to find out anything about him. It could ruin everything. You're the only one I've told in all the wide world, but he'd be furious if he knew I'd mention him to anyone. I felt a bizarre glow of pride at this. If you'd really rather I not... Denna stopped walking and set her harp case down on the cobblestones where it made a hollow thump. Her expression was deadly serious. Promise me. I probably wouldn't have agreed if I hadn't spent half the previous night following her around the city with the hope of discovering this very thing. But I had. Then I'd eavesdropped on her, too. So today I was practically sweating with guilt. I promise, I said. When her anxious look didn't evaporate, I added, Don't you trust me? I'll swear it, if that will set your mind at ease. What would you swear it on? she asked, beginning to smile again. What's important enough that it will hold you to your word? My name and my power, I said. You are many things, she said dryly, but you are not Taberlin the Great. My good right hand, I suggested. Only one hand, she asked, playfulness creeping back into her tone. She reached out and took both of my hands in her own, turning them over and making a show of inspecting them closely. I like the left one better, she decided. Swear by that one. My good left hand? I asked dubiously. Fine, she said. The right. You're such a traditionalist. I swear I won't attempt to uncover your patron, I said bitterly. I swear it on my name and my power. I swear it by my good left hand. I swear it by the ever-moving moon. Denna peered at me closely, as if she wasn't sure if I was mocking her. Fine, she said with a shrug, picking up her harp. Consider me reassured. We started walking again, moving through the western gates and into the countryside. The silence between us stretched, starting to grow uncomfortable. Worried things would grow awkward, 
I said the first thing that came to mind. So, are there any new men in your life? Denna chuckled low in her throat. Now you sound like Master Ash. He's always asking after them. He doesn't think any of my suitors are good enough for me. I couldn't agree more, but decided it wouldn't be prudent to say so. And what does he think of me? What? she asked, confused. Oh, he doesn't know about you, she said. Why would he? I tried to give a nonchalant shrug, but I couldn't have been very convincing as she burst out laughing. Poor Quoth, I'm teasing you. I only tell him about the ones that come prowling around, panting and sniffing like dogs. You're not like them. You've always been different. I've always prided myself on my lack of panting and sniffing. Denna turned her shoulder and let her swinging harp bump me playfully. You know what I mean. They come and go with little gain or loss. You are the gold behind the wind-blown dross. Master Ash might think he has a right to know about my personal affairs, my comings and goings. She scowled a bit, but he doesn't. I'm willing to concede some of that. For now. She reached out and took hold of my upper arm possessively. But you are not part of the bargain, she said, her voice almost fierce. You are mine. Mine alone. I don't intend to share you. The momentary tension passed, and we walked the wide west road away from Severin, laughing and talking of small things. Half a mile past the city's last inn was a quiet patch of trees with a single tall gray stone nestled in its center. We had found it while searching for wild strawberries, and it had become one of our favorite places to escape the noise and stink of the city. Denna sat at the base of the gray stone and put her back against it. Then she brought her harp out of its case and pulled it close to her chest, causing her dress to gather and expose a scandalous amount of leg. She arched an eyebrow at me and smirked as if she knew exactly what I was thinking. Nice harp, I said casually. She snorted indelicately. I sat where I was, sprawling comfortably on the long, cool grass. I tugged a few strands of it out of the ground and idly began to twist them together into a braid. Honestly, I was nervous. While we had spent a great deal of time together over the last month, I'd never heard Denna play anything of her own creation. We had sung together, and I knew she had a voice like honey on warm bread. I knew her fingers were sure, and she had a musician's timing. But writing a song isn't the same as playing one. What if hers wasn't any good? What would I say? Denna spread her fingers to the strings, and my worries faded to the background. I've always found something powerfully erotic about the way a woman puts her hands to a harp. She began a rolling gliss down the strings from high to low. The sound of it was like hammers on bells, like water over stones, like bird's song through the air. She stopped and tuned a string, plucked, tuned. She struck a sharp chord, a hard chord, a lingering chord then turned to look at me, flexing her fingers nervously. Are you ready? You're incredible, I said. I saw her flush a little, then brush her hair back to hide her reaction. Fool, I haven't played you anything yet. You're incredible all the same. Hush. She struck a hard chord and let it fade into a quiet melody. 
As it rose and fell, she spoke the introduction to her song. I was surprised at such a traditional opening, surprised but pleased. Old ways are best. Gather round and listen well, for I've a tale of tragedy to tell. I sing of subtle shadow spread across a land and of the man who turned his hand toward a purpose few could bear. Fair Lanre, stripped of wife, of life, of pride, still never from his purpose swayed, who fought the tide and fell and was betrayed. At first, it was her voice that caught my breath. Then, it was the music. But before ten lines had passed her lips, I was stunned for different reasons. She sang the story of Mir Tarinial's fall, of Lanray's betrayal. It was the story I had heard from Scarpi in Tarbian. But Denna's version was different. In her song, Lanray was painted in tragic tones, a hero wrongly used. Salito's words were cruel and biting, mere terennial a warren that was better for the purifying fire. Lanray was no traitor, but a fallen hero. So much depends upon where you stop a story, and hers ended when Lanray was cursed by Salitos. It was the perfect ending for a tragedy. In her story, Lanray was wronged, misunderstood. Salitos was a tyrant, an insane monster who tore out his own eye in fury at Lanray's clever trickery. It was dreadfully, painfully wrong. Despite this, it had the first glimmers of beauty to it. The chords well chosen, the rhyme subtle and strong. The song was very fresh, and there were rough patches aplenty, but I could feel the shape of it. I saw what it could become. It would turn men's minds. They would sing it for a hundred years. You've probably heard it, in fact. Most folk have. She ended up calling it the Song of Seven Sorrows. Yes, Denna composed it, and I was the first person to hear it played entire. As the last notes faded in the air, Denna lowered her hands, unwilling to meet my eye. I sat, still and silent, on the grass. For this to make sense, you need to understand something every musician knows. Singing a new song is a nervous thing. More than that, it's terrifying. It's like undressing for the first time in front of a new lover. It's a delicate moment. I needed to say something. A compliment. A comment. A joke. A lie. Anything was better than silence. But I couldn't have been more stunned if she had written a hymn praising the Duke of Gibeah. The shock was simply too much for me. I felt raw as reused parchment, as if every note of her song had been another flick of a knife scraping until I was entirely blank and wordless. I looked down dumbly at my hands. They still held the half-formed circle of green grass I'd been weaving when the song began. It was a broad, flat plate already beginning to curve into the shape of a ring. Still looking down, I heard the rustle of Denna's skirts as she moved. I needed to say something. I'd already waited too long. There was too much silence in the air. The city's name wasn't Mirinitel, I said, without looking up. It was not the worst thing I could have said, but it wasn't the right thing to say. There was a pause. What? Not Mirinitel, I repeated. 
The city Lanray burned was mere Torinio. Sorry to tell you that. Changing a name is hard work. It will wreck the meter in a third of your verses. I was surprised at how quiet my voice was, how flat and dead it sounded in my own ears. I heard her draw a surprised breath. You've heard the story before? I looked up at Denna, her expression excited. I nodded, still feeling oddly blank, empty, hollow as a dried gourd. What made you pick this for a song? I asked her. It wasn't the right thing to say either. I can't help but feel that if I'd said the right thing at that moment, everything would have turned out differently. But even now, after years of thinking, I can't imagine what I could have said that might have made things right. Her excitement faded slightly. I found a version of it in an old book when I was doing genealogical research for my patron, she said. Hardly anyone remembers it, so it's perfect for a song. It's not like the world needs another story about Oren Velsiter. I'll never make my mark repeating what other musicians have already hashed over a hundred times before. Denna gave me a curious look. I thought I was going to be able to surprise you with something new. I never would have guessed you'd heard of Lanray. I heard it years ago, I said numbly, from an old storyteller in Tarbian. If I had half your luck, Denna shook her head in dismay. I had to piece it together out of a hundred little scraps. She made a conciliatory gesture. Me and my patron, I should say. He's helped. Your patron, I said. I felt a spark of emotion when she mentioned him. Hollow as I was, it was surprising how quickly the bitterness spread through my gut, as if someone had kindled a fire inside me. Denna nodded. He fancies himself a bit of a historian, she said. I think he's angling for a court appointment. He wouldn't be the first to ingratiate himself by shining a light on someone's long-lost heroic ancestor. Or maybe he's trying to invent a heroic ancestor for himself. That would explain the research we've been doing in old genealogies. She hesitated for a moment, biting her lips. The truth is, she said, as if confessing something, I half suspect the song is for Alvaron himself. Master Ash has implied he's had dealings with the mayor. She gave a mischievous grin. Who knows? Running in the circles you do, you might have already met my patron and not even known it. My mind flickered over the hundreds of nobles and courtiers I'd met in passing over the last month, but it was hard to focus on their faces. The fire in my gut was spreading until my whole chest was full of it. But enough of this, Denna said, waving her hands impatiently. She pushed her harp away and folded her legs to sit cross-legged on the grass. You're teasing me. What did you think of it? I looked down at my hands and idly fingered the flat braid of green grass I'd woven. It was smooth and cool between my fingers. I couldn't remember how I'd planned to join the ends together to form a ring. I know it's got some rough patches, I heard Dennis say, her voice brimming with nervous excitement. I'll have to fix that name you mentioned, if you're sure it's the right one. The beginning is rough, and the seventh verse is a shambles, I know. I need to expand the battles and his relationship with Lyra. The ending needs tightening, but overall, what did you think? Once she smoothed it out, it would be brilliant, 
as good a song as my parents might have written, but that just made it worse. My hands were shaking, and I was amazed at how hard it was to make them stop. I looked away from them, up at Denna. Her nervous excitement faded when she saw my face. You're going to have to rework more than just the name. I tried to keep my voice calm. Lanray wasn't a hero. She looked at me oddly, as if she couldn't tell if I was making a joke. What? You've got the whole thing wrong, I said. Lanray was a monster, a traitor. You need to change it. Denna tossed back her head and laughed. When I didn't join her, she cocked her head, puzzled. You're serious? I nodded. Denna's face went stiff. Her eyes narrowed and her mouth made a thin line. You have to be kidding. Her mouth worked silently for a moment. Then she shook her head. It wouldn't make any sense. The whole story falls apart if Lanray isn't the hero. It's not about what makes a good story, I said. It's about what's true. True? She looked at me incredulously. This is just some old folk story. None of the places are real. None of the people are real. You might as well get offended at me for coming up with a new verse for Tinker Tanner. I could feel words rising in my throat, hot as a chimney fire. I swallowed down hard against them. Some stories are just stories, I agreed. But not this one. It's not your fault. There's no way you could have... Oh, well, thank you, she said bitingly. I'm so glad this isn't my fault. Fine, I said sharply. It is your fault. You should have done more research. What do you know about the research I did, she demanded. You haven't the slightest idea. I've been all over the world digging up pieces of this story. It was the same thing my father had done. He'd started writing a song about Lanre, but his research led him to the Chandrian. He'd spent years chasing down half-forgotten stories and digging up rumors. He wanted his song to tell the truth about them, and they had killed my entire troop to put an end to it. I looked down at the grass and thought about the secret I had kept for so long. I thought of the smell of blood and burning hair. I thought of rust and blue fire and the broken bodies of my parents. How could I explain something so huge and horrible? Where would I even begin? I could feel the secret deep inside me, huge and heavy as a stone. In the version of the story I heard, I said, touching the far edge of the secret, Lanre becomes one of the Chandrian. You should be careful. Some stories are dangerous. Dennis stared at me for a long moment. The Chandrian? She said incredulously. Then she laughed. It was not her usual delighted laugh. This was sharp and full of derision. What kind of child are you? I knew exactly how childish it made me sound. I felt myself flush hot with embarrassment, my whole body suddenly prickling with sweat. I opened my mouth to speak, and it felt like cracking open the door of a furnace. I'm like a child? I spat. What do you know about anything, you stupid? I almost bit off the end of my tongue to keep from shouting the word whore. You think you know everything, don't you? She demanded. You've been to the university, so you think the rest of us are... Quit looking for excuses to be upset and listen to me, I snapped. The words poured out of me like molten iron. 
You're having a snit like a spoiled little girl. Don't you dare, she jabbed a finger at me. Don't talk to me like I'm some sort of witless farm girl. I know things they don't teach at your precious university. Secret things. I'm not an idiot. You're acting like an idiot! I shouted so loudly the words hurt my throat. You won't shut up long enough to listen to me! I'm trying to help you! Denna sat in the center of a chilly silence. Her eyes were hard and flat. That's what it's all about, isn't it? She said coldly. Her fingers moved in her hair, every flick of her fingers stiff with irritation. She untied her braids, smoothed them out, then absentmindedly retied them in a different pattern. You hate that I won't take your help. You can't stand that I won't let you fix every little thing in my life, is that it? Well, maybe someone needs to fix your life, I snapped. You've made a fair mess of it so far, haven't you? She continued to sit very still, her eyes furious. What makes you think you know anything about my life? I know you're so afraid of anyone getting close that you can't stay in the same bed four days in a row, I said, hardly knowing what I was saying anymore. Angry words poured out of me like blood from a wound. I know you live your whole life burning bridges behind you. I know you solve your problems by running. What makes you think your advice is worth one thin sliver of a damn anyway? Denna burst out. Half a year ago, you had one foot in the gutter, hair all shaggy and only three raggedy shirts. There isn't a noble in a hundred miles of Imray that would piss on you if you were on fire. You had to run a thousand miles to have a chance of a patron. My face burned with shame at her mention of my three shirts, and I felt my temper flare hot again. You're right, of course, I said scathingly. You're much better off. I'm sure your patron would be perfectly happy to piss on you. Now we get to the heart of it, she said, throwing her hands up in the air. You don't like my patron because you could get me a better one. You don't like my song because it's different from the one you know. She reached for her harp case, her movements stiff and angry. You're just like all the rest. I'm trying to help you. You're trying to fix me, Denna said crisply as she put away her harp. You're trying to buy me, to arrange my life. You want to keep me like I'm your pet, like I'm your faithful dog. I'd never think of you as a dog, I said, giving her a bright and brittle smile. A dog knows how to listen. A dog has sense enough not to bite a hand that's trying to help. Our conversation spiraled downward from there. At this point in the story, I'm tempted to lie. To say I spoke these things in an uncontrollable rage, that I was overwhelmed with grief at the memory of my murdered family, I'm tempted to say I tasted plum and nutmeg. Then I would have some excuse, but they were my words. In the end, I was the one who said those things. Only me. Denna responded in kind, hurt and furious and sharp-tongued as myself. We were both proud and angry and filled with the unshakable certainty of youth. We said things we never would have said otherwise, and when we left, we did not leave together. My temper was hot and bitter as a bar of molten iron. It seared at me as I walked all the way back to Severin. It burned as I made my way through the city and waited for the freight lifts. It smoldered as I stalked through the mayor's estates and slammed the door to my rooms behind me. 
It was only hours later that I cooled enough to regret my words. I thought of what I might have said to Denna. I thought of telling her of how my troop was killed, about the Chandrian. I decided I would write her a letter. I would explain it all, no matter how foolish or unbelievable it seemed. I brought out pen and ink and laid a sheet of fine white paper on the writing desk. I dipped the pen and tried to think of where I could begin. My parents had been killed when I was eleven. It was an event so huge and horrifying it had driven me nearly mad. In the years since, I had never told a soul of those events. I had never so much as whispered them in an empty room. It was a secret I had clutched so tightly for so long that when I dared think of it, it lay so heavy in my chest that I could barely breathe. I dipped the pen again, but no words came. I opened a bottle of wine, thinking it might loosen the secret inside me. Give me some fingerhold I could use to pry it up. I drank until the room spun and the nib of the pen was crusted with dry ink. Hours later, the blank sheet still stared at me, and I beat my fists against the desk in fury and frustration, striking it so hard my hand bled. That is how heavy a secret can become. It can make blood flow easier than ink. Chapter 74 Rumors the day after I fought with Denna, I woke late in the afternoon, feeling miserable for all the obvious reasons. I ate and bathed, but pride kept me from heading down to Severin Low to look for Denna. I sent a ring to Braden, but the runner returned with the news that he was still away from the estate. So, I opened a bottle of wine and began to leaf through the pile of stories that had been slowly accumulating in my room. The majority of these were scandalous, spiteful things— but their petty meanness suited my mood and helped distract me from my own misery. Thus I learned the previous Compte Banbride hadn't died of consumption, but of syphilis contracted from an amorous stable hand. Lord Veston was addicted to dinner resin, and money intended for the maintenance of the King's Road was paying for his habit. Baron Jackus had paid several officials to avoid scandal when his youngest daughter was discovered in a brothel. There were two versions of that story, one where she was selling and another where she was buying. I filed that information away for future use. I'd started a second bottle of wine by the time I read that young Natalia Lackless had run away with a troupe of traveling performers. Her parents had disowned her, of course, leaving Meloin the only heir to the Lackless lands. That explained Meloin's hatred of the Rue and made me doubly glad I hadn't made my edema blood public here in Severin. There were three separate stories of how the Duke of Cormissant flew into rages while in his cups, beating whoever happened to be nearby, including his wife, his son, and several dinner guests. There was a brief speculative account of how the king and queen held depraved orgies in their private gardens, hidden from the eyes of the royal court. Even Braden made an appearance. He was said to conduct pagan rituals in the secluded woods outside his northern estates. They were described with such extravagant and meticulous detail that I wondered if they weren't copied directly from the pages of some old Aeturan romance. I read well into the evening and was only halfway through the stack of stories when I finished the bottle of wine. I was just about to send a runner for another when I heard the soft hush of air from the other room that announced Alvaron's entrance into my chambers through his secret passage. I pretended to look surprised when he entered the room. "'Good afternoon, Your Grace,' 
I said as I came to my feet. Sit, if you wish, he said shortly. I remained standing out of deference, as I'd learned it was better to err on the side of formality with the mayor. How are things progressing with your lady? I asked. From Stapes's excited gossip, I knew matters were rapidly coming to a close. We pledged a formal troth today, he said distractedly, signed papers and all. It's done. If you'll forgive me for saying so, your grace, you don't seem very pleased. He gave a sour smile. I suppose you've heard about the trouble on the roads of late? Only rumors, your grace. He snorted. Rumors I have been trying to keep quiet. Someone has been waylaying my tax collectors on the North Road. That was serious. Collectors, your grace? I asked, stressing the plural. How much have they managed to take? The mayor gave me a stern look that let me know the impropriety of my question. Enough. More than enough. This is the fourth I've had go missing. Over half of my northern taxes taken by highwaymen. He gave me a serious look. The lackless lands are in the north, you know. You think the lacklesses are waylaying your collectors? He gave me a stunned look. What? No, no. It's bandits in the Eld. I blushed a little in embarrassment. Have you sent out patrols, your grace? Of course I've sent out patrols, he snapped. I've sent a dozen. They haven't found so much as a campfire. He paused and looked at me. I suspect someone in my guard is in league with them. His expression was grave. I assume your grace has given your collectors escorts? Two apiece, he said. Do you know how much it costs to replace a dozen guardsmen? Armor, weapons, horses? He sighed. On top of it all, only part of the stolen taxes are mine. The rest belong to the king. I nodded in understanding. I don't imagine he's very pleased. Alvaron waved a hand dismissively. Oh, Roderick will have his money regardless. He holds me personally responsible for his tithe. So I'm forced to send the collectors around again to gather his majesty's share a second time. I don't imagine that sits very well with most people, I said. It does not. He sat in an overstuffed chair and rubbed his face tiredly. I'm at my wit's end over the matter. How will it look to Maloin if I cannot keep my own roads safe? I took a seat as well, facing him. What of Dagon? I asked. Couldn't he find them? Alvaron gave a short, humorless bark of a laugh. Oh, Dagon would find them. He'd have their heads on poles inside ten days. Then why not send him? I asked, puzzled. Because Dagon is a man of straight lines. He would raise a dozen villages and set fire to a thousand acres of the Eld to find them. He shook his head seriously. Even if I thought him suited to this task, he is tracking down Codicus at the moment. Besides, I believe there may be magic at work in the Eld, and that is outside Dagon's ken. I suspected the only magic at work was half a dozen sturdy Modegan longbows, but it's the nature of people to cry magic whenever they're faced with something they cannot easily explain, especially in Ventus. Alvaron leaned forward in his seat. Might I rely on your help in this? There was only one response to that. Of course, Your Grace. 
Do you know much woodcraft? I studied under a yeoman when I was younger, I exaggerated, guessing he was looking for someone to help devise a better defense for his collectors. I know enough to track a man and hide myself. Elveron raised an eyebrow at that. Really? You are possessed of quite the diverse education, aren't you? I've led an interesting life, Your Grace. The bottle of wine I'd drunk made me bolder than usual, and I added, I've got an idea or two you might find helpful in dealing with your bandit problem. He leaned forward in his chair. Do tell. I could devise some arcane protection for your men. I made a flourish with the long fingers of my right hand, hoping it looked sufficiently mystical. I juggled numbers in my head and wondered how long it would take to create an arrow catch using only the equipment in Caudicus's tower. Alvaron nodded thoughtfully. That might suffice if I was only concerned for the safety of my collectors, but this is the King's Road, a major artery of trade. I need to be rid of the bandits themselves. In that case, I said, I would assemble a small group who know how to make their way quietly in a forest. They shouldn't have too much difficulty locating your bandits. When they do, it should be a simple matter to send your guard out to catch them. Easier yet to set an ambush and kill them, wouldn't you say? Alvaron said slowly, as if looking to gauge my reaction. Or that, I admitted, your grace is the arm of the law. Death is the penalty for banditry, especially on the king's road, Alvaron said firmly. Does that seem harsh to you? Not in the least, I said, looking him squarely in the eye. Safe roads are the bones of civilization. Alvaron surprised me with a sudden smile. Your plan is the very image of my own. I have gathered a handful of mercenaries to do just as you've suggested. I've had to move secretly, as I don't know who might be sending these bandits their warnings, but I've got four good men ready to leave tomorrow. A tracker, two mercenaries with some skill in the forest, and an Adem mercenary— the last did not come cheaply, either. I gave him a congratulatory nod. You've already planned it better than I could, Your Grace. It hardly seems as if you need my help at all. Quite the contrary, he said. I still need someone with a little sense to lead them. He looked at me meaningfully. Someone who understands magic. Someone I can trust. I felt a sudden sinking sensation. Alvaron got to his feet, smiling warmly. Twice now you have served me beyond all expectations. Are you familiar with the expression, third time pays for all? Again, there was only one reasonable answer to that question. Yes, Your Grace. Alvaron took me to his rooms, and we looked over maps of the countryside where his men had been lost. It was a long stretch of the king's highway running through a piece of the Eld that had been old when Vintus was nothing more than a handful of squabbling sea kings. It was a little more than eighty miles away. We could be there in four days of hard walking. Stapes provided me with a new travel sack, and I packed it as well as I was able. I took a few of the more practical clothes from my wardrobe, though they were still more suited for a ballroom than the road. I packed away a few items I'd quietly pilfered from Codicus's lab over the last span, 
and gave Stapes a list of a few essential items I was lacking, and he produced them all more quickly than a grocer in a store. Finally, at the hour when all but the most desperate and dishonest persons are abed, Alvaron gave me a purse containing a hundred silver bits. This is a messy way of handling it, Alvaron said. Normally I would give you a writ charging citizens to provide you with assistance and aid. He sighed. But using something like that as you travel would be as good as blowing a trumpet announcing your arrival. I nodded. If they're clever enough to have a spy among your guard, it's safe to assume they have connections with the local populace as well, Your Grace. They might be the local populace, he said darkly. Stapes led me out of the estate through the same secret passage the mayor used to enter my rooms. Carrying a hooded thief's lamp, he took me through several twisting passages, then down a long, dark stairway that bored deep into the stone of the shear. Thus I found myself standing alone in the chill cellar of an abandoned shop in Severin Low. It was in the section of the city that had been ravaged by fire some years ago, and the building's few remaining roof beams stretched like dark bones against the first pale light of dawn. I stepped from the burned shell of the building. Above, the mayor's estates perched on the edge of the shear like some predatory bird. I spat, none too pleased with my situation press-ganged into mercenary service. My eyes were gritty from my sleepless night and my long journey through the twisting stone passages in the shear. The wine I'd drunk wasn't improving anything either. For the last few hours, I could feel myself growing less drunk and more hungover by slow degrees. I'd never been awake through the entire process before, and it was not pleasant. I'd managed to keep up appearances in front of Alvaron and Stapes, but the fact of the matter was that my gut was sour and my thoughts were thick and sluggish. The cool, pre-dawn air cleared my head a little, and within a hundred steps I began thinking of things I'd forgotten to include on the list I'd given Stapes. The wine had done me no favors there. I had no tinderbox, no salt, no knife. My loot. I hadn't picked it up from the luthier after having its loose peg fixed, who knew how long I might be hunting bandits for the mayor? How long would it sit unclaimed before the man decided it had been abandoned? I went two miles out of my way, but found the luthier shop dark and lifeless. I hammered on the door to no avail. Then, after a moment's indecision, I broke in and stole it. Though it hardly seemed to be stealing, since the loot was mine to begin with, and I'd already paid for the repairs. I had to climb a wall, force a window, and trip two locks. It was fairly simple stuff, but given my sleepless, wine-sodden head, I'm probably lucky I didn't fall off the roof and break my neck. But aside from a loose piece of slate that set my heart racing, things went smoothly, and I was back on my way in twenty minutes. The four mercenaries Alvaron had assembled were waiting in a tavern two miles north of Severin. We made brief introductions and left immediately, heading north on the King's Highway. My thoughts were so sluggish that I was miles north of Severin before I began to reconsider a few things. Only then did it occur to me that the mayor might have been less than completely honest in everything he had told me the night before. Was I truly the best person to lead a handful of trackers into an unfamiliar forest to kill a band of highwaymen? Did the mayor really think so much of me? No. Of course not. It was flattering, but simply not true. 
The mayor had access to better resources than that. The truth was, he probably wanted his sweet-tongued assistant out of the way now that he had the Lady Lackless well in hand. I was foolish for not realizing it sooner. So he sent me on a fool's errand to get me out from underfoot. He expected me to spend a month chasing his wild goose in the deep forest of the Eld, then come back empty-handed. The purse made better sense, too. A hundred bits would keep us provisioned for a month or so. Then, when I ran out of money, I'd be forced to return to Severin, where the mayor would cluck his tongue in disappointment and use my failure as an excuse to ignore some of the favor I'd accumulated so far. On the other hand, if I got lucky and found the bandits, all the better. It was exactly the sort of plan I'd credit to the mayor. No matter what happened, he got something he wanted. It was irritating, but I could hardly go back to Severin and confront him. Now that I'd committed myself, there was nothing to do but make the best of the situation. As I walked north, my head throbbing and my mouth gritty, I decided I would surprise the mayor again. I'd hunt down his bandits. Then third time would pay for all, and Mayor Alvaron would be well and truly in my debt. Chapter 75 The Players Over the next few hours of walking, I did my best to get to know the man Alvaron had saddled me with. I speak figuratively, of course, as one of them was a woman, and we were all five of us afoot. Tempe caught my eye first and held it the longest, as he was the first Adem mercenary I'd ever met. Far from being the imposing, hard-eyed killer I'd expected, Tempe was rather nondescript, neither particularly tall nor heavily built. He was fair-skinned with light hair and pale gray eyes. His expression was blank as fresh paper. Strangely blank. Studiously blank. I knew Adem mercenaries wore blood-red clothing as a sort of badge, but Tempe's outfit was different than I'd expected. His shirt was held tight against his body with a dozen soft leather straps. His pants, too, were belted tightly at the thigh and calf and knee. Everything was dyed the same bright and bloody red, and it fit him snugly as a gentleman's glove. As the day grew warm, I saw him begin to sweat. After living in the cool, thin air of the storm wall, the weather must have seemed disproportionately hot to him. An hour before noon, he loosened the leather straps of his shirt and peeled it away, using it to wipe the sweat from his face and arms. He didn't seem even slightly self-conscious about walking the king's highway naked to the waist. Tempe's skin was so pale it was almost the color of cream, and his body was lean and sleek as a coursing hound, his muscles shifting under his skin with an animal grace. I tried not to stare, but my eyes couldn't help but pick out the thin, pale scars that crossed his arms and chest and back. He never offered a word of complaint about the heat. Words of any sort seemed rare from him, and he responded to most questions with a nod or a shake of the head. He carried a travel sack like mine, and his sword, far from being intimidating, seemed rather short and unimpressive. Daydan was as different from Tempe as one man can be from another. He was tall, wide, and thick around the chest and neck. He carried a heavy sword, a long knife, and wore a mismatched set of boiled leather armor, hard enough to knock on and often mended. If you have ever seen a caravan guard, then you have seen Daydan, or at least someone cut from the same bolt of cloth. He ate most, complained most, swore most, 
and had a stubborn streak thicker than a broad oak plank. But to be fair, he also had a friendly manner and an easy laugh. I was tempted to think of him as stupid due to his manners and his size, but Daydan had a quick wit when he bothered using it. Hespo was a female mercenary, not as rare a creature as some folk think. In appearance and equipage, she was a near mirror of Daydan. The leather, the heavy sword, the slightly weather-worn and world-wise attitude. She had broad shoulders, strong hands, and a proud face with a jaw like a cinder brick. Her hair was blonde and fine, but cut short in the fashion of a man's. But to see her as a female version of Daydan was a mistake. She was reserved where Daydan was all bravado. And while Daydan had an easy manner when his temper wasn't up, Hespa had a vague hardness about her, as if she were constantly expecting someone to give her trouble. Martin was the oldest of us, our tracker. He wore a little leather, softer and better cared for than Daydan's or Hespa's. He carried a long knife, a short knife, and a hunter's bow. Martin had worked as a huntsman before falling out of favor with the baronet whose forces he attended. Mercenary work was a poor job by comparison, but it kept him fed. His skill with the bow made him valuable, despite the fact that he wasn't nearly as physically imposing as either Daydan or Hespa. The three of them had formed a loose partnership some months ago and had been selling their services as a group ever since. Martin told me they'd done other jobs for the mayor, the most recent of which involved scouting some of the lands around Tinue. It took me about ten minutes to realize Martin should be the leader of this expedition. He had more woodcraft than all the rest of us put together, and had even hunted men for bounty once or twice. When I mentioned this to him, he shook his head and smiled, telling me that being able to do something and wanting to do it were two very different things indeed. Last was me, their fearless leader. The mayor's letter of introduction had described me as a discerning young man of good education and diverse useful qualities. While this was perfectly true, it also made me sound like the most wretchedly useless court dandy in existence. Not helping matters was the fact that I was younger than any of them by years and wearing clothes more suited for a dinner party than the road. I carried my loot and the mayor's purse. I wore no sword, no armor, no knife. I dare say they didn't quite know what to make of me. The sun was about an hour from setting when we passed a tinker on the road. He wore the traditional brown robe, belted with a length of rope. He didn't have a cart, but led a single donkey so loaded with bundles of oddments that it looked like a mushroom. He made his slow way toward us, singing, If you need no mending and nothing needs tending, a wise man will still see the right time for spending. Enjoy the sunshine, but though you might feel fine, if you don't stop now, you'll be filled with regret. It's better to simply pay and prepare for a rainy day than think of the tinker when you're dripping wet. I laughed and applauded. Proper traveling tinkers are a rare breed of people, and I am always glad to see one. My mother told me they were lucky, and my father had valued them for their news. The fact that I was in desperate need of a few items made this meeting three times welcome. Oh, tinker, Daydan said, smiling. I need fire and a pint. How long before we hit an inn? The tinker pointed back the way he had come. Not twenty minutes walk. 
he eyed Daydan. But you can't tell me there's nothing you need, he admonished. Everyone needs something, Daydan shook his head politely. I beg your pardon, Tinker. My purse is too thin. How about you? The Tinker eyed me up and down. You've the look of a lad who's wanting something. I do need a few things, I admitted, seeing the others look longingly down the road. I motioned them on. Go ahead, I told them. I'll be a few minutes. As they headed off, the Tinker rubbed his hands together, grinning. Well, now, what is it you're looking for? Some salt to begin with. And a box to put it in, he said as he began to rummage around in his donkey's packs. I could use a knife, too, if you have one that's not too hard to come by. Especially if you're heading north, he said without missing a beat. Dangerous road that way. Wouldn't do to be without a knife. Did you have any trouble? I asked, hoping he might know something that could help us find the bandits. Oh, no, he said as he dug through his packs. Things aren't so bad that anyone would dream of laying hands on a tinker. Still, it's a bad stretch of road. He produced a long, narrow knife in a leather sheath and handed it to me. Ramston steel. I drew it out of its sheath and gave the blade a close look. It was Ramston steel. I don't need anything that fine, I said, handing it back. I'll be putting it to everyday use, eating mostly. Ramston's fine for everyday use, the tinker said, pushing it back into my hands. You can use it to trim kindling, then shave with it if you like. Keeps an edge forever. I might have to put it to hard use, I clarified. And Ramston's brittle. There is that, the tinker admitted easily. As my father always used to say, the best knife you'll ever have until it breaks. But the same could be said of any knife. And truth be told, that's the only knife I have. I sighed. I know when I'm being skinned. And a tinderbox? He held one out almost before I finished saying it. I couldn't help but notice you got a little ink about the fingers. He gestured at my hands. I've got some paper here, good quality. Pen and ink, too. Nothing worse than having an idea for a song and not being able to write it down. He held out a leather parcel of paper, pens, and ink. I shook my head, knowing that the mayor's purse would only stretch so far. I think I'm done with songwriting for a while, Tinker. He shrugged, still holding it out. Letter writing, then? I know a fellow who had to open a vein once to write a note to his lady love. Dramatic, true, symbolic, certainly, but also painful, unsanitary, and more than slightly macabre. Now he carries pen and ink with him wherever he goes. I felt the color drain from my face as the tinker's words reminded me of something else I'd forgotten in my rush to leave Severin. Denna. All thought of her had been forced out of my mind by the mayor's talk of bandits, two bottles of strong wine, and a night with no sleep. I left without a word after our terrible fight. What would she think if I spoke so cruelly to her, then simply disappeared? I was already a full day's journey from Severin. I couldn't go back just to tell her I was leaving, could I? I considered it for a moment. No. Besides, Denna herself had disappeared for days without a word of warning. Surely she would understand if I did the same. Stupid, stupid, stupid. 
My thoughts spun in circles as I tried to decide among my several unpleasant options. The harsh hee-haw of the tinker's donkey startled a thought into me. Are you headed to Severin, tinker? More through than two, he said, but yes. I just remember a letter I needed to send. If I gave it to you, could you deliver it to a certain inn? He nodded slowly. I could, he said, given that you'll be needing paper and ink. He smiled, waving the package again. I grimaced. I will, Tinker. But how much will the lot of this cost me? He looked at the accumulated items. Salt and box, four bits. Knife, fifteen bits. Paper, pens, and ink, eighteen bits. Tinderbox, three bits. And the delivery, I said. An urgent delivery, the tinker said with a bit of a smile. To a lady, unless I mistake the look on your face. I nodded. Right, he rubbed his chin. Ordinarily, I'd push for about thirty-five, then have a nice leisurely dicker where you bargain me down to thirty. The price was reasonable, especially considering how hard it was to find good paper. Still, it was a full third of the money the mayor had given me. We would need that money for food, lodging, and other supplies. But before I could say anything, the tinker continued. Now I can tell that's too much for your comfort, he said. And I hope you don't think me too forward in saying this, but that is a rather fine cloak you are wearing. I'm always willing to make a fellow a trade. I pulled my lovely burgundy cloak around me self-consciously. I suppose I'd be willing to give it up, I said, not having to fake the regret in my voice. But that will leave me with no cloak at all. What will I do when it rains? No trouble there, the tinker said. He pulled a bundle of cloth out of a pack and held it up for me to see. It had been black once upon a time, but long use and many washings had faded it to a dark greenish color. It's a little tatty, I said, reaching out to finger a fraying seam. It's just broken in, that's all, he said easily, spreading it across my shoulders. Good fit. Good color for you, brings out your eyes. Besides, you don't want to be looking too well off, what with those bandits on the road. I sighed. What will you give me in trade? I asked, handing my beautiful cloak over to him. That cloak's not a month old, mind you, and it's never even seen a drop of rain. The tinker ran his hands over my beautiful cloak. It's got all sorts of little pockets, he said admiringly. That's just lovely. I fingered the thinning cloth of the tinker's cloak. If you'll throw in needle and thread, I'll trade you my cloak for the lot of it, I said with sudden inspiration. Plus, I'll give you an iron penny, a copper penny, and a silver penny. I grinned. It was a pittance. But that's what tinkers in stories ask for when they trade some fabulous piece of magic to an unsuspecting widow's son when he's off to make his fortune in the world. The tinker threw his head back and laughed. I was about to suggest that very thing, he said. Then he tossed my cloak over his arm and shook my hand firmly. I fished around in my purse and handed over an iron drab, two vintage halfpennies, and, much to my pleasant surprise, an Aturin hard penny. The last was lucky for me, as it was only worth a fraction of a vintage silver round. 
I emptied the dozen pockets of my burgundy cloak into my travel sack and collected my new possessions from the tinker. Then I wrote a quick letter to Denna, explaining that my patron had sent me away unexpectedly. I apologized for the rash things I'd said and told her I would meet with her as soon as I was back in Severin. I would have liked more time to compose it. I would have liked to give a more subtle apology, a more detailed explanation, but the tinker had finished packing away my beautiful cloak and was obviously eager to be on his way again. Not having any sealing wax to secure the letter, I used a trick I'd invented while writing notes on the mayor's behalf. I folded the piece of paper against itself, then tucked it together in such a way that it would be necessary to tear the paper in order to unfold it again. I handed it to the tinker. It goes to a pretty dark-haired woman by the name of Denna. She's staying at the Four Tapers in Severin Low. That reminds me, he exclaimed as he tucked my letter into a pocket. Candles! He reached into a saddlebag and pulled out a handful of fat tallow tapers. Everyone needs candles! Funny thing was, I could use some, though not for the reasons he thought. I've also got some rubbing wax for your boots, he continued, rooting through his bundles. We get fierce rain this time of year. I held up my hands, laughing. I'll give you a bit for four candles, but I can't afford any more. If this keeps up, I'll have to buy your donkey just to carry the lot with me. Suit yourself, he said with an easy shrug. Pleasure doing business with you, young sir. Chapter 76 Tinder The sun was starting to set by the time we found a good place to camp on the second night. Daydan went foraging for firewood. Martin began cutting up carrots and potatoes and sent Hespa to fill the cook pot with water. I used Martin's small spade to dig a pit for our fire. Without being asked, Tempe picked up a branch and used his sword to shave thin strips of dry wood to use for tinder. Unsheathed, his sword still didn't seem terribly impressive, but given how easily it was peeling away paper-thin strips of wood, it must have been sharp as a shaving razor. I finished lining the pit with stones. Wordlessly, Tempe handed me a handful of tinder. I nodded. Would you like to use my knife? I asked, hoping to draw him into a bit of a conversation. I'd barely shared a dozen words with him in the last two days. Tempe's pale gray eyes looked at the knife on my belt, then back at his sword. He shook his head, fidgeting nervously. Isn't it bad for the edge? I asked. The mercenary shrugged, avoiding my eye. I began to lay the fire, and that was when I made my first mistake. As I've said, there was a chill in the air, and we were all of us tired. So rather than spend half an hour slowly nursing a spark into a decent campfire, I arranged twigs around Tempe's tinder, then stacked progressively bigger sticks around it, making a tightly packed cluster of wood. Dayden returned with another armload of firewood just as I was finishing. Lovely, he groused, quiet enough he could pretend he was just talking to himself, but loud enough so everyone could hear. And you're in charge. Wonderful. What's stuck in your teeth now? Martin asked tiredly. Boy's making a little wooden fort, not a fire. Daydan sighed dramatically, then assumed a tone he probably thought was fatherly, but came across as profoundly condescending. Here, I'll help you out, 
A spark will never catch on that. Do you have flint and steel? I'll show you how to use them. No one enjoys being talked down to, but I have a particular aversion to it. Daydan had been making it clear for two days that he thought I was an idiot. I gave a tired sigh, my oldest, most world-weary sigh. That was how I needed to play it. He thought of me as young and useless. I needed to drive home the point that I was nothing of the sort. Daydan, I asked, what do you know about me? He gave me a blank look. You know one thing about me. I said calmly. You know the mayor put me in charge. I looked him in the eye. Is the mayor an idiot? Daydan made a dismissive gesture. Of course not. I was just saying. I stood up and regretted it, as it just brought into sharp contrast how much taller he was. Would the mayor have put me in charge if I were an idiot? He gave an insincere smile trying to pass off two days' worth of derogatory muttering as some sort of misunderstanding. Now, don't get all twisted up over— I held up my hand. This isn't your fault. You just don't know anything about me. But let's not waste time on it tonight. We're all tired. For now, rest assured that I'm not some rich tit son out for a lark. I pinched a thin piece of Tempe's tinder between my fingers and concentrated— I pulled more heat than I needed and felt my arm go chilly all the way to the shoulder. And rest assured, I know how to start a fire. The shaved pieces of wood caught fire, flaring up hot and sudden, catching the rest of the tinder and making flames leap up almost instantly. I'd meant it to be a dramatic gesture so Daydan would stop thinking of me as some useless boy, but the time I spent at the university had made me jaded. Starting a fire like this was as simple as putting on your boots for a member of the Arcanum. Daydan, on the other hand, had never met an Arcanist, and probably hadn't ever been within five hundred miles of the university. Everything he knew about magic was from campfire stories. So when the fire flared up, he went pale as a sheet and took several sudden steps back. He looked for all the world as if I'd suddenly called up a roaring sheet of fire like Taberlin the Great. Then I saw Martin and Hespa wearing the same expression, native vintage superstition written clearly on their faces. Their eyes went to the flickering fire, then back to me. I was one of those. I meddled with dark powers. I summoned demons. I ate the entire little cheese, including the rind. Looking at their stunned faces, I realized nothing I said would set them at ease. Not right now. So instead, I sighed and began to set up my sleeping roll for the night. While there wasn't much cheerful conversation around the fire that night, there wasn't any muttering from Daydan either. I'd like respect, but failing that, a little healthy fear can go a long way to making things run smoothly. Two days with no further dramatics on my part helped everyone relax. Daydan was still all bluff and bravado, but he had quit calling me boy and was only complaining about half as much, so I considered it a victory. Flushed with this lukewarm success, I decided to make an active attempt to draw Tempe into a conversation. If I was going to be in charge of this little group, I needed to know more about him. 
Most importantly, I needed to know if he could speak more than five words in a row. So I approached the ADAM mercenary when we stopped for our midday meal. He was sitting slightly apart from the rest of us. He wasn't standoffish. It's just that the rest of us would sit and talk while we ate. Tempe, on the other hand, simply ate. But today, I made a point of sitting down next to him with my lunch, a chunk of hard sausage and some cold potatoes. Hello, Tempe. He looked up and nodded. For a second, I caught a glimpse of his pale gray eyes. Then he looked away, shifting restlessly. He ran his hand through his hair, and for a second, he reminded me of Simon. They both had the same slender build and sandy hair. Simon wasn't this quiet, though. Sometimes I could barely get a word in edgewise with Sim. I tried to talk to Tempe before, of course. Ordinary small talk, the weather, sore feet after a long day's walk, the food, these had all come to nothing. At best, a word or two. More often, a nod or a shrug. But most common was a blank look followed by fidgeting and a stubborn refusal to do so much as look me in the eye. So today, I had a conversational gambit. I have heard stories about the Lethani, I said. I would like to know more. Would you tell me about it? Tempe's pale eyes touched mine briefly, his expression still blank. Then he looked away again. He tugged one of the red leather straps that held his shirt close to his body and fidgeted with his sleeve. No, I will not speak on Latani. It is not for you. Do not ask. He looked away from me again, down at the ground. I counted in my head. Sixteen words. That answered one of my questions, at least. Chapter 77 Pennysworth Twilight was settling in as we rounded a curve in the road. I heard clapping and stomping mingled with music, shouting, and roars of laughter. After ten hours of walking, the sound lifted my spirits to an almost cheerful level. Located at the last major crossroad south of the Eld, the Pennysworth Inn was enormous. Built of rough-hewn timber, it had two full stories and a scattering of gables that hinted at a smaller third floor above that. Through the windows I caught glimpses of men and women dancing while an unseen fiddler sawed out a mad and breathless tune. Daydan took a deep breath. Can you smell that? I tell ya, there's a woman in this place could cook a stone and make me beg for more. Sweet peg. By these hands, I hope she's still around. He made a curving gesture, showing me the double meaning of his words as he nudged Martin with an elbow. Hespa's eyes narrowed as she stared at the back of Daydan's head. Oblivious, Daydan continued. Tonight, I'll sleep with a belly full of lamb and brandy. Although, a little less sleeping might prove a little more entertaining, if my last trip here was any indication. I saw the storm brewing on Hespa's face and spoke up quickly. Whatever's in the pot and a bunk for each of us, I said firmly. Anything else comes out of your own pocket. Daydan looked as if he couldn't quite believe his ears. Come off it! We've been sleeping rough for days. Besides, taint your money. Don't be a stingy shim with it. We haven't done our job yet, I said calmly. Not even a piece of it. 
I don't know how long we may be out here, but I know I'm not rich. If we run through the mayor's purse too quickly, we're going to have to hunt for what we eat. I looked around at everyone. Unless someone else has enough coin to keep us fed and cares to share. Martin smiled ruefully at the suggestion. Haspa's eyes were for Daydan, who continued glowering in my direction. Tempe fidgeted, his expression unreadable as ever. Avoiding my eyes, he glanced at everyone in turn, his expression blank. His eyes moved not from face to face, but at Daydan's hands, then Daydan's feet, then Martin's feet, then Hespa's, then mine. He shifted his weight and moved a half-step closer to Daydan. Hoping to dispel the tension, I softened my tone and said, After everything is done, we'll split what's left of the purse. That way each of us will have a little extra in our pocket before we even get back to Severin. We can each spend our lots as we want to. Then. I could tell Daydan wasn't pleased and waited to see if he would press the point. Instead, it was Martin who spoke up. After a day of long walking, he said in a musing voice, as if talking to himself, a drink would go down nice. Daydan looked to his friend, then back to me expectantly. I think the purse can stand a round of drinks, I conceded with a smile. I don't think the mayor is trying to make priests of us, do you? This got a throaty laugh from Hespa while Martin and Daydan cracked smiles. Tempe glanced at me with his pale eyes, fidgeted, and looked away. A few minutes of relaxed haggling got the five of us common bunks, a simple supper, and a round of drinks for a single silver bit. After that was done, I found a table in a quieter corner of the room and tucked my loot out of harm's way under my bench. Then I sat down, bone-weary and wondering what I could do to get Daydan to stop acting like such a little swaggercock. Such was the distracted turning of my thoughts when my dinner thumped onto the table in front of me. I looked up to see a woman's face and well-advertised bosom framed by a tumble of bright red curls. Her skin was white as cream with just the barest hint of freckle, her lips a pale, dangerous pink, her eyes a bright, dangerous green. Thank you, I said, somewhat belatedly. You're welcome, love. She smiled playfully with her eyes and brushed her hair back from her bare shoulder. It looked like you were almost asleeping in your seat. I nearly was. A long day and a long road. That's a shame indeed, she said with playful regret as she rubbed the back of her neck. If I thought you'd still be on your feet in an hour, I'd take you off them. She reached out and twined her fingers lightly through the hair on the back of my head. The two of us would be enough to start a fire. I froze like a startled deer. I cannot say why, except perhaps that I was tired from several days on the road. Perhaps it was that I'd never been approached in such a forthright manner before. Perhaps... Perhaps I was young and woefully inexperienced. Let us leave it at that. I scrambled desperately for something to say, but by the time I found my tongue, she'd taken a half-step away and given me a shrewd look. I felt my face grow hot, embarrassing me further. Without thinking, I looked down at the table and the dinner she'd brought. Potato soup, 
I thought numbly. She gave a small, quiet laugh and touched my shoulder kindly. I'm sorry, lad. You look like you were a little more... She broke off as if reconsidering her words, then started again. I like the fresh look of you, but I didn't think you were that young. Though she spoke gently, I could hear the smile in her voice. It made my face burn even hotter, all the way to my ears. Finally, seeming to realize that anything she said would just embarrass me further, she took her hand off my shoulder. I'll be back to see if you need anything later. I nodded dumbly and watched her go. Her retreat was pleasing, but I was distracted by the sounds of scattered laughter. I looked around to see amusement on the faces of the men sitting at the long tables around me. One group raised their mugs in a silent mocking salute. Another fellow leaned over to pat my back consolingly, saying, Don't take it personal, boy. She's turned all of us away. Feeling as if everyone in the room was watching me, I kept my eyes low and began to eat my dinner. As I tore off pieces of bread and dipped them in my soup, I composed a mental catalog of the extent of my idiocy. Surreptitiously, I watched the red-haired serving girl entertain and rebuff the ploys of a dozen men as she carried drinks from table to table. I had regained a bit of my composure by the time Martin slid into a chair next to me. You did a good job with Daydan out there, he said without preamble. My spirits lifted a bit. Did I? Martin nodded slightly as his sharp eyes wandered over the crowd that filled the room. Most folk try to bully him, make him feel stupid. He'd have paid you back ten times the trouble if you'd done it that way. He was being stupid, I pointed out. And when you come right down to it, I did bully him. It was his turn to shrug. But you did it smart, so he'll still listen to you. He took a drink and paused, changing the subject. Hesper offered to share a room with him tonight, he said casually. Really? I said, more than slightly surprised. She's getting bolder. He gave a slow nod. And? I prompted. And nothing. Daydan said he'd be damned before he spent money on a room he should have for free. He slid his eyes to me and raised an eyebrow. You're not serious, I said flatly. He has to know. He's just playing the simpleton because he doesn't like her. I don't think so, Martin said, turning toward me and lowering his voice a bit. Three span ago... We finished a caravan job from Raelian. It was a long haul, and Daydan and me had a pocket full of coin and nothing in particular to do with it. So by the end of the night we're sitting in this grubby little dockside tavern, too drunk to stand up and leave, and he starts talking about her. Martin shook his head slowly. He went on for an hour and you wouldn't have recognized the woman he was describing as our hard-eyed Hespa. He practically sang about her. He sighed. He thinks she's too good for him, and he's convinced if he so much as looked at her sideways, he'd end up with his arm broken in three places. Why didn't you tell him? Tell him what? 
That was before she started going all cow-eyed over him. I thought his worries were fairly sensible at the time. What do you think Hesper would do to you if you were to give her a friendly pat on any of her friendlier parts? I looked over to where Hesper stood at the bar. One foot tapped roughly in time to the rhythm of the fiddle. Other than that, the set of her shoulders, her eyes, the line of her jaw were all hard, almost belligerent. There was a small but noticeable gap between her and the men standing on either side of her at the bar. I probably wouldn't risk my arm either, I admitted. But he has to know by now. He isn't blind. He's no worse off than the rest of us. I started to protest, then glanced at the red-haired serving girl. We could tell him, I said. You could. He trusts you. Martin sucked at his teeth with his tongue. Nah, he said, setting his drink down firmly. It would just make things muddier. Either he'll see it, or he won't. In his own time, in his own way. He shrugged. Or not, and the sun will still rise in the morning. Neither of us spoke for a long while. Martin watched the buzzing room over the top of his mug, his eyes growing distant. I let the noise of the place fade to a low, comforting purr as I leaned against the wall, drowsing. And as my thoughts untended tend to do, they wandered to Denna. I thought about the smell of her, the arch of her neck near her ear, the way her hands moved when she talked. I wondered where she was tonight, if she was well. I wondered just a bit if her thoughts ever wandered into warm musings of me. Hunting bandits shouldn't be hard. Besides, it'll be nice to get the jump on them for a change, lawless damn rabble bastards. The words drew me out of my warm drowse like a fish yanked from a pool. The fiddler had stopped playing to have a drink, and in the relative quiet of the room, Daydan's voice was loud as a donkey's bray. I opened my eyes and saw Martin was looking around in mild alarm, too, no doubt roused by the same words that had caught my ear. It only took me a second to spot Daydan. He was sitting two tables away, having a drunken conversation with a gray-haired farmer. Martin was already getting to his feet. Not wanting to draw attention to the situation, I hissed, Get him! and forced myself back into my seat. I gritted my teeth as Martin threaded quickly through the tables, tapped Daydan on the shoulder, and jerked a thumb toward the table where I sat. Daydan grumbled something I'm glad I didn't hear, and grudgingly pushed himself to his feet. I forced my eyes to wander around the room rather than follow Daydan. Tempe was easy to spot in his mercenary reds. He was facing the hearth, watching the fiddler tune his instrument. There were several empty glasses on the table in front of him, and he had loosened the leather straps of his shirt. He eyed the fiddler with a strange intensity. As I watched, a serving girl brought him another drink. He looked her over, his pale eyes moving pointedly up and down her body. She said something, and he kissed the back of her hand as smoothly as a courtier. She blushed and pushed at his shoulder playfully. One of his hands moved smoothly to the curve of her waist and rested there. She didn't seem to mind. Daydan stepped close to my table, eclipsing my view of Tempe just as the fiddler lifted his bow and began to saw out a jig. A dozen people came to their feet, eager to dance. What? 
Daydan demanded as he came to stand in front of my table. Have ye called me over here to tell me it's getting late? That I've got a busy day tomorrow and I shall tuck my little self into bed? He leaned forward under the table, putting his eyes more on level with mine. I caught a sour smell on his breath. Dreg. A cheap, repulsive liquor that you can start fires with. I laughed dismissively. Hell, I'm not your mum. Actually, I had been about to say that very thing and scrambled mentally for something else to distract him with. My eye lighted on the redhead that had served me my dinner earlier that evening, and I leaned forward in my seat. I was wondering if you could tell me something, I said in my best conspiratorial tone. His scowl gave way to curiosity, and I lowered my voice a little more. You've been here before, right? He nodded, leaning a little closer. Do you know what that girl's name is? I nodded my head in the redhead's direction. Daydan took an overcareful look over his shoulder that surely would have drawn her attention if she hadn't been facing away from us. The blonde one the A-Dam's pawing at? Daydan asked. Redhead. Daydan's broad forehead wrinkled as he squinted the far side of the room into focus. Lucy? He asked softly. He turned to me, still squinting. Little Lucy? I shrugged and began to regret my choice of diversionary tactic. An explosive laugh burst out of the big man and he half fell, half slid onto the bench across from me. Lucy! He chuckled a little more loudly than I liked. Quoth, I had you all wrong! He slapped the table with the flat of his hand and laughed again, nearly tipping himself over backward on the bench. Ah, oh, you've got a good eye, boy, but you haven't got a damn chance. My battered pride pricked up at this. Why not? Isn't she, well... I trailed off, making an inarticulate gesture. He somehow managed to gather my meaning. Aho? He asked incredulously. God, boy, no! There's a couple around. He made a sweeping gesture over his head, then lowered his voice to a more private level. Not really whores, mind you. Just girls who don't mind a little extra at night. He paused, blinked. Money. Extra money. And extra other things, he chortled. I just thought... I began weakly. Aye, any man who ever had eyes in balls thought that. He leaned a little closer. She's a lusty little one. She'll trip a man who catches her eye. But she can't be talked or bought into bed. If she could, she'd be rich as a king of vent. He looked in her direction. How much is a roll with that worth? I'd give... He squinted in her direction, his lips moving as if going through some silent complex arithmetic. After a moment, he shrugged. More than I've got! He looked back to me, shrugged again. Still... It's no good wishing. Save yourself the trouble. If you want, I know a lady here who's no shame to look at. Might be willing to brighten up your evening. He started to look around the room. No. I put my hand on his arm to stop him. I was just curious, that's all. I sounded insincere and I knew it. 
Thanks for filling me in. Nothing to it. He carefully got to his feet. Oh, I said, as if a thought had just occurred to me. Could you do me a favor? He nodded, and I gestured him closer. I'm worried Hespa might end up talking about our job for the mayor. If the bandits here were hunting them, things will get ten times harder. A guilty look flashed across his face. I'm pretty sure she wouldn't mention it, but you know how women like to talk. I understand, he said quickly as he stood up. I'll talk to her. Better to be careful. The hawk-faced fiddler finished his jig, and everyone clapped and stomped and pounded empty mugs on their tables. I sighed and rubbed my face into my hands. When I looked up, I saw Martin at the table next to mine. He touched his fingers to his forehead and nodded a small salute. I gave a slight, seated bow. It was always nice to have an appreciative audience. Chapter 78 Another Road, Another Forest I took a certain dark pleasure in seeing a rather hungover Daydan on the road before the sun was fully in the sky the next morning. The large man carried himself delicately, but, to give him due credit, he didn't offer a word of complaint, unless the occasional low moan can be counted as a word. Now that I was watching more closely, I spotted the marks of infatuation on Daydan. The way he said Hespa's name the coarse jokes he made when talking to her. Every few minutes he would find an excuse to glance in her direction, always under some pretext, a stretch, an idle glance at the road, a gesture to the trees around us. Despite this, Daydan remained oblivious to the sporadic courtship Hespa was paying him in return. At times it was amusing to watch, like a well-orchestrated Modegan tragedy. At times I wanted to strangle them both. Tempe traveled wordlessly among us like a mute, well-behaved puppy. He watched everything—the trees, the road, the clouds. If it weren't for the unquestionably intelligent look in his eyes, I'd have thought him a simpleton by this point. The few questions I put to him were still met with awkward fidgeting nods, shrugs, or shakes of the head. All the while my curiosity nagged at me. I knew the Lathani was just a piece of storybook nonsense, but— Part of me couldn't help but wonder. Was he really saving his words? Could he really use his quiet like armor? Move fast as a snake? The truth was, after catching glimpses of what Elksa Dahl and Fella could do by calling on the names of fire and stone, the thought of someone storing up words to burn as fuel didn't seem nearly as foolish as it used to. The five of us got to know each other in dribs and drabs, growing familiar with each other's quirks. Daydan carefully groomed the ground where he lay his bedroll, not just removing twigs and stones, but stomping flat every tuft of grass or lump of dirt. Hespo whistled tunelessly when she thought no one was listening and picked her teeth methodically after every meal. Martin wouldn't eat meat that had the barest bit of pink to it or drink water that hadn't been boiled or mixed with wine. He told the rest of us at least twice a day that we were fools for not doing the same. But in terms of odd behavior, Tempe was the prize winner of the lot. He wouldn't look me in the eye, didn't smile, didn't frown, didn't speak. Since we left the Pennysworth, he had made only one comment of his own free will. Rain would make this road another road. 
this forest another forest. He said each word distinctly, as if he had been deliberating on the statement all day. For all I knew, he had. He washed himself obsessively. The rest of us would take advantage of a bathhouse when we stopped at an inn, but Tempe bathed every day. If there was a stream handy, he would bathe both at night and then again when he woke. Otherwise, he would wash himself using a cloth and some of his drinking water. And twice a day, without fail, he performed an elaborate ritual stretch, his hands making careful shapes and patterns in the air. It reminded me of the slow court dances they perform in Modeg. It obviously kept him limber, but it was strange to watch. Hespa made jokes about how if the bandits asked us to dance, our sweet-smelling mercenary would be a wonderful help, but she said it quietly when Tempe was out of earshot. In terms of quirks, I suppose I was in no position to throw stones. I played my lute most evenings, when I wasn't too weary from walking. I dare say it didn't improve the other's opinion of me as a tactical leader or arcanist. As we neared our destination, I grew increasingly anxious. Martin was the only one of us truly suited to this work. Daydan and Hespa would be good in a fight, but they were troublesome to work with. Daydan was argumentative and stubborn. Hespa was lazy. She rarely helped prepare meals or clean up afterward unless she was asked, and even then her help was so grudging it was barely any help at all. And then there was Tempe, a hired killer who wouldn't look me in the eye or hold a conversation, a mercenary I firmly believed could look forward to a decent career in the Modegan Theater. Five days after leaving Severin, we came to the area where the attacks had been made, a twenty-mile stretch of twisting road that ran through the Eld. No towns, no inns, not even an abandoned farm. An utterly isolated stretch of the King's Highway in the middle of an endless ancient wood. The natural habitat of bears, mad hermits, and poachers. A highwayman's paradise. Martin went scouting while the rest of us set up camp. An hour later, he emerged from the trees, winded but in good spirits. He reassured us he hadn't found sign of anyone else nearby. I can't believe I'm defending tax collectors, Daydan muttered disgustedly. Hespa gave a throaty laugh. You're defending civilization, I corrected, and you're keeping the roads safe. Besides, Mayor Alvaron does important things with those taxes, I grinned. Like pay us. That's what I'm fighting for. Martin said. After dinner, I outlined the only strategy I'd been able to come up with in five long days of thinking. I drew a curving line on the ground with a stick. Okay. Here's the road, about twenty miles of it. Miles? The soft voice was Tempe's. Excuse me? I asked. This was the first thing I had heard him say in a day and a half. Meals. His accent was so thick around the unfamiliar word that it took me a second to understand he was saying miles. Miles, I said distinctly. I pointed in the direction of the road and held up one finger. From here to the road is one mile. Today we walked fifteen miles. He nodded once. I turned back to my drawing. 
It's safe to assume the bandits are within ten miles of the road. I drew a box around my crude sketch of the road. That gives us four hundred square miles of forest to search. There was a moment of silence as everyone absorbed that piece of information. Finally, Tempe spoke. That is large. I nodded seriously. It would take us months to search that much territory, but we shouldn't have to. I added a couple more lines to my drawing. Every day, Martin will scout ahead for us. I looked up to him. How much ground can you safely cover in a day? He thought for a second, looking around at the trees surrounding us. This forest? With this much under scrub? About a square mile. How many if you're being careful? He smiled. I'm always careful. I nodded and drew a line parallel to the road. Martin will scout a strip about a half mile wide, about a mile back from the road. He'll keep an eye out for their camp or their sentries, so the rest of us don't stumble into them accidentally. Hespa shook her head. That's no good. They won't be that close to the road. If they're looking to stay hid, they'll be farther back, at least two or three miles. Daydan nodded. I'd make sure I was at least four miles from the road before I hunkered down and made a habit of killing folk. I think so, too, I agreed. But they have to make their way to the road sooner or later. They have to post lookouts and travel back and forth for ambushes. They need to reprovision themselves. Since they've been here several months, odds are they've worn some sort of trail. I added a little detail to my dirt map with my stick. After Martin is scouted, two of us will go in and make a careful search behind him. We'll cover a thin strip of forest, searching it for any sign of their trail. The other two will keep an eye on the camp. We can cover about two miles a day. We'll start on the north side of the road and search from west to east. If we don't find a trail, we'll cross to the south side of the road and work our way back from east to west. I finished drawing in the dirt and stood back. We'll find their trail in a span of days, maybe two depending on our luck. I leaned back and drove my stick into the ground. Daydan stared bleakly at the rough map. We'll need more supplies. I nodded. We'll move camp every fifth day. Two of us will walk back to Crossan to get supplies. The other two will move the camp. Martin will rest. Martin spoke up. We'll have to be careful with our fires from now on, too, he said. The smell of smoke will give us away if we're upwind of them. I nodded. We'll need a fire pit every night, and we'll want to keep an eye out for rental trees. I looked at Martin. You know what a rental looks like, don't you? His expression was surprised. Hespa looked back and forth between us. What's rental? she asked. It's a tree, Martin said. Good for firewood. It burns clean and hot. No smoke to speak of, and hardly any stink of smoke either. Even when the wood is green, I said. Same with the leaves. It's useful stuff. It doesn't grow everywhere, but I've seen some around. How does a city boy like you know something like that? Daydan asked. 
Knowing things is what I do, I said seriously. And what in the world makes you think I grew up in a city? Daydan shrugged, looking away. That should be the only wood we burn from here on out, I said. If it's in short supply, we'll save it for a cook fire. If we don't have any, we'll have to eat cold, so keep an eye out. Everyone nodded, Tempe slightly later than the rest. Lastly, we'd better have our story straight in case they stumble onto us while we're looking for them. I pointed to Martin. What are you going to say if someone catches you while you're out scouting? He looked surprised, but hardly hesitated in his response. I'm a poacher. He pointed to his unstrung bow leaning against a tree. It won't be far from the truth. And you're from? There was a flicker of hesitation. Crossin', just a day west of here. And your name is? M Maris, he said awkwardly. Dayton laughed. I cracked a smile. Don't lie about your name. It's hard to do convincingly. If they catch you and let you go, fine. Just don't lead them back to our camp. If they want to take you back with them, make the best of it. Pretend you'd like to join up. Don't try to run. Martin looked uneasy. I just stay with them? I nodded. They'll expect you to run on the first night if they think you're stupid. If they think you're clever, they'll expect you to run on the second night. But by the third night, they should trust you a bit. Wait until midnight, then start some sort of disturbance. Light a couple of tents on fire or something. We'll be waiting for the confusion and take them apart from the outside. I looked around at the other three. The plan is the same for any of you. Wait until the third night. How will you find their camp? Martin asked, a thin layer of sweat on his forehead. I didn't blame him. This was a dangerous game we were playing. If they catch me, I won't be there to help track you down. I won't be finding them, I said. I'll be finding you. I can find any of you in the forest. I looked around the fire, expecting at least a grumble from Daydan, but none of them seemed to doubt my arcane abilities. Idly, I wondered how much they thought I was capable of. The truth was I'd surreptitiously collected a hair from each of them in the last few days, so I could easily create a makeshift dousing pendulum for anyone in the group in less than a minute. Given vintage superstition, I doubted they'd be happy knowing the specific details. What should our stories be? Hespa tapped Daydan on the chest with the back of her hand, her knuckles making a hollow noise on his hard leather vest. Do you think you could convince them you were disgruntled caravan guards who had decided to turn bandit? Daydan snorted. Hell, I've thought about it once or twice. At a look from Hespa, he snorted. Don't tell me you haven't done the same. Span after span of walking in the rain, eating beans, sleeping on the ground, all for penny a day? He shrugged. God's teeth, I'm surprised half of us don't take to the trees. I smiled. You'll do just fine. What about him? Hespa jerked her thumb at Tempe. Nobody is going to believe he's gone wild. Adam make ten times what we do for a day's work. Twenty times, Daydan grumbled. I'd been thinking the same thing. Tempe, what will you do if you are found by the bandits? Tempe fidgeted a little. 
but didn't say anything. He looked at me briefly, then broke eye contact, glancing down and to the side. I couldn't tell if he was thinking or merely confused. If it weren't for his ADEM reds, he wouldn't look like anything special, Martin said. Even the sword doesn't look like much. Doesn't look like twenty times as much as me, that's for sure. Daydan's voice was low, but not so low that everyone couldn't hear. I was worried about Tempe's outfit, too. I'd tried to draw the ADEM into a conversation several times with the hope of discussing the problem with him, but it was like trying to have a chat with a cat. But the fact that he hadn't known the word miles made me realize something I should have thought of long before. A Turin wasn't his native language. Having recently struggled to make myself fluent in Siaru at the university, I could understand the impulse to keep quiet rather than speak and make a fool of myself. He could try to play along, same as us, Hespa said dubiously. It's hard to lie convincingly when you're not good with the language, I said. Tempe's pale eyes darted to each of us as we spoke, but he didn't offer any comment. Folk underestimate a person who can't speak well, Hespa said. Maybe he could sort of just play dumb, act confused, like he was lost. Wouldn't have to play dumb, Daydan continued under his breath. Could just be dumb. Tempe looked at Daydan, still expressionless, but with more intensity than before. He drew a slow, deliberate breath before speaking. Quiet is not stupid, he said his voice flat. You always talk. Check, 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 check. He made a motion with one hand, like a mouth opening and closing. Always. Like dog all night barking a tree. Try to be big. No, just noise. Just dog. I shouldn't have laughed, but it caught me completely off guard, partly because I thought of Tempe as so quiet and passive, and partly because he was absolutely right. If Daydan were a dog, he would be a dog that barked endlessly at nothing, barking just to hear himself bark. Still, I shouldn't have laughed, but I did. Hespa laughed too and tried to hide it, which was worse. Daydan's face went dark with anger, and he got to his feet. You come here and say that. Still expressionless, Tempe stood and walked around the fire until he stood next to Daydan. Well, if I say he stood next to him, you will take the wrong impression. Most people stand two or three feet away when talking to you, but Tempe walked until he was less than a foot away from Daydan. To get any closer, he would have had to give him a hug or climb him. I could lie and say this happened too quickly for me to intervene, but that wouldn't be true. The simple truth was that I couldn't think of an easy way to break up the situation. But the more complicated truth was that I was pretty fed up with Daydan myself by this point. What's more, this was the most I'd ever heard Tempe speak. For the first time since I'd met him, he was behaving like a person, not just some mute ambulatory doll. And I was curious to see him fight. I'd heard a lot about the legendary Adem prowess, 
and I was hoping to see it thump some of the sullen mutter out of Daydan's thick head. Tempe walked up to Daydan, standing close enough to put his arms around him. Daydan stood a full head taller, broader across the shoulders, and thicker in the chest. Tempe looked up at him without a trace of anything you might expect to see on his face. No bravado, no mocking smile, nothing. Just dog, Tempe said softly with no particular inflection. Big noise dog. He lifted up his hand and made a mouth of it again. Chick, chick, chick. Daydan lifted a hand and shoved hard against Tempe's chest. I'd seen this sort of thing countless times in the taverns near the university. It was the sort of shove that sends a man staggering backward, off balance, and prone to stagger and trip. Except Tempe didn't stagger. He just stepped away. Then he reached out casually and cuffed Daydan along one side of his head, the way a parent might swat an unruly child in the market. It wasn't even hard enough to move Daydan's head, but we could all hear a soft paff sound, and Daydan's hair puffed out like a milkweed pod someone had blown against. Daydan stood still for a moment, as if he couldn't quite understand what had happened. Then he frowned and brought both hands up to give Tempe a more violent shove. Tempe stepped away from this, too, then swatted Daydan on the other side of his head. Daydan scowled, grunted, and brought his hands up making fists. He was a big man, and his mercenary leathers creaked and strained at the shoulders as he lifted his arms. He waited a moment, obviously hoping Tempe would make the first move. Then he stomped forward, drew his arm back, and threw a punch, hard and heavy as a farmhand swinging an axe. Tempe saw it coming and stepped away a third time, but halfway through his clumsy swing, everything about Daydan changed. He raised himself up on the balls of his feet, and his ponderous haymaker punch evaporated. Suddenly, he no longer looked like a lumbering bull, and instead, he darted forward and snapped out three quick punches, fast as a bird's wing flapping. Tempe sidestepped one, slapped the other aside, but the third caught him high on the shoulder, spinning him partway around and knocking him backward. He took two quick steps out of Daydan's reach, regained his balance, and shook himself slightly. Then he laughed, high and delighted. The sound softened the expression on Daydan's face, and he grinned in return, though he didn't lower his hands or move off the balls of his feet. Despite this, Tempe stepped up, avoided another jab, and struck Daydan in the face with the flat of his hand. Not across the cheek, as if they were squabbling lovers on stage. Tempe's hand came down from above and struck Daydan across the front of his face, from his forehead down to his chin. Ah! Daydan shouted. Black damn! He staggered away, clutching at his nose. What's wrong with you? Did you just slap me? He peered out at Tempe from behind his hand. You fight like a woman! For a moment, Tempe looked as if he might object. Then he gave the first smile I had ever seen from him and gave a small nod and a shrug instead. Yes, I fight like a woman. Daydan hesitated, then laughed and clapped Tempe roughly on the shoulder. I half expected Tempe to dart away from his touch, but instead the Adam returned the gesture, even to the point of gripping Daydan's shoulder and jostling him around playfully. 
The display struck me as odd coming from someone who had been so reserved over the last several days, but I decided not to look a gift horse in the mouth. Anything other than fidgety silence from the ADEM was a blessing. Even better, I now had a measure of Tempe's fighting ability. Whether or not Daydan wanted to admit it, Tempe obviously had the better of him. I guess the ADEM reputation was more than just empty air. Martin watched Tempe return to his seat. Those clothes are still a problem, the woodsman said, as if nothing much had happened. He eyed Tempe's blood-red shirt and pants. Might as well run around waving a flag as wear that in the trees. I'll talk with him about it, I told the others. If Tempe was self-conscious about his Aturin, I guessed our conversation would go more smoothly without an audience. And I'll work out what he'll do if he runs into them. You three can go settle in and get dinner started. The three of them scattered off, looking to claim the prime places for their bedrolls. Tempe watched them go, then turned back to look at me. He glanced down at the ground and took a small, shuffling step away. Tempe? He cocked his head and looked at me. We need to talk about your clothing. It happened again as soon as I started to talk. His attention slowly slid away from me, his eyes drifting down and to the side, as if he couldn't be bothered to actually listen, as if he were a sulky child. I don't need to tell you how infuriating it is to try and have a discussion with the person who won't look you in the eye. Still, I didn't have the luxury of taking offense or putting off this talk. I'd already delayed this conversation too long. Tempe. I fought the urge to snap my fingers in order to draw his attention back to me. Your clothes are red, I said, trying to keep it as simple as possible. Easy to see. Dangerous. He gave no response for a long moment. Then his pale eyes darted up to mine and he nodded, a simple bob of the head. I began to have a horrible suspicion that he might not actually understand what it was we were doing out here in the Eld. Tempe, you know what we are doing out here in the forest? Tempe's eyes moved to my rough sketch in the dirt, then back up at me. He shrugged and made a vague gesture with both hands. What is many, but not all? At first, I thought he was asking some strange philosophical question. Then I realized he was asking for a word. I held up my hand and grabbed two of my fingers. Some? I grabbed three fingers. Most? Tempe watched my hands intently, nodding. Most, he said, fidgeting. I know most. Talk is fast. We are looking for men. His eyes slid away as soon as I started to speak, and I fought the urge to sigh. We are trying to find men. Nod. Yes. Hunt men. He stressed the word. Hunt Visanta. At least he knew why we were here. Red? I reached out and touched the red leather strap that held the fabric of his shirt tight to his body. It was surprisingly soft. For hunting. Do you have other clothes? Not red? Tempe looked down at his outfit, fidgeting. 
Then he nodded and went over to his pack and drew out a shirt of plain gray homespun. He held it up for me. For hunting, but not fighting. I wasn't sure what his distinction meant, but I was willing to let it go for now. What will you do if Visanta find you in the forest? I asked. Talk or fight? He seemed to think about it for a moment. Not good at talk, he admitted. Visanta, fight. I nodded. One bandit, fight. Two, talk. He shrugged. Can fight too. Fight and win? He gave another nonchalant shrug and pointed to where Daydan was carefully picking twigs out of the sod. Like him? Three or four? He held out his hand, palm up, as if offering me something. If three bandit, I fight. If four, I try best talk. I wait until three night. Then... He made an odd, elaborate gesture with both hands. Fire intense. I relaxed, glad he had followed our earlier discussion. Yes. Good. Thank you. The five of us had a quiet dinner of soup, bread, and a rather unimpressive gummy cheese we'd bought in Crossan. Daydan and Hespa bickered in a friendly way and I speculated with Martin about what sort of weather we might expect over the next few days. Other than that, there wasn't much chatter. Two of us had already come to blows. We'd come a hundred miles since Severin, and we were all aware of the grim work ahead of us. Hold on, Martin said. What if they catch you? He looked up at me. We all have a plan if the bandits find us. We head back with them, and you'll track us down on the third day. I nodded. And don't forget the distraction. Martin looked anxious. But what if they catch you? I don't have any magic. I can't guarantee I'll be able to track them down by that third night. Probably, sure, but tracking isn't a certain thing. I'm just a harmless musician, I reassured him. I got in some trouble with the Baronet Banbride's niece and thought it would be best if I legged it into the forest for a while. I grinned. They might rob me, but as I don't have much, they'll probably just let me go. I'm a persuasive fellow, and I don't look like much of a threat. Daydan muttered something under his breath I was glad I couldn't hear. But what if? Hesper pressed. Martin's got a point. What if they take you back with them? That was something I hadn't figured out yet. But rather than end the evening on a sour note, I smiled my most confident smile. If they take me back to their camp, I should be able to kill them off myself without much trouble. I shrugged with exaggerated nonchalance. I'll meet you back at camp after the job is done. I thumped the ground beside me, grinning. I had intended it as a joke, sure Martin at least would chuckle at my flippant response. But I'd underestimated how deep Vintic's superstition tends to run, and my comment was met with an uncomfortable silence. There was little conversation after that. We drew lots for the watch, 
doused the fire, and one by one we drifted off to sleep. Chapter 79 Signs After breakfast, Martin began teaching Tempe and me how to search for the bandit's trail. Anyone can spot a piece of torn shirt hanging from a branch or a footprint gouged into the dirt, but those things never happen in real life. They make for convenient plot devices and plays, but really, when have you ever torn your clothing so seriously that you've left a piece of it behind? Never. The people we were hunting were clever, so we couldn't count on them making any obvious mistakes. That meant Martin was the only one among us who had any idea what we were really looking for. Any broken twig, he said. They'll mostly be where things are thick and tangled, waist high or ankle high. He gestured as if kicking through thick scrub and pushing things aside with his hands. Seeing the actual break is hard, so look at the leaves instead. He gestured to a nearby bush. What do you see there? Tempe pointed at a lower branch. He wore his plain gray homespun today, and without his mercenary reds, he looked even less imposing. I looked where Tempe was pointing and saw the branch had been snapped, but not badly enough to break off. So someone has been through here? I asked. Martin shrugged his bow higher up on his shoulder. I was. I did this last night. He looked at us. See how even the leaves that aren't hanging strange are starting to wilt? I nodded. That means someone has been by this way within a day or so. If it's been two or three days, the leaves will brown out and die. You see both close to each other. He looked at me. It means you have someone moving through the area more than once, days apart. He nodded. Since I'm scouting and keeping an eye out for bandits, you'll be the ones with your noses to the ground. When you find something like this, call me. Call? Tempe cupped his hands around his mouth and turned his head in different directions. He made a wide gesture to the surrounding trees and put his hand to his ear, pretending to listen. Martin frowned. You're right. You can't just go shouting for me. He rubbed the back of his neck in frustration. Damn. We didn't think this all the way through. I smiled at him. I thought it through, I said, and brought out a rough wooden whistle I'd carved last night. It only had two notes, but that was all we needed. I put it to my mouth and blew ta-ta-dee, ta-ta-dee. Martin grinned. That's a Will's widow, isn't it? The pitch is dead on. I nodded. That's what I do. He cleared his throat. Unfortunately, Will's widow is also called a night jar. He grimaced apologetically. Night jar, mind you. That'll catch at the ear of any experienced woodman like a fishhook if you go blowing it every time you want me to come take a look at something. I looked down at the whistle. Black hands, I swore. I should have thought of that. It's a good idea, he said. We just need one for a daytime bird. Maybe a gold piper. He whistled two notes. That should be simple enough. I'll carve a different one tonight, I said, then reached down for a twig. I snapped it 
and handed half to Martin. This will do if I need to signal you today. He looked at the stick oddly. How exactly will this help? When we need your opinion on something we found, I'll do this. I concentrated, muttered a binding, and moved my half of the stick. Martin jumped two feet up and five feet back, dropping the stick. To his credit, he didn't shout. What in ten hells was that? he hissed, wringing his hand. His reaction had startled me, and my own heart was racing. Martin, I'm sorry. It's just a little sympathy. I saw a wrinkle in between his eyebrows and changed my tack. Just a small magic. It's like a bit of magic string I use to tie two things together. I imagined Elksadal swallowing his tongue at this description, but pressed ahead. I can tie these things together, so when I tug on mine... I moved to stand over where his half of the twig lay on the ground. I raised my half, and the half on the ground lifted into the air. My display had the desired effect. Moving together, the two twigs looked like the crudest, saddest string puppet in the world. Nothing to be frightened of. It's just like invisible string, except it won't get tangled or caught on anything. How hard will it pull at me? He asked warily. I don't want it yanking me out of a tree when I'm scouting. It's just me on the other end of the string, I said. I'll just jiggle it a bit, like the float on a fishing line. Martin stopped wringing his hand and relaxed a little. Startled me is all, he said. That's my fault, I said. I should have warned you. I picked up the stick, handling it with a deliberate casualness as if it were nothing more than an ordinary stick. Of course, it was nothing more than an ordinary stick, but Martin needed to be reassured as to that point. It's like Tecum said, nothing in the world is harder than convincing someone of an unfamiliar truth. Martin showed us how to see when leaves or needles had been disturbed, how to spot when stones had been walked across, how to tell if moss or lichen had been damaged by someone's passing. The old huntsman was a surprisingly good teacher. He didn't belabor his points, didn't talk down to us, and didn't mind questions. Even Tempe's trouble with the language didn't frustrate him. Even so, it took hours, a full half day. Then, when I thought we were finally finished, Martin turned us around and started leading us back toward the camp. We've already been that way, I said. If we're going to practice, let's practice in the right direction. Martin ignored me and kept walking. Tell me what you see. Twenty paces later, Tempe pointed. Moss, he said. My foot. I've walked. Realization dawned, and I began to see all the marks Tempe and I had made. For the next three hours, Martin walked a step by humiliating step back through the trees, showing us everything we had done to betray our presence there a scuff against the lichen on a tree trunk, a piece of freshly broken rock, the discoloration of overturned pine needles. Worst of all were a half-dozen bright green leaves that lay shredded on the ground in a tiny semicircle. Martin raised an eyebrow and I blushed. I had plucked them from a nearby bush, idly shredding them while listening to Martin. Think twice and step carefully, Martin said and keep an eye on each other.
He looked back and forth between Tempe and me. We're playing a dangerous game here. Then Martin showed us how to cover our tracks. It quickly became clear that a poorly concealed sign was often more obvious than one simply left alone. So over the next two hours, we learned how to hide our mistakes and spot mistakes that others had tried to hide. Only then, as afternoon was turning to evening, did Tempe and I begin searching this swath of forest bigger than most baronies. We walked close together, zigzagging back and forth, looking for any sign of the bandit's trail. I thought about the long days stretching out ahead of us. I'd thought searching the archives had been tedious. But looking for a broken twig in this much forest made hunting for the gram seem like going to the baker for a bun. In the archives, I had the chance to make accidental discoveries. In the archives, I'd had my friends, conversation, jokes, affection. Looking sideways at Tempe, I realized I could count the words he had said today. Twenty-four and the number of times he had met my eye. Three. How long would this take? Ten days? Twenty? Merciful Taylu, could I spend a month out here without going mad? With thoughts like this, when I saw some bark chipped off a tree and a tuft of grass bent the wrong way, I was flooded with relief. Not wanting to get my hopes up, I motioned to Tempe. Do you see anything here? He nodded fidgeting with the collar of his shirt, then pointed to the grass I'd spotted. Then he pointed to a scuffed bit of exposed root I hadn't noticed. Almost light-headed with excitement, I pulled out the oak twig and signaled Martin. I twitched it very gently, not wanting to send him into another panic. It was only two minutes before Martin came out of the trees, but in that time I had already formed three plans as to how to track and kill the bandits, composed five apologetic soliloquies to Denna, and decided that when I got back to Severin, I would donate money to the Talon Church as thanks for this tangible miracle. I expected Martin to be irritated that we'd called him back so soon, but his expression was purely matter-of-fact as he came to stand next to us. I pointed out the grass, the bark, and the root. Tempe spotted the last, I said, giving credit where credit is due. Good, he said seriously. Good job. There's also a bent branch over there. He gestured a few paces off to the right. I turned to face the direction the trail seemed to indicate. Odds are they're going to be north of here, I said. Farther from the road. Do you think it would be better to scout things out a bit now, or wait until tomorrow when we're fresh? Martin squinted at me. Good lord, boy. These aren't real trail signs. So obvious, all so close together. He gave me a long look. I left them. I needed to make sure you weren't going to glaze over after a few minutes of looking. My elation fell from some place in my chest and landed around my feet, shattering like a glass jar tipped from a high shelf. My expression must have been pitiful, as Martin gave me an apologetic smile. I'm sorry. I should have told you. I'll be doing it off and on every day. It's the only chance we have to stay alert. This isn't my first time hunting through haystacks, you know. The third time we called Martin back, he suggested we make a standing wager. Tempe and I would win a halfpenny for every sign we found, and he'd win a silver bit for every one we missed. I jumped at the offer. 
Not only would it help keep us on our toes, but five to one odds seemed rather generous. This made the rest of the day pass quickly. Tempe and I missed a few signs. A log shifted out of place, some scattered leaves, and a broken spider web. I thought this last one was a bit unfair, but even so, by the time we headed back to camp that evening, Tempe and I were two pennies ahead. Over supper, Martin told a story about a young widow's son who left home to make his fortune. A tinker sold him a pair of magic boots that helped him rescue a princess from a tower high in the mountains. Daydan nodded along while he ate, smiling as if he'd heard it before. Hespa laughed in places, gasped in others, the perfect audience. Tempe sat perfectly still with his hands folded in his lap, showing none of the nervous restlessness I'd come to expect from him. He stayed that way through the entire story, listening while his dinner grew cold. The story was a good one. There was a hungry giant and a riddle game, but the widow's son was clever, and in the end he brought the princess back and married her. It was a familiar story, and listening to it reminded me of days long gone, back when I had a home, a family. Chapter 80 Tone the next day Martin left with Hespa and Daydan while Tempe and I remained behind to keep an eye on the camp. With nothing else to occupy my time, I started gathering extra firewood. Then I searched for useful herbs in the undergrowth and brought water from the nearby spring. Then I busied myself by unpacking, sorting, and rearranging everything in my travel sack. Tempe disassembled his sword, meticulously cleaning and oiling all the pieces. He didn't look bored, but then again, he never looked like anything. By midday, I was nearly mad with boredom. I would have read, but I hadn't brought a book. I would have sewn pockets into my threadbare cloak, but I didn't have any spare cloth. I would have played my lute, but a trooper's lute is designed to carry music through a noisy taproom. Out here, the sound of it could carry for miles. I would have chatted with Tempe, but trying to have a conversation with him was like playing catch with a well. Still, it seemed to be my only option. I walked over to where Tempe sat. He had finished cleaning his sword and was making small adjustments to the leather grip. Tempe? Tempe lay aside his sword and came to his feet. He stood uncomfortably close to me, with barely more than eight inches of space between us. Then he hesitated and frowned. It wasn't much of a frown, barely a thinning of the lips and a slight line between his eyebrows, but on Tempe's blank sheet of a face, it stood out like a word written in red ink. He backed away from me by two good paces, then eyed the ground between us and stepped forward slightly. Understanding dawned on me. Tempe, how close do Adem stand? Tempe looked at me blankly for a second then burst out laughing. A shy smile flickered onto his face, making him look very young. It left his mouth quickly, but lingered around his eyes. Smart. Yes. Different in a damn. For you, close. He stepped uncomfortably close, then backed away. For me? I asked. Is it different for different people? He nodded. Yes. How close for Daydan? He fidgeted. Complicated. 
I felt a familiar curiosity flicker up inside me. Tempe, I asked, would you teach me these things? Teach me your language? Yes, he said, and though his face betrayed none of it, I could hear a great weight of relief in his voice. Yes, please, yes. By the end of the afternoon, I had learned a wild, useless scattering of Adamic words. The grammar was still a mystery, but that is how it always begins. Luckily, languages are like musical instruments. The more you know, the easier it is to pick up new ones. Adamic was my fourth. Our major problem was that Tempe's Aturin was not very good, which gave us little common ground. So we drew in the dirt, pointed, and waved our hands quite a bit. Several times, when mere gestures were not enough, we ended up performing something close to pantomime or little mummer's plays in order to get our meaning across. It was more entertaining than I had expected. There was one stumbling block the first day. I had learned a dozen words and thought of another that would be useful. I made a fist and pretended to throw a punch at Tempe. Friyat, he said. Friyat, I repeated. He shook his head. No. Friyat. Friyat, I said carefully. No, he said firmly. Friyat is... He bared his teeth and worked his jaw as if he were biting something. Freyat. He punched his fist into his palm. Freyat, I said. No. I was amazed at the weight of condescension in his voice. Freyat. My face got hot. That's what I'm saying. Freyat, Freyat, Free. Tempe reached out and smacked me in the side of the head with the flat of his hand. It was the same way he had struck Daydan last night, the way my father had cuffed me when I was being troublesome in public. It wasn't hard enough to hurt. It was just startling. No one had done that to me in years. Even more startling was that I hardly saw it. The motion was smooth and lazy and faster than snapping your fingers. He didn't seem to mean anything insulting by it. He was merely getting my attention. He lifted his sandy hair and pointed to his ear. Here, he said firmly. Friyat. He bared his teeth again, making a biting motion. Friyat. Raised fist. Friyat. 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 And I did hear it. It wasn't the sound of the word itself. It was the cadence of the word. Free yacht, I said. He favored me with a small, rare smile. Yes. Good. Then I had to go back and relearn all the words, making note of their rhythm. I hadn't really heard it before, just mimicked it. Slowly, I discovered each word could have several different meanings depending on cadence of the sound that composed them. I learned the all-important phrases, what does that mean, and explain that more slowly, in addition to a couple dozen words, fight, look, sword, hand, dance. The dumb show I had to perform to get him to understand the last of these left both of us laughing. It was fascinating. 
The different cadences of each word meant the language itself had a sort of music to it. I couldn't help but wonder. Tempe, I asked, what are your songs like? He looked at me blankly for a moment, and I thought he might not understand the abstract question. Could you sing me an Adem song? But this song, he asked. In the last hour, Tempe had learned twice as many words as I had. I cleared my throat and sang. Little Jenny No Shoes went a-walking with the wind. She was looking for a bonny boy to laugh and make her grin. Upon her head a feather cap, upon her lips a whistle. Her lips were wet and honey-sweet, her tongue was sharp as thistle. Tempe's eyes went wide as I sang. He practically gaped. You? I prompted, pointing to his chest. Can you sing an Adem song? His face blushed a burning red, and a dozen emotions ran wild and undisguised over his face. Astonishment, horror, embarrassment, shock, disgust. He got to his feet, turning away and chattering something in Ademic far too quickly for me to follow. He looked for all the world as if I just asked him to strip naked and dance for me. No, he said, managing to collect himself somewhat. His face was composed again but his fair skin was still flushed a violent red. No. Looking down at the ground, he touched his chest, shaking his head. No song. No Adem song. I got to my feet as well, not knowing what I'd done wrong. Tempe, I'm sorry. Tempe shook his head. No. Nothing sorry. He drew a deep breath and shook his head as he turned and started to walk away. Complicated. Chapter 81 The Jealous Moon That evening, Martin shot a trio of fat rabbits. I dug roots and picked a few herbs, and before the sun was down, the five of us sat down to a meal made perfect by the addition of two large loaves of fresh bread, butter, and a crumbly cheese too local to have any specific name. Spirits were high after a day of good weather, and so with dinner came more stories. Hespa told a surprisingly romantic tale of a queen who loved a serving boy. She told her story with a gentle passion, and if her telling didn't show a tender heart, the looks she gave Daydan as she spoke of the queen's love did. Daydan, however, failed to see the marks of love on her and, with a folly I have rarely seen equaled, he began to tell a story he'd heard at the Pennysworth Inn, a tale of Felurian. The boy who told me this was hardly as old as Quoth here, Daydan said, and if you'd heard him talk, you'd have seen he wasn't the sort who could invent such a tale. The mercenary tapped his temple meaningfully. But listen, and judge for yourself if it's worth believing. As I've said, Daydan had a good tongue in his head, and a sharper wit than you'd guess, when he decided to use it. Unfortunately, this was one of the times that the former was working, and the latter was not. For time out of mind, men have been wary of this stretch of woods, not for fear of lawless men or becoming lost. He shook his head. No, they say the fair folk make their homes here. Cloven-hoofed pucks that dance when the moon is full. Dark things with long fingers that steal babes from cribs. 
Many's the woman, old wife or new, who leaves out bread and milk at night. And many's the man who makes well sure he builds his house with all his doors in a row. Some might call these folks superstitious, but they know the truth. The safest thing is to avoid the fay, but barring that, you want to keep in their good graces. This is a story of Felurian, Lady of Twilight, Lady of the First Quiet, Felurian, who is deaf to men, but a glad deaf, and one they go to willingly. Tempe drew a breath. It was a small motion but it was eye-catching as he'd continued his habit of sitting perfectly still through the evening's stories. Now this made better sense to me. He was being quiet. Felurian, Tempe asked. Death to man. She is... He paused. She is... Sentin. He lifted his hands in front of himself and made a sort of gripping gesture. He eyed us expectantly. Then, seeing we didn't understand, he touched his sword where it lay at his side. I understood. No, I said. She's not one of the Adem. Tempe shook his head and pointed at Martin's bow. I shook my head. No, she's not a fighter at all. She... I trailed off, unable to think of how I would explain how Felurian killed men, especially if we were forced to resort to gestures. Desperate... I looked to Daydan for help. Daydan didn't hesitate. Sex, he said frankly. Do you know sex? Tempe blinked, then threw back his head and laughed. Daydan looked as if he were trying to decide whether or not to be offended. After a moment, Tempe caught his breath. Yes, he said simply. Yes, I know sex. Daydan smiled. That's how she kills men. For a moment, Tempe looked more blank than usual. Then a slow horror spread across his face. No, not horror. It was raw disgust and revulsion, made all the worse by the fact that his face was usually so blank. His hand clenched into several unfamiliar gestures at his side. How? He choked out the word. Daydan started to say something, then stopped. Then he started to make a gesture and stopped that as well, looking self-consciously at Hespa. Hespa chuckled low in her throat and turned to Tempe. She thought for a moment, then made a gesture as if holding someone in her arms, kissing them. Then she began to tap her chest rhythmically, mimicking a heartbeat. She beat faster and faster, then stopped clenching her hand into a fist and making her eyes wide. She tensed her whole body, then went limp, lolling her head to one side. Dayden laughed and clapped at her performance. That's it, but sometimes... He tapped his temple, then snapped his fingers, crossing his eyes and sticking out his tongue. Crazy! Tempe relaxed. Oh, he said, plainly relieved. Good, yes. Daydan nodded and settled back into his story. Right. Felurian. Fondest desire of all men. Beauty beyond compare. For Tempe's benefit, he made a gesture as if he were brushing out long hair. Twenty years ago, 
This boy's father and uncle were out hunting in this very stretch of forest as the sun began to set. They stayed out later than they should, then decided to make their way home by cutting straight through the forest instead of using the road like sensible folk. They hadn't been walking very long when they heard singing in the distance. They made their way toward it, thinking they were close to the road, but instead they found themselves at the edge of a small clearing, and there stood Felorian singing softly to herself. Ceylani and Luhiel, Dumari Felanua, Criata tu Sier, tu Alaran Diderella, Amawan, Losi Andalan, tu Niavorulan, Felurian Thay. Though Daydan made rough work of the tune, I shivered at the sound of it. The melody was eerie, compelling, and utterly unfamiliar. I didn't recognize the language either, not a bit of it. Daydan nodded as he saw my reaction. More than anything, that song gives the boy's story the ring of truth. I can't put a bit of sense to those words, but they stuck right in my head even though he only sang it once. So the two brothers are huddled at the edge of the clearing, and thanks to the moon, they could see like it was noon instead of night. She wasn't wearing a stitch, and though her hair was almost to her waist, it were real obvious she was as naked as the moon. I have always enjoyed stories about Felurian, but as I glanced at Hesper, my anticipation cooled. She was watching Daydan, and as he spoke, her eyes narrowed. Daydan failed to see this. She was tall with long, graceful legs. Her waist was slender, her hips curved as if begging for the touch of a hand. Her stomach was perfect and smooth, like a flawless piece of birch bark, and the dimple of her navel seemed made for kissing. Hesper's eyes were dangerous slits by this point, but even more telling was her mouth, which had formed a thin, straight line. A word of advice to you. Should you ever see that look on a woman's face, leave off talking at once and sit on both your hands. It may not mend matters, but it will at least keep you from making them any worse. Unfortunately, Daydan continued, his thick hands gesturing in the firelight. Her breasts were full and round, like peaches waiting to be taken from the tree. Even the jealous moon which steals the color from all things couldn't hide the rosy... Hespa made a disgusted noise and pushed herself to her feet. I'll just leave then, she said. Her voice held such a chill even Daydan couldn't miss it. What? He looked up to her, still holding his hands in front of himself, frozen in the act of cupping an imagined pair of breasts. She stormed away, muttering under her breath. Daydan let his hands drop heavily into his lap. His expression moved from confused to injured to angry in the space of a breath. After a second, he got to his feet, roughly brushing bits of leaf and twig from his pants and muttering to himself. Gathering up his blankets, he started toward the other side of our little clearing. Did it end with both brothers chasing after her and the boy's father falling behind? I asked. Daydan looked back at me. You've already heard it, then. You could have stopped me if you didn't. I'm just guessing. I said quickly. I hate not hearing the ending of a story. Father put his foot in a rabbit hole, Daydan said shortly. Sprained his ankle. Nobody saw the uncle again. He stalked out of the circle of firelight 
his expression grim. I cast an imploring look at Martin, who shook his head. No, he said softly. I won't have any part of it. Not for the world. Trying to help right now would be like trying to put out a fire with my hands. Painful and with no real results. Tempe began to make up his bed. Martin made a circular gesture with one finger and gave me a questioning look, asking if I wanted the first watch. I nodded, and he gathered up his bedroll, saying, Attractive as some things are, you have to weigh your risks. How badly do you want it? How badly are you willing to be burned? I spread the fire, and soon the deep dark of night settled into the clearing. I lay on my back, looked at the stars, and thought of Denna. Chapter 82 Barbarians The next day Tempe and I moved camp while Dayden and Hespa walked back to Crossen for supplies. Martin scouted out an isolated piece of flat ground close to water. Then we packed and moved everything, dug the privy, built the fire pit, and generally got everything settled. Tempe was willing to talk as we worked, but I was nervous. I had offended him by asking about the Lethani early on, so I knew to avoid that subject. But if he was upset by a simple question about singing, how could I begin to guess what might offend him? Again, his blank expression and refusal to make eye contact were the main problems. How could I make intelligent conversation with a person when I had no idea how he felt? It was like trying to walk blindfolded through an unfamiliar house. So, I took the safer road and simply asked for more words as we worked. Objects for the most part, as we were both too busy with our hands to pantomime. Best of all, Tempe got to practice his Aturin while I built up my Edemic vocabulary. I noticed the more mistakes I made in his language, the more comfortable he grew in his own attempts at expressing himself. This meant, of course, that I made many mistakes. In fact, I was occasionally so thick-headed that Tempe was forced to explain himself several times in several different ways. All in a Turin, of course. We finished setting up camp around noon. Martin left to go hunting, and Tempe stretched and began to move through his slow dance. He did it twice in a row, and I began to suspect he was somewhat bored himself. By the time he finished... He was covered in a sheen of sweat and told me he was going to bathe. With the camp to myself, I melted down the tinker's candles to make two small wax simulacra. I'd been wanting to do this for days, but even at the university, creating a mummet was questionable behavior. Here in Vintus, suffice to say, I thought it best to be discreet. It wasn't elegant work. Tallow isn't nearly as convenient as sympathy wax, but even the crudest mommet can be a devastating thing. Once I had them tucked into my travel sack, I felt much better prepared. I was cleaning the last of the tallow off my fingers when Tempe returned from his bath, naked as a new baby. Years of stage training allowed me to keep a calm expression, but just barely. After spreading his wet clothing over a nearby branch to dry, Tempe walked over to me without showing the least embarrassment or modesty. He held out his right hand, thumb and forefinger pinched together. What is this? He spread his fingers slightly for me to see. I looked closely, glad to have something to focus my attention on. That's a tick. This close, 
I couldn't help but notice his scars again, faint lines crossing his arms and chest. I could read scars from my time in the Medica, and his didn't show the wide, puckered pink that would indicate a deep wound cutting through the layers of skin, fat, and muscle underneath. These were shallow wounds, dozens of them. I couldn't help but wonder how long he had been a mercenary to have scars so old. He didn't look much older than twenty. Oblivious to my scrutiny, Tempe stared at the thing between his fingers. It bites. On me. Bites and stays. His expression was blank as always, but his tone was tinged with disgust. His left hand fidgeted. There are no ticks in Edemre? No. He made a point of trying to pinch it between his fingers. It not break. I gestured, showing him how to crush it between his fingernails, which he did with a certain amount of relish. He threw it away and stalked back to his bedroll. Then, still naked, he proceeded to pull out all his clothing and give it a vigorous shaking. I kept my eyes averted, knowing deep down in my heart that this would be the moment Daydan and Hespa would return from Crossan. Thankfully, they didn't. After a quarter hour or so, Tempe put on a pair of dry pants, carefully inspecting them first. Shirtless, he walked back to where I sat. I hate Tick, he declared. When he spoke, his left hand made a sharp gesture, as if he were brushing crumbs off the front of his shirt near his hip. Except he wasn't wearing a shirt, and there was nothing on his bare skin to brush away. What's more, I realized he'd made the same gesture earlier. In fact, now that I thought of it, I'd seen him make that gesture a half-dozen times in the last several days, though never so violently. I had a sudden suspicion. Tempe, what does this mean? I mimicked the brushing-away gesture. He nodded. It is this. He scrunched his face up in an exaggerated expression of disgust. My mind went spinning back over the last span of days, thinking of how many times I had seen Tempe fidgeting restlessly while we talked. I reeled at the thought of it. Tempe, I asked, is all of this... I made a gesture to my face, then smiled, frowned, rolled my eyes. Does all this happen with hands in Edemic? He nodded and made a gesture at the same time. That! I pointed at his hand. What is that? He hesitated, then gave a forced, awkward-looking smile. I copied the gesture, splaying my hand slightly and pressing my thumb to the inside of my middle finger. No, he said. Other hand. Left. Why? He reached out and thumped on my chest, just left of the breastbone. Tum-tump, tum-tump. Then he ran a finger down to my left hand. I nodded to show I understood. It was closest to the heart. He held up his right hand and made a fist. This hand is strong. He held up his left. This hand is clever. It made sense. That is why most lutists cord with the left hand and strum with their right. The left hand is more nimble as a rule. I made the gesture with my left hand, fingers splayed. Tempe shook his head. That is this. 
he quirked half of his mouth up into a smirk. The expression seemed so out of place on his face that it was all I could do to keep from gawking. I looked more closely at his hand and adjusted the position of my fingers slightly. He nodded approval. His face was expressionless, but for the first time I understood why. In the hours that followed, I learned that edemic hand gestures did not actually represent facial expressions. It was nothing so simple as that. For example, a smile can mean you're amused, happy, grateful, or satisfied. You can smile to comfort someone. You can smile because you're content or because you're in love. A grimace or a grin looks similar to a smile, but they mean entirely different things. Imagine trying to teach someone how to smile. Imagine trying to describe what different smiles mean and when precisely to use them in conversation. It's harder than learning to walk. Suddenly, so many things made sense. Of course Tempe wouldn't look me in the eye. There was nothing to be gained by looking at the face of the person you were talking to. You listened to the voice, but you watched the hand. I spent the next several hours attempting to learn the basics, but it was maddeningly difficult. Words are fairly simple things. You can point to a stone. You can act out running or jumping. But have you ever tried to pantomime compliance? Respect? Sarcasm? I doubt even my father could have accomplished such a thing. Because of this, my progress was frustratingly slow, but I couldn't help but be fascinated. It was like suddenly being given a second tongue. And it was a secret thing, of sorts. I have always had a weakness for secrets. It took three hours to learn a handful of gestures, if you'll pardon the pun. My progress felt glacial, but when I finally learned the handspeak for understatement, I felt a glow of pride that can barely be described. I think Tempe felt it too. Good, he said with a flattening of the hand I was fairly certain indicated approval. He rolled his shoulders and got to his feet, stretching. He glanced at the sun through the branches overhead. Food now? Soon, there was one question that had been bothering me. Tempe, why make all this work? I asked. A smile is easy. Why smile with your hands? With hands is easy too. Better. More... He made a slightly modified version of the shirt-brushing gesture he'd used earlier. Not disgust. Irritation? What is the word for people living together? Roads. Right things. He ran his thumb along his collarbone. Was that frustration? What is word for good together living? Nobody shits in the well. I laughed. Civilization? He nodded, splaying his fingers. Amusement. Yes, he said. Speaking with hands is civilization. But smiling is natural, I protested. Everyone smiles. Natural is not civilization, Tempe said. Cooking meat is civilization. Washing off stink is civilization. So in Edemre you always smile with hands? I wished I knew the gesture for dismay. No. Smiling with face good with family. Good with some friend. Why only family? 
Tempe repeated his thumb on collarbone gesture again. Then you make this. He pressed his palm to the side of his face and blew air into it, making a great flatulent noise. That is natural, but you do not make it near others. Rude. With family, he shrugged. Amusement. Civilization not important. More natural with family. What about laughing? I asked. I have seen you laugh. I made a ha-ha sound so he knew what I was talking about. He shrugged. Laughing is. I waited for a moment, but he didn't seem inclined to continue. I tried again. Why not laugh with hands? Tempe shook his head. No, laugh is different. He stepped close and used two fingers to tap my chest over my heart. Smile. He ran his finger down my left arm. Angry. He tapped my heart again. He made a scared expression, a confused one, and poked his lip out in a ridiculous pout. Each time he tapped my chest. But laugh? He pressed the flat of his hand against my stomach. Here lives laugh. He ran his fingers straight up to my mouth and spread his fingers. Pushback laugh is not good, not healthy. Also cry? I asked. I traced an imaginary tear down my cheek with one finger. Also cry. He put his hand on his own belly. Ha, 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 he said, pressing in with his hand to show me the motion of his stomach. Then his expression changed to sad. Ho, ho, ho. He heaved with exaggerated sobs, pressing his stomach again. Same place. Not healthy to push down. I nodded slowly, trying to imagine what it must be like for Tempe, constantly assaulted by people too rude to keep their expressions to themselves. People whose hands constantly made gestures that were nonsense. It must be very hard for you out here. Not so hard. Understatement. When I leave Edemre, I know this. Not civilization. Barbarians are rude. Barbarians? He made a wide gesture, encompassing our clearing, the forest, all of Vintus. Everyone here like dogs. He made a grotesquely exaggerated expression of rage, showing all his teeth, snarling and rolling his eyes madly. That is all you know. He shrugged nonchalant acceptance, as if to say he didn't hold it against us. What of children? I asked. Children smile before they talk. Is that wrong? Tempe shook his head. All children barbarians. All smile with face. All children rude. But they go old. Watch. Learn. He paused thoughtfully, choosing his words. Barbarians have no woman to teach them civilization. Barbarians cannot learn. I could tell he didn't mean any offense, but it made me more determined than ever to learn the particulars of the Adem hand talk. Tempe stood and began limbering up with a number of stretches similar to those the tumblers used in my troop when I was young. 
After fifteen minutes of twisting himself this way and that, he began his slow, dance-like pantomime. Though I didn't know it at the time, it was called the Katen. Still nettled about Tempe's barbarians cannot learn comment, I decided I would follow along. After all, I didn't have anything better to do. As I tried to mimic him, I became aware of how devilishly complex it was. Keeping the hands cupped just so, the feet correctly positioned. Despite the fact that Tempe moved with almost glacial slowness, I found it impossible to imitate his smooth grace. Tempe never paused or looked in my direction. He never offered a word of encouragement or advice. It was exhausting, and I was glad when it was over. Then I started the fire and lashed together a tripod. Wordlessly, Tempe brought out a hard sausage and several potatoes that he began to peel carefully using his sword. I was surprised by this, as Tempe fussed over his sword much the same way I did with my loot. Once, when Daydan had picked it up, the Adam had responded with a rather dramatic emotional outburst. Dramatic for Tempe, that is. He'd spoken two full sentences and frowned a bit. Tempe saw me watching him and cocked his head curiously. I pointed. Sword? I asked. For cutting potatoes? Tempe looked down at the half-peeled potato in one hand, his sword in the other. He's sharp. He shrugged. He's clean. I returned the shrug, not wanting to make an issue of it. While working together, I learned the words for iron, knot, leaf, spark, and salt. Waiting for the water to boil, Tempe stood, shook himself, and began his limbering stretches a second time. I followed him again. It was harder this time. The muscles of my arms and legs were loose and shaky from my previous effort. Toward the end, I had to fight to keep myself from trembling, but I gleaned a few more secrets. Tempe continued to ignore me, but I didn't mind. I've always been drawn to a challenge. Chapter 83 Lack of Sight So Tabalin was prisoned deep underground, Martin said. They had left him with nothing but the clothes upon his back and an inch of guttering candle to push away the darkness. The sorcerer king planned to leave Tabarlin trapped until hunger and thirst weakened his will. Cyphus knew if Tabarlin swore to help him, the wizard would abide by his promise because Tabarlin never broke his word. Worst of all, Cyphus had taken Tabarlin's staff and sword, and without them, his power was all dim and guttery. He'd even taken Tabarlin's cloak of no particular color, but he... Sorry, but... Esper, would you be a darling and pass me the skin? Hespa tossed Martin the water skin, and he took a deep drink. That's better. He cleared his throat. Where was I again? We had been in the Eld for twelve days, and things had fallen into a steady rhythm. Martin had changed our standing wager to reflect our growing skill. First to ten to one, then fifteen to one, which was the same arrangement he had with Daydan and Hespa. My understanding of the Adam hand language was growing, and, as a result, Tempe was becoming something other than a frustrating blank page of a man. 
As I learned to read his body language, he was slowly being colored in around the edges. He was thoughtful and gentle. Daydan rubbed him the wrong way. He loved jokes, though many of mine fell flat, and the ones he tried to tell invariably made no sense in translation. This isn't to say things were perfect between us. I still offended Tempe occasionally, making social gaffes I couldn't understand even after the fact. Every day I continued to follow him in his strange dance, and every day he pointedly ignored me. Now, Tabalin needed to escape, Martin said, continuing his story. But when he looked around his cave, he saw no door, no window. All around him was nothing but smooth, hard stone. But Tabalin the Great knew the names of all things, so all things were his to command. He said to the stone, Break, and the stone broke. The wall tore like a piece of paper, and through that hole Tabalin could see the sky and breathe the sweet spring air. Tabalin made his way out of the caves, into the castle, and finally to the doors of the royal hall itself. The doors were barred against him, so he said, Burn, and they burst into flame, and were soon nothing more than fine gray ash. Tabalin stepped into the hall and saw King Cyphus sitting there with fifty guards. The king said, Capture him! But the guards had just seen the doors burn to ash, so they moved closer, but none of them came too close, if you know what I mean. King Cyphus said, Cowards! I will battle Tabalin with wizardry and best him. He was afraid of Tabalin, too, but he hid it well. Besides, Cyphus had his staff, and Tabalin had none. Then Tabalin said, If you're so brave, give me my staff before we duel. Certainly, Cyphus said, even though he didn't really mean to give it back, you see. It's right next to you in that chest there. Martin looked around at us conspiratorially. You see, Cyphus knew the chest was locked and had only one key, and that key was right in his pocket. So Tabalin went over to the chest, but it was locked. Then Cyphus laughed, and so did a few of the guards. That made Tabalin angry, and before any of them could do anything, he struck the top of the chest with his hand and shouted, Edro! The chest sprung open, and he grabbed his cloak of no particular color, wrapping it around himself. Martin cleared his throat again. Excuse me, he said, and paused to take another long drink. Hespa turned to Daydan. What color do you think Taberlin's cloak was? Daydan's forehead creased a bit, almost like the beginning of a scowl. What do you mean? It's no particular color. Just like it says. Hespa's mouth went flat. I know that. But when you think of it in your head, what does it look like? You have to picture it as looking like something, don't you? Daydan looked thoughtful for a moment. I always pictured it as kind of shimmery, he said. Like the cobblestones outside a tallow works after a hard rain. I always thought of it as a dirty grey, she said, sort of washed out from his being on the road all the time. That makes good sense, Daydan said, and I watched Hespa's face go gentle again. 
White, Tempe volunteered. I think white, no color. I always thought of it as a kind of pale sky blue, Martin admitted, shrugging. I know that doesn't make any sense. That's just how I picture it. Everyone turned to look at me. Sometimes I think of it like a quilt, I said, made entirely out of patchwork, a bunch of different colored rags and scraps, but most of the time I think of it as dark, like it really is a color, but it's too dark for anyone to see. When I was younger, stories of Taberlin had left me wide-eyed with wonder. Now that I knew the truth about magic, I enjoyed them on a different level, somewhere between nostalgia and amusement. But I held a special place in my heart for Taberlin's cloak of no particular color. His staff held much of his power. His sword was deadly. His key, coin, and candle were valuable tools. But the cloak was at the heart of Taberlin. It was a disguise when he needed it. Helped him hide when he was in trouble. It protected him from rain, from arrows, from fire. He could hide things in it and it had many pockets full of wonderful things. A knife, a toy for a child, a flower for a lady. Whatever Taberlin needed was somewhere in his cloak of no particular color. These stories are what made me beg my mother for my first cloak when I was young. I drew my own cloak around me, my nasty, tatty, faded cloak the tinker had traded me. On one of our trips into Crossan for supplies, I'd picked up some spare cloth, and sewn a few clumsy pockets into the inside. But it was still a poor replacement for my rich burgundy cloak, or the lovely black and green one Fella had made for me. Martin cleared his throat again and launched back into his story. So, Tabalan struck the trunk with his hand and shouted, Edro! The lid of the chest popped open, and he grabbed his cloak of no particular color and his staff. He called forth great barbs of lightning and killed twenty guards. Then he called forth a sheet of fire and killed another twenty. Those that were left threw down their swords and cried for mercy. Then Tabalan gathered up the rest of his things from the chest. He took out his key and coin and tucked them safe away. Lastly, he brought out his copper sword, Skjaldren, and belted, What? Dayden interrupted, laughing. You tit! Tabaline's sword wasn't copper. Shut up, Den! Martin snapped, nettled at the interruption. It was so copper. You shut up, Dayden replied. Who's ever heard of a copper sword? Copper wouldn't hold an edge. It'd be like trying to kill someone with a big penny. Hesper laughed at that. It was probably a silver sword, don't you think, Martin? It was a copper sword, Martin insisted. Maybe it was early on in his career, Dadan said in a loud whisper to Hesper. All he could afford was a copper sword. Martin shot the two of them an angry look. Copper, damn you! If you don't like it, you can just guess at the ending. He folded his arms in front of himself. Fine, Daydan said. Quoth can give us one. He might be a pup, but he knows how to tell a proper story.
copper sword my ass. Actually, I said, I'd like to hear the end of Martin's. Oh, go ahead, the old tracker said bitterly. I'm in no mood to finish now. And I'd rather listen to you than hear that donkey he-yaw his way through one of his. Nightly stories had been one of the few times we could sit as a group without falling into petty bickering. Now, even they were becoming tense. What's more, the others were beginning to count on me for the evening's entertainment. Hoping to put an end to the trend, I'd put a lot of thought into what story I was going to tell tonight. Once upon a time, I began, there was a little boy born in a little town. He was perfect, or so his mother thought. But one thing was different about him. He had a gold screw in his belly button, just the head of it peeping out. Now his mother was simply glad he had all his fingers and toes to count with, but as the boy grew up, he realized not everyone had screws in their belly buttons, let alone gold ones. He asked his mother what it was for, but she didn't know. Next, he asked his father, but his father didn't know. He asked his grandparents, but they didn't know either. That settled it for a while, but it kept nagging him. Finally, when he was old enough, he packed a bag and set out, hoping he could find someone who knew the truth of it. He went from place to place, asking everyone who claimed to know something about anything. He asked midwives and physicers, but they couldn't make heads or tails of it. The boy asked arcanists, tinkers, and old hermits living in the woods, but no one had ever seen anything like it. He went to ask the sealdom merchants, thinking if anyone would know about gold, it would be them. But the sealdom merchants didn't know. He went to the arcanists at the university, thinking if anyone would know about screws and their workings, they would. But the arcanists didn't know. The boy followed the road over the storm wall to ask the witch women of the tall, but none of them could give him an answer. Eventually, he went to the king of Vint, the richest king in the world, but the king didn't know. He went to the emperor of Atur, but even with all his power, the emperor didn't know. He went to each of the small kingdoms one by one, but no one could tell him anything. Finally, the boy went to the high king of Modeg, the wisest of all the kings in the world. The high king looked closely at the head of the golden screw peeping from the boy's belly button. Then the high king made a gesture, and his seneschal brought out a pillow of golden silk. On that pillow was a golden box. The high king took a golden key from around his neck, opened the box, and inside was a golden screwdriver. The high king took the screwdriver and motioned the boy to come closer. Trembling with excitement, the boy did. Then the high king took the golden screwdriver and put it in the boy's belly button. I paused to take a long drink of water. I could feel my small audience leaning toward me. Then the high king carefully turned the golden screw. Once, nothing. Twice, nothing. Then he turned it the third time and the boy's ass fell off. There was a moment of stunned silence. What? Hespa asked incredulously. His ass fell off, I repeated with an absolutely straight face. There was a long silence. 
Everyone's eyes were fixed on me. The fire snapped, sending a red ember floating upward. And then what happened? Espa finally asked. Nothing, I said. That's it. The end. What? She said again more loudly. What kind of story is that? I was about to respond when Tempe burst out laughing, and he kept laughing, great shaking laughs that left him breathless. Soon, I began to laugh as well, partly at Tempe's display and partly because I'd always considered it an oddly funny story myself. Hespa's expression turned dangerous, as if she were the butt of the joke. Daydan was the first to speak. I don't understand. Why did... He trailed off. Did they get the boy's ass back on? Hespa interjected. I shrugged. That's not part of the story. Daydan gestured wildly, his expression frustrated. What's the point of it? I put on an innocent face. I thought we were just telling stories. The big man scowled at me. Sensible stories! Stories with endings, not stories that just have a boy's ass. He shook his head. This is ridiculous. I'm going to sleep. He moved off to make his bed. Hespa stalked off in her own direction. I smiled, reasonably sure neither one of them would be troubling me for any more stories than I cared to tell. Tempe got to his feet as well. Then, as he walked past me, he smiled and gave me a sudden hug. A span of days ago, this would have shocked me, but now I knew that physical contact was not particularly odd among the Adem. Still, I was surprised he did it in front of the others. I returned his hug as best I could, feeling his chest still shaking with laughter. He's ass off, he said quietly, then made his way to bed. Martin's eyes followed Tempe, then he gave me a long, speculative look. Where did you hear that one? he asked. My father told it to me when I was young, I said honestly. Odd story to tell a child. I was an odd child, I said. When I was older, he confessed he made the stories up to keep me quiet. I used to pepper him with questions. Hour after hour, he said the only thing that would keep me quiet was some sort of puzzle. But I cracked riddles like walnuts and he ran out of those. I shrugged and started to lay out my bed. So he made up stories that seemed like puzzles and asked me if I understood what they meant. I smiled a little wistfully. I remember thinking about that boy with the screw in his belly button for days and days, trying to find the sense in it. Martin frowned. That's a cruel trick to play on a boy. The comment surprised me. What do you mean? Tricking you just to get a little peace and quiet? It's a shabby thing to do. I was taken aback. It wasn't done in meanness. I enjoyed it. It gave me something to think about. But it was pointless. Impossible. Not pointless, I protested. It's the questions we can't answer that teach us the most. They teach us how to think. If you give a man an answer, all he gains is a little fact— but give him a question, and he'll look for his own answers. 
I spread my blanket on the ground and folded over the threadbare tinker's cloak to wrap myself in. That way, when he finds the answers, they'll be precious to him. The harder the question, the harder we hunt. The harder we hunt, the more we learn. An impossible question. I trailed off as realization burst onto me. Elodin. That is what Elodin had been doing. Everything he'd done in his class. The games, the hints, the cryptic riddling. They were all questions of a sort. Martin shook his head and wandered off. But I was lost in my thoughts and hardly noticed. I had wanted answers, and in spite of all I had thought, Elodin had been trying to give them to me. What I had taken as a malicious criticism on his part was actually a persistent urging toward the truth. I sat there, silent and stunned by the scope of his instruction. By my lack of understanding, my lack of sight... Chapter 84 The Edge of the Map We continued to inch our way through the Eld. Every day began with the hope of finding traces of a trail. Every night ended with disappointment. The shine was definitely off the apple, and our group was slowly being overtaken by irritation and backbiting. Any fear Daydan once felt for me had worn paper thin, and he pushed at me constantly. He wanted to buy a bottle of brand using the mayor's purse. I refused. He thought we didn't need to keep nightly watches, merely set up a trip line. I disagreed. Every small battle I won made him resent me more, and his low grumbling steadily increased as our search wore on. It was never anything so bold as a direct confrontation, just a sporadic peppering of snide comments and sulky insubordination. On the other hand, Tempe and I were slowly moving towards something like friendship. His Aturin was becoming better, and my Ademic had progressed to the point where I could actually be considered inarticulate as opposed to just confusing. I continued to mimic Tempe as he performed his dance, and he continued to ignore me. Now that I'd been doing it for a while, I recognized a hint of martial flavor to it. A slow motion with one arm gave the impression of a punch. A glacial raising of the foot resembled a kick. My arms and legs no longer shook from the effort of moving slowly along with him, but I was still irritated by how clumsy I was. I hate nothing so much as doing a thing badly. For example, there was a portion halfway through that looked easy as breathing. Tempe turned, circled his arms, and took a small step. But whenever I tried to do the same... I inevitably found myself stumbling. I had tried a half-dozen different ways of placing my feet, but nothing made any difference. But the day after I told my loose screw story, as Daydan eventually came to refer to it, Tempe stopped ignoring me. This time, after I stumbled, he stopped and faced me. His fingers flicked, disapproval, irritation. Go back, he said, settling into the dance position that came before my stumble. I went into the same position and tried to mimic him. I lost my balance again and had to shuffle my feet to keep from stumbling. My feet are stupid, I muttered in a demic, curling the fingers on my left hand. Embarrassment. No. Tempe grabbed my hips in his hands and twisted them. Then he pushed my shoulders back and slapped at my knee, making me bend it. Yes. 
I tried moving forward again and felt the difference. I still lost my balance, but only a little. No, he said again. Watch. He tapped his shoulder. This. He stood directly in front of me, barely a foot away, and repeated the motion. He turned his hands, made a circle to the side, and his shoulder pushed into my chest. It was the same motion you would make if you were trying to push open a door with your shoulder. Tempe wasn't moving very quickly, but his shoulder pushed me firmly aside. It wasn't rough or sudden, but the force of it was irresistible, like when a horse brushes up against you on a crowded street. I moved through it again, focusing on my shoulder. I didn't stumble. Since we were the only ones at the camp, I kept the smile from my face and gestured, happiness. Thank you. Understatement. Tempe said nothing. His face was blank, his hands still. He merely went back to where he had stood before and began his dance again from the beginning, facing away from me. I tried to remain stoic about the exchange, but I took this as a great compliment. Had I known more about the ADEM, I would have realized it was far more than that. Tempe and I came over a rise to find Martin waiting for us. It was too early for lunch, so hope rose in my chest as I thought that finally, after all these long days of searching, he might have caught the bandit's trail. I wanted to show you this, Martin said, gesturing to a tall, sprawling, fern-like plant that stood a dozen feet away. A bit of a rare thing. Been years since I've seen one. What is it? It's called Anne's Blade, he said proudly, looking it over. You'll need to keep an eye out. Not many folk know about them, so it might give us a clue if there are any more of them about. Martin looked back and forth between us eagerly. Well, he said at last. What's so special about it? I asked dutifully. Martin smiled. The Anne's Blade is interesting because it can't tolerate folk he said. If any part of it touches your skin, it'll turn red as fall leaves in a couple hours. Redder than that. Bright as your mercenary reds, Martin gestured to Tempe. And then the whole plant will dry up and die. Really? I asked, no longer having to feign interest. Martin nodded. A drop of sweat will kill it just the same, which means most times it will die just from touching a person's clothes, armor, too, or a stick you've been holding, or a sword. He gestured to Tempe's hip. Some people say it will die if you so much as breathe on it, Martin said. But I don't know if that's the truth. Martin turned to lead us away from the Anne's blade. This is an old, old piece of forest. You don't see the blade anywhere near where folk have settled. We're off the edge of the map here. We're hardly on the edge of the map, I said. We know exactly where we are. Martin snorted. Maps don't just have outside edges. They have inside edges. Holes. Folk like to pretend they know everything about the world. Rich folk especially. Maps are great for that. On this side of the line is Baron Tax Twice's field. On that side is Count Uptimoney's land. Martin spat. You can't have blanks on your maps, 
so the folks who draw them shade in a piece and write the Eld. He shook his head. You might as well burn a hole right through the map for what good that does. This forest is big as Ventus. Nobody owns it. You head off in the wrong direction in here. You'll walk a hundred miles and never see a road, let alone a house or a plowed field. There are places around here that have never felt the press of a man's foot or heard the sound of his voice. I looked around. It looks the same as most other forests I've seen. A wolf looks like a dog, Martin said simply, but it's not. A dog is... He paused. What's that word for animals that are around people all the time? Cows and sheep and such. Domesticated? That's it, he said looking around. A farm is domesticated. A garden. A park. Most forests, too. Folk hunt mushrooms, or cut firewood, or take their sweethearts for a little rub and cuddle. He shook his head and reached out to touch the rough bark of a nearby tree. The gesture was oddly gentle, almost loving. Not this place. This place is old and wild. It doesn't care one thin sliver of a dam about us. If these folk we're hunting get the jump on us, they won't even have to bury our bodies. We'll lie on the ground for a hundred years and no one will come close to stumbling on our bones. I turned where I stood, looking at the rise and fall of the land, the worn rocks, the endless ranks of trees. I tried not to think about how the mayor had sent me here, like moving a stone on a tack board. He had sent me to a hole in the map, a place where no one would ever find my bones. Chapter 85 Interlude Fences Quoth sat upright in his seat, craning his neck to get a better look out the window. He was just holding his hand up to Chronicler when they heard a quick, light tapping on the wooden landing outside. Too fast and soft to be the heavy boots of farmers, it was followed by a high peal of childish laughter. Chronicler quickly blotted the page he was writing, then tucked it under a stack of blank paper as Quoth got to his feet and walked toward the bar. Bast leaned back, tipping his chair onto two legs. After a moment, the door opened and a young man with broad shoulders and a thin beard stepped into the inn, carefully ushering a little blonde girl through the doorway ahead of him. Behind him, a young woman carried a baby boy sitting on her arm. The innkeeper smiled, raising a hand. Mary! Hap! The young couple exchanged a brief word before the tall farmer walked over to Chronicler, still gently ushering the little girl in front of him. Bast got to his feet and offered up his chair to Hap. Mary approached the bar, casually untangling one of the little boy's hands from her hair. She was young and pretty, with a smiling mouth and tired eyes. Hello, Coat. I haven't seen you two in a long while the innkeeper said. Can I get you some cider? I pressed it fresh this morning. She nodded, and the innkeeper poured three mugs. Bast carried two over to Hap and his daughter. Hap took his, but the little girl hid behind her father, peering shyly around his shoulder. Would young Master Ben like his own cup? Cote asked. He would, Mary said, smiling at the boy as he chewed on his fingers. But I wouldn't give it to him unless you're eager to clean the floors. She reached into her pocket. Coat shook his head firmly, holding up a hand. I won't hear of it, 
he said. Hap didn't take half of what the work was worth when he fixed my fences out back. Mary smiled a tired, anxious smile and picked up her mug. Thank you kindly, Coat. She walked over to where her husband sat talking to Chronicler. She spoke to the scribe, swaying gently back and forth, bouncing the baby on one hip. Her husband nodded along, occasionally interjecting a word or two. Chronicler dipped his pen and began to write. Bast moved back to the bar and leaned against it, eyeing the far table curiously. I still don't understand all of this, he said. I know for a fact Mary can write. She's sent me letters. Quoth looked curiously at his student, then shrugged. I expect he's writing wills and dispositions, not letters. You want that sort of thing done in a clear hand, spelled properly and with no confusion. He motioned to where Chronicler was pressing a heavy seal onto a sheet of paper. See? That shows he's a court official. Everything he witnesses has legal weight. But the priest does that, Bast said. Abbe Grimes is all sorts of official. He writes the marriage records and the deed when someone buys a plot of land. You said yourself, they love their records. Quoth nodded. True, but a priest likes it when you leave money to the church. If he writes up your will and you don't give the church as much as a bent penny, he shrugged. That can make life hard in a little town like this. And if you can't read, well, then the priest can write down whatever he wants, can't he? And who's to argue with him after you're dead? Bast looked shocked. Ebbe Grimes wouldn't do something like that. He probably wouldn't, Quoth conceded. Grimes is a decent sort for a priest. But maybe you want to leave a piece of land to the young widow down the lane and some money to her second son. Quoth raised an eyebrow meaningfully. That's the sort of thing a fellow doesn't care to have his priest writing down. Better to have that news come out after you're dead and buried deep. Understanding came into Bast's eyes, and he looked at the young couple, as if trying to guess what secrets they were trying to hide. Quoth pulled out a white cloth and began to polish the bar absent-mindedly. Most times it's simpler than that. Some folk just want to leave Ellie the music box and not hear the other sisters wail about it for the next ten years. Like when the widow Graydon died? Exactly like when Widow Graydon died. You saw how that family tore itself up fighting over her things. Half of them still aren't on speaking terms. Across the room, the little girl stepped close to her mother and tugged insistently on her dress. A moment later, Mary came over to the bar with the little girl in tow. Little Sill has to tend to her necessary, she said apologetically. Could we... Coat nodded and pointed to the door near the stairway. Mary turned and held out the little boy to Bast. Would you mind? Moving mostly on reflex, Bast reached out with both hands to take hold of the boy, then stood there awkwardly as Mary escorted her daughter away. The little boy looked around brightly, not sure what to make of this new situation. Bast turned to face Quoth, the baby held stiffly in front of himself. The child's expression slowly shifted from curious to uncertain to unhappy. Finally, he began to make a soft, anxious noise. He looked as if he were thinking about whether or not he wanted to cry, and was slowly starting to realize that, yes, as a matter of fact, he probably did. Oh, for goodness sake, Bast, Quoth said in an exasperated voice. Here. He stepped forward and took hold of the boy, 
sitting him on top of the bar and holding him steady with both hands. The boy seemed happier there. He rubbed a curious hand on the smooth top of the bar, leaving a smudge. He looked at Bast and smiled. Dog, he said. Charming, Bast said, his voice dry. Little Ban began to chew on his fingers and looked around again, more purposefully this time. Ma'am, he said. Ma'am, 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 ma'am. Then he began to look concerned and make the same low, anxious noise as before. Hold him up, Quoth said, moving to stand directly in front of the little boy. Once Bast was steadying him, the innkeeper grabbed hold of the boy's feet and began a sing-song chant. Cobbler, cobbler, measure my feet. Farmer, farmer, plant some wheat. Baker, baker, bake me bread. Tailor, make a hat for my head. The little boy watched as Quoth made a different hand motion for each line, pretending to plant wheat and knead bread. By the final line, the little boy was laughing a delighted, burbling laugh as he clapped his hands to his own head along with the red-haired man. Miller, keep your thumb off the scale. Milkmaid, milkmaid, fill your pail. Potter, potter, spin a jug. Baby, give your daddy a hug. Quoth made no gesture for the last line. Instead, he tilted his head, eyeing Bast expectantly. Bast merely stood there, confused. Then, realization dawned on his face. Reshi! How could you think that? He asked, his voice slightly offended. He pointed at the little boy. He's blonde! Looking back and forth between the two men, the boy decided that he would, actually, like to have a bit of a cry. His face clouded over, and he began to wail. This is your fault, Bast said flatly. Quoth picked the little boy up off the bar and jiggled him in a marginally successful attempt to calm him. A moment later, when Mary came back into the taproom, the baby howled even louder and leaned toward her, reaching with both hands. Sorry, Quoth said, sounding abashed. Mary took him back, and he went instantly quiet, tears still standing in his eyes. None of yours, she said. He's just mother-hungry lately. She touched her nose to his, smiling and the baby gave another delighted, burbling laugh. How much did you charge them? Quoth asked as he walked back to Chronicler's table. Chronicler shrugged. Penny and a half. Quoth paused in the act of sitting down. His eyes narrowed. That won't cover the cost of your paper. Chronicler asked. I have ears, don't I? The Smith's Prentice mentioned the Bentleys are on hard times, even if he hadn't, I still have eyes. Fellows got seams on both knees and boots worn nearly through. Little girl's dress is too short for her and half patches besides. Quoth nodded, his expression grim. Their south field's been flooded out two years running, and they had both their goats die this spring. Even if these were good times, it would be a bad year for them. With their new little boy, he drew a long breath and let it out in a long, pensive sigh. It's the levy taxes. Two this year already. Do you want me to wreck the fence again, Reshi? Bast said eagerly. Hush about that, Bast. A smile flickered around the edges of Quoth's mouth. We'll need something different this time. His smile faded. Before the next levy. Maybe there won't be another, Chronicler said. Quoth shook his head. 
It won't come until after the harvest, but it'll come. Regular taxmen are bad enough, but they know enough to occasionally look the other way. They know they'll be back next year, and the year after. But the bleeders... Chronicler nodded. They're different, he said grimly, then recited. If they could, they'd take the rain. If they can't get gold, they'll take the grain. Quoth gave a thin smile and continued. If you've got no grain, they'll take your goat. They'll take your firewood and your coat. If you've a cat, they'll take your mouse. And in the end, they'll take your house. Everyone hates the bleeders, Chronicler agreed darkly. If anything, the nobles hate them twice as much. I find that hard to believe, Quoth said. You should hear the talk around here. If the last one hadn't had a full armed guard, I don't think he would have made it out of town alive. Chronicler gave a bent smile. You should have heard the things my father used to call them, he said. And he'd only had two levies in twenty years. He said he'd rather have locusts followed by a fire than the king's bleeder moving through his lands. Chronicler glanced at the door of the inn. They're too proud to ask for help? Prouder than that, Quoth said. The poorer you are, the more your pride is worth. I know the feeling. I never could have asked a friend for money. I would have starved first. Alone? Chronicler asked. Who has money to lend these days? Quoth asked grimly. It's already going to be a hungry winter for most folk. But after a third levy tax, the Bentleys will be sharing blankets and eating their seed grain before the snow thaws. That's if they don't lose their house as well. The innkeeper looked down at his hands on the table and seemed surprised that one of them was curled into a fist. He opened it slowly and spread both hands flat against the tabletop. Then he looked up at Chronicler, a rueful smile on his face. Did you know I never paid taxes before I came here? The Edema don't own property as a rule. He gestured at the inn. I never understood how galling it was. Some smug bastard with a ledger comes into town, makes you pay for the privilege of owning something. Quoth gestured for Chronicler to pick up his pen. Now, of course, I understand the truth of things. I know what sort of dark desires lead a group of men to wait beside the road, killing tax collectors in open defiance of the king. Chapter 86 The Broken Road we finished searching the north side of the King's Highway and started on the southern half. Often the only thing that marked one day from the next were the stories we told around the fire at night. Stories of Orin Velsiter, Laniel Young again, and Ilion. Stories of helpful swineherds and the luck of Tinker's sons. Stories of demons and fairies, of riddle games and barrow drogs. The Edema Rue know all the stories in the world, and I am Edema down to the center of my bones. My parents told stories around the fire every night while I was young. I grew up watching stories in dumb show, listening to them in songs, and acting them out on stage. Given this, it was hardly surprising that I already knew the stories Daydan, Hespa, and Martin told at night. Not every detail, but I knew the bones of them. I knew their shapes and how they would end. Don't mistake me. I still enjoyed them. Stories don't need to be new to bring you joy. Some stories are like familiar friends. Some are dependable as bread. 
Still, a story I haven't heard before is a rare and precious thing, and after twenty days of searching the Eld, I was rewarded with one of those. Once, long ago, and far from here, Hespa said as we sat around the fire after dinner. There was a boy named Jax, and he fell in love with the moon. Jax was a strange boy, a thoughtful boy, a lonely boy. He lived in an old house at the end of a broken road. He, Dedan interrupted. Did you say a broken road? Hespa's mouth went firm. She didn't scowl exactly but it looked like she was getting all the pieces of a scowl together in one place, just in case she needed them in a hurry. I did. A broken road. That's how my mother told this story a hundred times when I was little. For a moment, it looked like Daydan was going to ask another question, but instead, he showed a rare foresight and simply nodded. Hespa reluctantly put the pieces of her scowl away. Then, she looked down at her hands, frowning. Her mouth moved silently for a moment, then she nodded to herself and continued. Everyone who saw Jax could tell there was something different about him. He didn't play, he didn't run around getting into trouble, and he never laughed. Some folks said, What can you expect of a boy who lives alone in a broken house at the end of a broken road? Some said the problem was that he never had any parents. Some said he had a drop of fairy blood in him, and that kept his heart from ever knowing joy. He was an unlucky boy. There was no denying that. When he got a new shirt, he would tear a hole in it. If you gave him a sweet, he would drop it in the road. Some said the boy was born under a bad star, that he was cursed, that he had a demon riding his shadow. Other folks simply felt bad for him, but not so bad that they cared to help. One day... A tinker came down the road to Jax's house. This was something of a surprise, because the road was broken, so nobody ever used it. Hoy there, boy! The tinker shouted, leaning on his stick. Can you give an old man a drink? Jax brought out some water in a cracked clay mug. The tinker drank and looked down at the boy. You don't look happy, son. What's the matter? Nothing is the matter, Jack said. It seems to me a person needs something to be happy about, and I don't have any such thing. Jack said this in a tone so flat and resigned that it broke the tinker's heart. I'm betting I have something in my pack that will make you happy, he said to the boy. What do you say to that? I'd say, if you make me happy, I'll be grateful indeed, Jack said. But I haven't got any money to spend. Not a penny to borrow, to beg, or to lend. Well, that is a problem, said the tinker. I am in business, you see. If you can find something in your pack that will make me happy, Jack said, I'll give you my house. It's old and broken, but it's worth something. The tinker looked up at the huge old house, one short step away from being a mansion. It is at that he said. Then Jax looked up at the tinker, his small face serious. And if you can't make me happy, what then? Will you give me the packs off your back, the stick in your hand, and the hat off your head? Now, the tinker was fond of a wager, and he knew a good bet when he heard one. Besides, 
His packs were bulging with treasures from all over the four corners, and he was confident he could impress a small boy. So he agreed, and the two of them shook hands. First, the tinker brought out a bag of marbles, all the colors of sunlight. But they didn't make Jacks happy. The tinker brought out a ball and cup. But that didn't make Jacks happy. Ball and cup doesn't make anyone happy, Martin muttered. It's the worst toy ever. Nobody in their right mind enjoys ball and cup. The tinker went through his first pack. It was full of ordinary things that would have pleased an ordinary boy. Dice, puppets, a folding knife, a rubber ball, but nothing made Jacks happy. So the tinker moved on to his second pack. It held rarer things. A gear soldier that marched if you wound him. A bright set of paints with four different brushes. A book of secrets. A piece of iron that fell from the sky. This went on all day and late into the night, and eventually the tinker began to worry. He wasn't worried about losing his stick, but his packs were how he made his living, and he was rather fond of his hat. Eventually, he realized he was going to have to open his third pack. It was small, and it only had three items in it, but they were things he only showed to his wealthiest customers. Each was worth much more than a broken house, but still, he thought, better to lose one than to lose everything and his hat besides. Just as the tinker was reaching for his third pack, Jax pointed. What is that? Those are spectacles, the tinker said. They're a second pair of eyes that help a person see better. He picked them up and settled them onto Jax's face. Jax looked around. Things look the same, he said. Then he looked up. What are those? Those are stars, the tinker said. I've never seen them before. He turned, still looking up. Then he stopped stock still. What is that? That is the moon, the tinker said. I think that would make me happy, Jack said. Well, there you go, the tinker said, relieved. You have your spectacles. Looking at it doesn't make me happy, Jack said. No more than looking at my dinner makes me full. I want it. I want to have it for my own. I can't give you the moon, the tinker said. She doesn't belong to me. She belongs only to herself. Only the moon will do, Jack said. Well, I can't help you with that, the tinker said with a heavy sigh. My packs and everything in them are yours. Jacks nodded, unsmiling. And here's my stick. A good sturdy one it is, too. Jacks took it in his hand. I don't suppose, the tinker said reluctantly, that you'd mind leaving me with my hat? I'm rather fond of it. It's mine by right, Jack said. If you were fond of it, you shouldn't have gambled it away. The tinker scowled as he handed over his hat. Tempe made a low noise in his throat and shook his head. Hespa smiled and nodded. Apparently, even the Adem knew it's bad luck to be rude to a tinker. So Jack settled the hat on his head, took the stick in his hand, and gathered up the tinker's packs. When he found the third one, still unopened, he asked, What's in here? Something for you to choke on, the tinker spat.
No need to get tetchy over a hat, the boy said. I have greater need of it than you. I have a long way to walk if I'm to find the moon and make her mine. But for the taking of my hat, you could have had my help in catching her, the tinker said. I will leave you with the broken house, Jack said. That is something, though it will be up to you to mend it. Jax put the spectacles on his face and started walking down the road in the direction of the moon. He walked all night, only stopping when she went out of sight behind the mountains. So Jax walked day after day, endlessly searching. Daydan snorted. Doesn't that sound just a little too familiar? He muttered loud enough for everyone to hear. I wonder if he was pissing his time up a tree like we are. Hesper glared at him the muscles in her jaw clenching. I gave a quiet sigh. Are you done? Hespa asked pointedly, glaring at Daydan for a long moment. What? Daydan asked. Shut up while I'm telling my story is what? Hespa said. Everyone else had their say. Daydan climbed to his feet, indignant. Even the mute chimed in. He waved a hand at Tempe. How come I'm the only one you get hissy at? Hesper seethed for a moment, then said, You're trying to pick a fight halfway through my story is why. Telling the truth isn't picking a fight, Daydan grumbled. Someone needs to speak some sense around here. Hesper threw her hands up in the air. You're still doing it. Can't you set it down for one evening? Every chance you get, you have to bitch and minge on. At least when I don't agree, I speak my mind, Daydan said. I don't take the coward's way out. Hesper's eyes flashed, and despite my better judgment, I decided to jump in. Fine, I interrupted, looking at Daydan. If you've got a better idea for finding these folk, let's hear it. Let's talk it over like adults. My interjection didn't slow Daydan down the least bit. It just pointed him in my direction. What would you know about adults, he said. I'm sick and tired of being talked down to by some boy who probably doesn't even have hair on his balls yet. I'm sure if the mayor had known how hairy your balls were, he would have put you in charge, I said, with what I hoped was infuriating calmness. Unfortunately, it seems he missed that fact and decided on me instead. Daydan drew a breath, but Tempe broke in before he could start. Balls, said the Adem curiously. What is balls? All the air went out of Daydan in a rush, and he turned to look at Tempe, half irritated, half amused. The big mercenary chuckled and made a very clear motion between his legs with a cupped hand. You know, balls, he said, without a trace of self-consciousness. Behind his back, Hespa rolled her eyes, shaking her head. Ah... Tempe said, nodding to show his understanding. Why is the mayor looking at hairy balls? A pause. Then a storm of laughter rolled through our camp, exploding with all the force of the pent-up tension that had been ready to boil into a fight. Hespa laughed herself breathless, clutching at her stomach. Martin wiped tears from his eyes. Daydan laughed so hard he couldn't stand upright and ended up crouching with one hand on the ground to steady himself. By the end of it, everyone was sitting around the fire, breathing hard and grinning like silly idiots.
The tension that had been thick as winter fog was gone for the first time in days. It was only then that Tempe briefly caught my eye. His thumb and forefinger rubbed together gently. Gladness? No. Satisfaction. Realization dawned on me as I met his eye again. His expression was blank as always. Studiously blank. So blank it was almost smug. Can we get back to your story, love? Daydan asked Hesper. I like to know how this boy gets the moon in the bed. Hesper smiled at him, the first honest smile I'd seen her give Daydan in a handful of days. I've lost my place, she said. There's a rhythm to it, like a song. I can tell it from the beginning, but if I start halfway through, I'll get it all tangled up in my head. Will you start over tomorrow if I promise to keep my mouth shut? I will, she agreed, if you promise. Chapter 87 The Lethani The next day Tempe and I went to Crossan for supplies. It meant a long day of walking, but not having to look for trail sign every step of the way made it feel like we were flying down the road. As we walked, Tempe and I traded words back and forth. I learned the word for dream, and smell, and bone. I learned there were different words in Ademic for iron and sword iron. Then we had a long hour's worth of fruitless conversation as he tried to help me understand what it meant when he rubbed his fingers over his eyebrow. It almost seemed to be the same thing as a shrug, but he made it clear that it wasn't the same. Was it indifference? Ambiguity? Is it the feeling you have when someone offers you a choice? I tried again. Someone offers you an apple or a plum. I held up both hands in front of myself. But you like both the same. I pressed my fingers together and smoothed them over my eyebrow twice. This feeling? Tempe shook his head. No. He stopped walking for a moment, then resumed. At his side, his left hand said, Dishonesty. What is plum? Attentive. Confused, I looked at him. What? What does plum mean? He gestured again, profoundly serious, attentive. I turned my attention to the trees and immediately heard it, movement in the undergrowth. The noise came from the south side of the road, the side we hadn't searched yet. The bandits. Excitement and fear swelled in my chest. Would they attack us? In my teddy cloak, I doubted I looked like much of a target, but I was carrying my loot in its dark, expensive case. Tempe had changed back to his tight mercenary reds for the trip into town. Would that discourage a man with a longbow? Or would it seem I was a minstrel rich enough to hire an ADEM bodyguard? We might look like fruit ripe for the picking. I thought longingly of the arrow catch I'd sold to Kilvin and realized he'd been right. People would pay dearly for them. I'd give every penny in my pocket for one right now. I gestured to Tempe. Acceptance. Dishonesty. Agreement. A plum is a sweet fruit, I said, straining my ears for telltale sounds from the surrounding trees. Should we run to the trees for cover, or would it be better to pretend we were unaware of them? What could I do if they attacked? I had the knife I'd bought from the tinker on my belt, but I had no idea how to use it. 
I was suddenly aware of how terribly unprepared I was. What in God's name was I doing out here? I didn't belong in this situation. Why had the mayor sent me? Just as I was starting to sweat in earnest, I heard a sudden snap and rustle in the underbrush. A horned heart burst from the trees and was across the road in three easy bounds. A moment later, two hinds followed. One paused in the center of the road and turned to look at us curiously, her long ear twitching. Then she was off and lost among the trees. My heart was racing, and I let out a low, nervous laugh. I turned to look at Tempe, only to find him with his sword drawn, the fingers of his left hand curled into embarrassment, then made several quick gestures I couldn't identify. He sheathed the sword without a flourish of any sort, a gesture as casual as putting your hand in your pocket. Frustration. I nodded. Glad as I was not to be sprouting arrows from my back, an ambush would at least have given us a clue as to where the bandits were. Agreement. Understatement. We silently continued our walk toward Crossan. Crossan wasn't much as far as towns go. Twenty or thirty buildings with thick forest on every side. If it hadn't been on the King's Highway, it probably wouldn't even have warranted a name. But since it was on the King's Highway, there was a reasonably stocked general goods store that supplied travelers and the scattering of nearby farms. There was a small post station that was also a livery and a farrier, and a small church that was also a brewery. And an inn, of course. While the Laughing Moon was barely a third the size of the penny's worth, it was still several steps above what you'd expect for a town like this. It was two stories tall, with three private rooms and a bathhouse. A large, hand-painted sign showed a gibbous moon wearing a waistcoat, holding its belly while it rocked with laughter. I'd brought my loot that morning, hoping I might be able to play in exchange for a bit of lunch, but that was just an excuse. I was desperate for any excuse to play. My enforced silence was wearing on me as much as Daydan's muttering. I hadn't gone so long without my music since I'd been homeless on the streets of Tarbian. Tempe and I dropped off our list of supplies with the elderly woman who ran the store. Four large loaves of trail bread, a half pound of butter, quarter pound of salt, flour, dried apple, sausages, a side of bacon, a sack of turnips, six eggs, two buttons, feathers for refletching Martin's hunting arrows, bootlaces, soap, and a new whetstone to replace one Daydan had broken. All told, it would come to eight silver bits from the mayor's rapidly thinning purse. Tempe and I made our way over to the inn for lunch, knowing it would be an hour or two before our order was ready. Surprisingly, I could hear noise from the taproom from across the street. Places like this were usually busy in the evening when travelers stopped for the night, not in the middle of the day when everyone was in the fields or on the road. The room quieted when we opened the door. At first, I hoped the customers were glad to see a musician. Then I saw their eyes were all for Tempe in his tight mercenary reds. There were fifteen or twenty people idling in the taproom. Some hunched at the bar, others clustered around tables. It wasn't so crowded we couldn't find a table to sit, but it did take a couple minutes before the single harassed-looking serving girl came to our table. "'Will it be, then?' she asked, brushing a sweaty strand of hair away from her face. "'We've got pea soup with bacon in and a bread pudding.' "'Sounds lovely,' I said. "'Can we get some apples and cheese, too?' "'Drink?' "'Soft cider for me. 
I said. Beer, Tempe said, then made a gesture with two fingers on the tabletop. Small whiskey. Good whiskey. She nodded. I'll need to see your money. I raised an eyebrow. You've had trouble lately? She sighed and rolled her eyes. I handed her three half pennies, and she hurried off. By then, I was sure I wasn't imagining it. The men in the room were giving Tempe dark looks. I turned to a man at the table next to us, quietly eating his bowl of soup. Is this a market day or something? He looked at me like I was an idiot, and I saw he had a bruise going purple on his jaw. There's no market day in Crossin. There's no market. I came through here a while back and things were quiet. What's everyone doing here? Same thing as always, he said. Looking for work. Crossin is a last stop before the eld gets good and thick. A smart caravan will pick up an extra guard or two. He took a drink. But too many folk been getting feathered off in the trees lately. Caravans aren't coming through so often. I looked around the room. They weren't wearing any armor, but now that I was looking, I could see the marks of mercenary life on most of them. They were rougher looking than ordinary townsfolk. More scars, more broken noses, more knives, more swagger. The man dropped his spoon into his empty bowl and got to his feet. You can have the place for all I care, he said. I've been here six days and only seen four wagons come through. Besides, only an idiot would head north as a pay-a-day. He picked up a large pack and slipped it over his shoulders. And with all the folk gone missing, only an idiot would take on extra help in a place like this. I'll tell you this for free. Half of these reeking bastards would probably cut your throat the first night on the road. A broad-shouldered man with a wild black beard let loose a mocking laugh from where he stood at the bar. Just because you can't roll dice doesn't make me a criminal, Suey, he said with a thick northern accent. You say something like that again, I'll give you twice as much as you got last night, plus interest. The fellow I'd been talking to made a gesture you didn't have to be Adem to understand and headed out the door. The bearded man laughed. Our drinks showed up just then. Tempe drank off half his whiskey in a single swallow and let out a long, satisfied sigh slouching down in his seat. I sipped my cider. I'd been hoping to play for an hour or two in exchange for our meal, but I wasn't fool enough to play to a room composed entirely of frustrated mercenaries. I could have done it, mind you. In an hour, I could have them laughing and singing. In two hours... I could have them crying into their beer and apologizing to the serving girl. But not for the price of a meal. Not unless I had no better options. This room reeked of trouble. It was a fight waiting to happen. No trooper worth his salt could fail to recognize that. The broad-shouldered man picked up a wooden mug and sauntered with theatrical casualness over to our table where he pulled out a chair for himself. He smiled a wide, insincere smile through his thick black beard and stuck his hand out in Tempe's direction. Hello there, he said loud enough for everyone in the bar to hear. Me name's Tom. Yourself? Tempe reached out and shook, his own hand looking small and pale gripped in the other man's huge, hairy one. Tempe, 
Tam grinned at him. And what are you doing in town? We're just passing through, I said. We met up on the road and he was nice enough to walk with me. Tam looked me up and down dismissively. I want talking to you, boy, he growled. Mind your betters. Tempe remained silent, watching the big man with the same placid, attentive expression he always wore. I watched his left hand come up to his ear in a gesture I didn't recognize. Tam took a drink, watching Tempe all the while. When he lowered his mug, the dark hair around his mouth was wet, and he wiped his forearm across his face to dry it. I've always wondered, he said, loud enough for it to carry through the whole room. Yea, dem. How much does one of your fancy lads make? Tempe turned to look at me, his head tilted slightly to one side. I realized he probably couldn't understand the man's thick accent. He wants to know how much money you earn, I explained. Tempe made a wavering motion with one hand. Complicated. Tam leaned over the table. What if you were hired to guard a caravan? How much would you charge a day? Two jots, Tempe shrugged. Three. Tam gave a showy laugh, loud enough that I could smell his breath. I'd expected it to stink, but it didn't. It smelled like cider, sweet with mulling spices. You hear that, boys? He shouted over his shoulder. Three jots a day, and he kinda hardly talk. Most everyone was already watching and listening, and this piece of information brought a low, irritated murmur from the room. Tam turned back to the table. Most of us get penny a day when we get work at all. I get two because I'm good with horses and I can lift up the back of a wagon if I need to. He rolled his broad shoulders. Are ye worth twenty men in a fight? I don't know how much of it Tempe understood, but he seemed to follow the last question fairly well. Twenty? He looked around appraisingly. No. Four? He wavered his spread hand back and forth uncertainly. Five? This did nothing to improve the atmosphere in the room. Tam shook his head in exaggerated bemusement. Even if I believed you for a second, he said, that means you should make four or five pennies a day, not twenty. What? I put on my most ingratiating smile and leaned into the conversation. Listen, I... Tam's mug knocked hard against the tabletop, sending a splash of cider leaping up into the air. He gave me a dangerous look that didn't hold any of the false playfulness he'd been showing Tempe. Boy, he said, you interrupt me again and I'll knock your teeth right out. He said it without any particular emphasis, as if he were letting me know that if I jumped into the river, I was bound to get wet. Tam turned back to Tempe. What makes you think you're worth three jots a day? Who buys me buys this? Tempe held up his hand. And this. He pointed to the hilt of his sword. And this. He tapped a leather strap that bound his distinctive Adem reds tightly to his chest. The big man slapped the table hard with the flat of his hand. 
So that's the secret, he said. I need to get me a red shirt. This brought a chuckle from the room. Tempe shook his head. No. Tam leaned forward and flicked at one of the straps near Tempe's shoulder with a thick finger. Are you saying I'm not good enough to wear a fancy red shirt like yours? He flicked the strap again. Tempe nodded easily. Yes, you are not good enough. Tam grinned madly. What if I said your mother was a whore? The room grew quiet. Tempe turned to look at me. Curiosity. What is whore? Unsurprisingly, that hadn't been one of the words we had shared over the last span of days. For half a moment, I considered lying, but there was no way I could manage it. He says your mother is a person men pay money to have sex with. Tempe turned back to the mercenary and nodded graciously. You are very kind. I thank you. Tam's expression darkened, as if he suspected he was being mocked. You coward! For a bent penny I'd give you such a kick and you'd be wearing your picker backwards! Tempe turned to me again. I do not understand this man, he said. Is he attempting to buy sex with me, or does he wish to fight? Laughter roared through the room, and Tam's face grew red as blood under his beard. I'm pretty sure he wants to fight, I said, trying to keep from laughing myself. Ah, Tempe said. Why does he not say, why all of this? He flicked his fingers back and forth and gave me a quizzical look. Poncing around, I suggested. Tempe's confidence was having a relaxing effect on me, and I wasn't above getting a little dig of my own in. After seeing how easily the Adam had dealt with Daydan, I was looking forward to seeing him thump some of the arrogance out of this horse's ass. Tempe looked back toward the big man. If you wish to fight, now stop pouncing around. The Adam made a broad gesture to the rest of the room. Go find others to fight with you. Bring enough women to feel safe. Good? My brief moment of relaxation evaporated as Tempe turned back to me, exasperation thick in his voice. You people are always talk. Tam stomped back to the table where his friends sat throwing dice. All right now, you heard him. The little grip shit says he's worth four of us. So let's show him the sort of damage four of us can do. Brendan, Vin, Jane, you in? A bald man and a tall woman came to their feet, smiling. But the third waved his hand dismissively. I am too drunk to fight proper, Tam, but that's not half as drunk as I'd need to be to go up against a bloodshirt. They're bastards in a fight. I seen it. I was no stranger to bar fights, You'd think they'd be rare in a place like the university, but liquor is the great leveler. After six or seven solid drinks, there is very little difference between a miller on the outs with his wife and a young alchemist who's done poorly on his exams. They're both equally eager to skin their knuckles on someone else's teeth. 
Even the Aeolian, genteel as it was, saw its share of scuffles. If you stayed late enough, you had a decent chance of seeing two of the embroidered nobility slapping away at each other. My point is, when you're a musician, you see a lot of fights. Some people go to the bars to drink. Some go to play dice. Some folk go looking for a fight, and others go hoping to watch a fight. Folk don't get hurt as much as you'd expect. Bruises and split lips are usually the worst of it. If you're unlucky, you might lose a tooth or break an arm, but there's a vast difference between a friendly bar fight and a back-alley coshing. A bar fight has rules and a host of unofficial judges standing around to enforce them. If things start to get vicious, spectators are quick to leap in and break things up because that's what you'd want someone to do for you. There are exceptions, of course. Accidents happen, and I knew all too well from my time in the Medica how easy it was to sprain a wrist or dislocate a finger. Those might be minor injuries to a cattle drover or an innkeeper, but to me, with so much of my livelihood relying on my clever hands, the thought of a broken thumb was terrifying. My stomach nodded as I watched Tempe take another swallow of whiskey and get to his feet. The problem was that we were strangers here. If things got ugly, could I count on the irritated mercenaries to step in and put a stop to things? Three against one was nothing close to a fair fight, and if it got ugly, it would get ugly fast. Tempe took a mouthful of beer and looked at me calmly. Watch my back, he said, then turned to walk to where the other mercenaries stood. For a moment, I was simply impressed by his good use of Aturin. Since I'd known him, he'd gone from practically mute to using idiomatic speech. But that pride quickly faded as I tried to think of something I could do to stop the fight if things got out of control. I couldn't think of a blessed thing. I hadn't seen this coming, and I had no clever tricks up my sleeve. For lack of any better options, I drew my knife out of its sheath and held it out of sight below the level of the table. The last thing I'd want to do is stab someone, but I could at least menace them with it and buy us enough time to get out the door. Tempe gave the three mercenaries an appraising look. Tam was inches taller than he, with shoulders like an ox. There was a bald fellow with a scarred face and a wicked grin. Last was the blonde woman who stood a full hand taller than Tempe. There is only one woman, Tempe said, looking Tam in the eye. Is enough. You may bring one more. The female mercenary bristled. You swagger cock, she spat. I'll show you what a woman can do in a fight. Tempe nodded politely. His continuing lack of concern began to relax me. I had heard the stories, of course, a single Adem mercenary defeating a dozen regular soldiers. Could Tempe really fight off these three at the same time? He certainly seemed to think so. Tempe looked at them. This is my first fight of this sort. How does begin? My palms started to sweat where I gripped the knife. Tam stepped up so their chests were only inches apart. He loomed over Tempe. We'll start by whipping you bloody. Then we'll give you a kicking. Then we'll come round to do it again to make sure we didn't miss anything. As he said the last, he slammed his forehead down into Tempe's face. My breath caught in my chest, and before I could get it back, the fight was over. When the bearded mercenary snapped his head forward, I had expected to see Tempe reel backward, nose broken and gushing blood, 
but Tam was the one who staggered backward, howling and clutching at his face, blood spurting from beneath his hands. Tempe stepped forward, got his hand on the back of the big man's neck, and spun him effortlessly into the ground where he landed in a messy tangle of arms and legs. Without a hint of hesitation, Tempe turned and kicked the blonde woman squarely in the hip, making her stagger. While she was reeling, Tempe punched her sharply in the side of the head, and she folded bonelessly to the ground. That's when the bald man stepped in, arms spread like a wrestler. Quick as a snake, he got one hand on Tempe's shoulder and the other on his neck. I honestly can't say what happened next. There was a flurry of movement, and Tempe was left gripping the man's wrist and shoulder. The bald man snarled and struggled, but Tempe simply twisted the man's arm until he was bent over, staring at the floor. Then Tempe kicked the man's leg out from under him, sending him tumbling to the ground. All in less time than it takes to tell it. If I hadn't been so stunned, I would have burst into applause. Tam and the woman lay with the dead stillness of those deeply unconscious, but the bald man snarled something and began to make his way unsteadily back to his feet. Tempe stepped close, struck him in the head with casual precision, then watched the man slump limply to the ground. It was, I thought idly, the most polite punch I'd ever seen. It was the careful blow of a skilled carpenter pounding a nail, hard enough to drive it fully home, but not so hard as to bruise the wood around it. The room was very quiet in the aftermath. Then, the tall man who had refused to fight raised his mug in salute, spilling a little. Good on ye, he said loudly to Tempe, laughing. Nobody will think less of ye if you show Tom a bit of your boot while he's down there. Lord knows he's done it enough in his day. Tempe looked down as if considering it, then shook his head and walked quietly back to our table. All eyes were still watching him, but the looks weren't nearly as dark as before. Tempe came back to the table. Did you watch my back? I looked up at him blankly, then nodded. What did you see? Only then did I understand what he really meant. Your back was very straight. Approval. Your back is not straight. He held up a flat hand, tilted to one side. That is why you stumble in the cave, then. It is... Looking down, he trailed off, having noticed my knife half-concealed in my tatty cloak. He frowned. Actually frowned with his face. It was the first time I'd seen him do it, and it was amazingly intimidating. We will speak on this later, he said. At his side, he gestured, vast disapproval. Feeling more chastised than if I'd spent an hour on the horns, I ducked my head and put the knife away. We had been walking quietly for hours, our packs heavy with supplies, when Tempe finally spoke. There is a thing I must teach you. Serious. I'm always glad to learn. I said, making the gesture I hoped meant earnest. Tempe walked to the side of the road, set down his heavy pack, and sat on the grass. We must speak of the Lithani. It took all my control to not burst out into a sudden giddy smile. I had been wanting to bring up the subject for a long while, as we were much closer than when I'd first asked him, but I hadn't wanted to risk offending him again. I sat quietly for a moment 
partly to maintain my composure, but also to let Tempe know I was treating this subject with respect. The Lethani, I repeated carefully. You said I must not ask of it. You must not, then. Now, perhaps. I, uncertain. I am pulled many ways, but now asking is. I waited for another moment to see if he would continue on his own. When he didn't, I asked the obvious question. What is the Lethani? Serious. Tempe looked at me for a long moment, then suddenly burst out laughing. I do not know, and I cannot tell you. He laughed again, understatement. Still, we must speak of it. I hesitated, wondering if this was one of his strange jokes that I could never seem to understand. Is complicated, he said. Hard in my own language. Yours? Frustration. Tell me what you know of the Lethani. I tried to think of how I could describe what I'd heard of the Lethani using only the words he knew. I heard the Lethani is a secret thing that makes the Adem strong. Tempe nodded. Yes, this is true. They say if you know the Lethani, you cannot lose a fight. Another nod. I shook my head, knowing I wasn't getting my point across. They say the Lethani is a secret power. Adem keep their words inside. I made a gesture as if gathering things close to my body and hoarding them. Then those words are like wood in a fire. This word fire makes the Adem very strong, very fast, skin like iron. This is why you can fight many men and win. Tempe looked at me intently. He made a gesture I didn't recognize. That is mad talking, he said at last. Is that the correct word, mad? He stuck out his tongue and rolled his eyes, wiggling his fingers at the side of his head. I couldn't help but laugh nervously at the display. Yes, mad is the word. Also crazy. Then what you have said is mad talking and also crazy. But what I saw today, I said, your nose did not break when struck with a man's head. That is no natural thing. Tempe shook his head as he climbed to his feet. Come, stand. I stood, and Tempe stepped close to me. Striking with the head is clever. It is quick. Can startle if opponent is not ready. But I am not not ready. He stepped closer still, until we were almost touching chest. You are the loud man, he said. Your head is hard. My nose is soft. He reached out and took hold of my head with both his hands. You want this. He brought my head down slowly until my forehead pressed his nose. Tempe let go of my head. Striking with the head is quick. For me, little time. Can I move? He moved my head down as he pulled away and this time my forehead came into contact with his mouth instead, as if he were giving me a kiss. This is not good. 
The mouth is soft. He tipped my head back again. If I am very fast. He took a full step back and brought my head down farther until my forehead touched his chest. He let me go, and I stood back up. This is still not good. My chest is not soft, but this man has a head harder than many. His eyes twinkled a little, and I chuckled, realizing he had made a joke. So, Tempe said, stepping back to where we were before, what can Tempe do? He motioned. Strike with the head. Slow. I show. Vaguely nervous, I brought my head down slowly as if trying to break his nose. Matching my slow speed, Tempe leaned forward and tucked his chin a bit. It wasn't much of a change, but this time, as I brought my head down, my nose met the top of his head. Tempe stepped back. See? Cleverness. Not mad-thinking wordfire. It was very fast, I said, feeling slightly embarrassed. I could not see. Yes. Fighting is fast. Train to be fast. Train, not wordfire. He gestured earnest and met my eye, a rarity for him. I tell this because you are the leader. You need the knowing. If you think I have secret ways and iron skin... He looked away, shaking his head. Dangerous. We both sat back down next to our packs. I heard it in a story, I said by way of explanation. A story like we tell around the fire at night. But you, he pointed to me, you have fire in your hands. You have... He snapped his fingers, then made a gesture like a fire roaring up suddenly. You have the doing of this, and you think the Adem have word fires inside? I shrugged. That is why I ask of the Lathani. It seems mad, but I have seen mad things be true, and I am curious. I hesitated before asking my other question. You said, who knows the Lathani cannot lose a fight. Yes, but not with word fires. The Lethani is a type of knowing. Tempe paused, obviously considering his words carefully. Lethani is most important thing. All Adem learn. Mercenary learn twice. Shayan learn three times. Most important. But complicated. Lethani is many things. But... Nothing touched or pointed to. Adam spent whole lives thinking on the Lethani. Very hard. Problem, he said. It is not my place to teach my leader, but you are my student in language. Women teach the Lethani. I am not such. It is a part of civilization, and you are a barbarian. Gentle sorrow. But you want to be civilization, and you have need of the Lethani. Explain it, I said. I will try to understand. He nodded. The Lethani is doing right things. I waited patiently for him to continue. After a minute... 
He gestured. Frustration. Now you ask questions. He took a deep breath and repeated, The Letani is doing right things. I tried to think of an archetypal example of something good. So, the Lathani is giving a hungry child food to eat? He made a wavering motion that meant yes and no. The Lathani is not doing a thing. Lathani is the thing that shows us. Lathani means rules? Laws? Tempe shook his head. No. He gestured to the forest around us. Law is from outside, controlling. It is the... the horse mouth metal and the head strings. Questioning. Bridle and bit? I suggested, motioning as if pulling a horse's head about with a pair of reins. Yes. Law is bridle and bit. It controls from outside. The Litani... He pointed between his eyes, then at his chest. Lives inside. Litani helps decide. Law is made because many have no understanding of Litani. So, with the Litani, a person does not need to follow the law. Pause. Perhaps. Frustration. He drew out his sword and held it parallel to the ground, its edge pointing up. If you were small, walking this sword would be like the Litani. Painful for feet? I asked, trying to lighten the mood a bit. Amusement. Anger. Disapproval. No. Difficult to walk. Easy to fall on one side. Difficult to stay. The Litani is very straight? No. Pause. What is it called when there is many mountain and one place for walking? A path? A pass? Pass, Tempe nodded. The Latani is like a pass in the mountains. Bends. Complicated. Pass is easy way through. Only way through. But not easy to see. Path that is easy much times not go through mountains... Sometimes goes nowhere, starve, fall onto hole. So the Lathani is the right way through the mountains. Partial agreement, excitement. It is the right way through the mountains, but the Lathani is also knowing the right way. Both. And mountains are not just mountains. Mountains are everything. So, the Lathani is civilization. Pause. Yes and no. Tempe shook his head, frustrated. I thought back to what he had said about mercenaries having to learn the Lathani twice. Is the Lathani fighting? I asked. No. He said this with such absolute certainty that I had to ask the opposite to make sure. Is the Lathani not fighting? No. One who knows the Lefani knows when to fight and not fight. Very important. I decided to change directions. Was it of the Lefani for you to fight today? Yes. To show Adam is not afraid. We know with barbarians not fighting is coward. 
coward is weak, not good for them to think, so with many watching, fight, also to show one a them is worth many. What if they had won? Then barbarians know Tempe is not worth many. Slight amusement. If they had won, would today's fight be not of the Lethani? No. If you fall and break a leg in mountain pass, it is still the pass. If I fail while following the Lethani, it is still the Lethani. Serious. This is why we are talking now. Today, with your knife, that was not the Lethani. It was not a right thing. I was afraid you would be hurt. The Lethani does not put down roots in fear, he said, sounding as if he were reciting. Would it be the Lethani to let you be hurt? A shrug. Perhaps. Would it be of the Lethani to let you be, extreme emphasis, hurt? Perhaps no, but they did not. To be first with the knife is not of the Lethani. If you win and are first with the knife, you do not win. Vast disapproval. I couldn't puzzle out what he meant by the last. I don't understand, I said. The Lethani is right action, right way, right time. Tempe's face suddenly lit up. The old trader man, he said with visible enthusiasm, in the stories with the packs, what is the word? Tinker? Yes, the tinker. How you must treat such men. I knew, but I wanted to see what the Adem thought. How? He looked at me, his fingers pressing together, irritation. You must be kind and help them, and speak well, always polite, always. I nodded. And if they offer something, you must consider buying it. Tempe made a triumphant gesture. Yes, you can do many things when meeting Tinker, but there is only one right thing. He calmed himself a little. Caution. But only doing is not the Lethani. First knowing, then doing. That is the Lethani. I thought on this for a moment. So being polite is the Lethani? Not polite, not kind, not good, not duty. The Lethani is none of these. Each moment each choice, all different. He gave me a penetrating look. Do you understand? No. Happiness, approval. Tempe got to his feet, nodding. It is good you know you do not. Good that you say. That is also of the Lethani. Chapter 88 listening. Tempe and I returned to find the camp surprisingly cheerful. Daydan and Hespa were smiling at each other, and Martin had managed to shoot a wild turkey for dinner. So we ate and joked, and after the washing up was done, Hespa told her story about the boy who loved the moon, 
starting again at the beginning. Daydan kept his mouth miraculously shut, and I dared to hope our little group was finally, finally starting to become a team. Jax had no trouble following the moon, because in those days, the moon was always full. She hung in the sky, round as a cup, bright as a candle, all unchanging. Jax walked for days and days until his feet grew sore. He walked for months and months, and his back grew tired beneath his packs. He walked for years and years and grew up tall and lean and hard and hungry. When he needed food, he traded out of the tinker's packs. When his shoes wore thin, he did the same. Jax made his own way, and he grew up clever and sly. Through it all, Jax thought about the moon. When he began to think he couldn't go another step, he'd put on his spectacles and look up at her, round-bellied in the sky. And when he saw her, he would feel a slow stirring in his chest. And in time, he came to think he was in love. Eventually, the road Jax followed passed through Tinue, as all roads do. Still, he walked, following the great stone road east toward the mountains. The road climbed and climbed. He ate the last of his bread and the last of his cheese. He drank the last of his water and the last of his wine. He walked for days without either, the moon growing larger in the night sky above him. Just as his strength was failing, Jax climbed over a rise and found an old man sitting in the mouth of a cave. He had a long grey beard and a long grey robe. He had no hair on the top of his head or shoes on the bottom of his feet. His eyes were open and his mouth was closed. His face lit up when he saw Jax. He came to his feet and smiled. Hello, hello, he said, his voice bright and rich. You're a long way from anywhere. How is the road to Tinue? It's long, Jack said, and hard and weary. The old man invited Jax to sit. He brought him water and goat's milk and fruit to eat. Jax ate hungrily, then offered the man a pair of shoes from his pack in trade. No need, no need, the old man said happily, wiggling his toes. But thanks for offering all the same. Jack shrugged. As you will. But what are you doing here, so far from everything? I found this cave when I was out chasing the wind, the old man said. I decided to stay because this place is perfect for what I do. And what is that? Jax asked. I am a listener, the old man said. I listen to things to see what they have to say. Ah, Jack said carefully. And this is a good place for that? Quite good, quite excellent good, the old man said. You need to get a long ways away from people before you can learn to listen properly. He smiled. What brings you out to my little corner of the sky? I am trying to find the moon. That's easy enough, the old man said, gesturing to the sky. We see her most every night, weather permitting. No, I'm trying to catch her. If I could be with her, I think I could be happy. The old man looked at him seriously. You want to catch her, do you? How long have you been chasing? More years and miles than I can count. 
The old man closed his eyes for a moment, then nodded to himself. I can hear it in your voice. This is no passing fancy. He leaned close and pressed his ear to Jax's chest. He closed his eyes for another long moment and was very still. Ooh, he said softly. How sad. Your heart is broken, and you've never even had a chance to use it. Jax moved around, a little uncomfortable. If you don't mind my asking, Jax said, what's your name? I don't mind you asking, the old man said, so long as you don't mind me not telling. If you had my name, I'd be under your power, wouldn't I? Would you? Jax asked. Of course, the old man frowned. That is the way of things. Though you don't seem to be much for listening, it's best to be careful. If you managed to catch hold of even just a piece of my name, you'd have all manner of power over me. Jax wondered if this man might be able to help him. While he didn't seem to be terribly ordinary, Jax knew he was on no ordinary errand. If he'd been trying to catch a cow, he would ask a farmer's help. But to catch the moon... Perhaps he needed the help of an odd old man. You said you used to chase the wind, Jack said. Did you ever catch it? In some ways, yes, the old man said. And in other ways, no. There are many ways of looking at that question, you see. Could you help me catch the moon? I might be able to give you some advice, the old man said reluctantly. But first... You should think this over, boy. When you love something, you have to make sure it loves you back, or you'll bring about no end of trouble chasing it. Hesper didn't look at Daydan as she said this. She looked everywhere in the world but at him. Because of this, she didn't see the stricken, helpless look on his face. How can I find out if she loves me? Jax asked. You could try listening the old man said, almost shyly. It works wonders, you know. I could teach you how. How long would that take? A couple years, the old man said. Give or take. It depends on if you have a knack for it. It's tricky, proper listening, but once you have it, you'll know the moon down to the bottoms of her feet. Jack shook his head. Too long. If I can catch her... I can talk with her. I can make... Well, that's part of your problem right there, the old man said. You don't really want to catch her. Not really. Will you trail her through the sky? Of course not. You want to meet her. That means you need the moon to come to you. How can I do that? He said. The old man smiled. Well, that's the question, isn't it? What do you have that the moon might want? What do you have to offer the moon? Only what I have in these packs. That's not quite what I meant, the old man muttered. But we might as well take a look at what you've brought, too. The old hermit looked through the first pack and found many practical things. The contents of the second pack were more expensive and rare, but no more useful. Then the old man saw the third pack. And what do you have in there? I've never been able to get it open, Jack said. The knot is too much for me. 
The hermit closed his eyes for a moment, listening. Then he opened his eyes and frowned at Jacks. The knot says you tore at it, pricked it with a knife, bit it with your teeth. Jacks was surprised. I did, he admitted. I told you I tried everything to get it open. Hardly everything, the hermit said scornfully. He lifted the pack until the knotted cord was in front of his face. I'm terribly sorry, he said. But would you open up? He paused. Yes, I apologize. He won't do it again. The knot unraveled, and the hermit opened the pack. Looking inside, his eyes widened, and he let out a low whistle. But when the old man spread the pack open on the ground, Jax's shoulders slumped. He had been hoping for money or gems, some treasure he could give the moon as a gift. But all the pack held was a bent piece of wood, a stone flute, and a small iron box. Of these, only the flute caught Jax's attention. It was made of a pale green stone. I had a flute when I was younger, Jax said, but it broke, and I could never make it right again. They're all quite impressive, the hermit said. The flute is nice enough, Jack said with a shrug. But what use is a piece of wood in a box too small for anything practical? The hermit shook his head. Can't you hear them? Most things whisper. These things shout. He pointed at the piece of crooked wood. That is a folding house, unless I miss my guess. Quite a nice one, too. What's a folding house? You know how you can fold a piece of paper on itself, and each time it gets smaller? The old man gestured at the piece of crooked wood. A folding house is like that, except it's a house, of course. Jax took hold of the piece of crooked wood and tried to straighten it. Suddenly, he was holding two pieces of wood that resembled the beginning of a door frame. Don't unfold it here! the old man shouted. I don't want a house outside my cave blocking my sunlight. Jax tried to push the two pieces of wood back together. Why can't I fold it back up? Because you don't know how, I expect, the old man said plainly. I suggest you wait until you know where you want it before you unfold it the rest of the way. Jack set the wood down carefully, then picked up the flute. Is this special too? He put it to his lips and blew a simple trill like a will's widow. Hespa smiled teasingly, lifted a familiar wooden whistle to her lips, and blew, Ta-ta-dee, ta-ta-dee. Now everyone knows the Will's Widow is also called a nightjar, so it isn't out when the sun is shining. Despite this, a dozen nightjars flew down and landed all around Jax, looking at him curiously and blinking in the bright sunlight. It seems to be more than the usual flute, the old man said. And the box? Jax reached out and picked it up. It was dark and cold and small enough that he could close his hand around it. The old man shivered and looked away from the box. It's empty. How can you tell without seeing inside? By listening, he said. I'm amazed you can't hear it yourself. It's the emptiest thing I've ever heard. It echoes. It's meant for keeping things inside. All boxes are meant for keeping things inside. And all flutes are meant to play beguiling music. The old man pointed out. But this flute is more so. 
The same is true with this box. Jax looked at the box for a moment, then set it down carefully and began to tie up the third pack with the three treasures inside it. I think I'll be moving on, Jax said. Are you sure you won't consider staying for a month or two? The old man said. You could learn to listen just a bit more closely. Useful thing, listening. You've given me some things to think about, Jack said. And I think you're right. I shouldn't be chasing the moon. I should make the moon come to me. That's not what I actually said, the old man murmured. But he did so in a resigned way. Skilled listener that he was, he knew he wasn't being heard. Jax set off the next morning, following the moon higher into the mountains. Eventually, he found a large, flat piece of ground nestled high among the tallest peaks. Jax brought out the crooked piece of wood and piece by piece began to unfold the house. With the whole night in front of him, he was hoping to have it finished well before the moon began to rise. But the house was much larger than he had guessed, more a mansion than a simple cottage. What's more, Unfolding it was more complicated than he had expected. By the time the moon reached the top of the sky, he was still far from being finished. Perhaps Jacks hurried because of this. Perhaps he was reckless. Or perhaps it was just that Jacks was unlucky as ever. In the end, the result was the same. The mansion was magnificent, huge and sprawling. But it didn't fit together properly. There were stairways that led sideways instead of up. Some rooms had too few walls, or too many. Many rooms had no ceiling, and high above they showed a strange sky full of unfamiliar stars. Everything about the place was slightly skewed. In one room, you could look out the window at the springtime flowers, while across the hall the windows were filmed with winter's frost. It could be time for breakfast in the ballroom, while twilight filled a nearby bedroom. Because nothing in the house was true, None of the doors or windows fit tight. They could be closed, even locked, but never made fast. And as big as it was, the mansion had a great many doors and windows, so there were a great many ways both in and out. Jax paid no mind to any of this. Instead, he raced to the top of the highest tower and put the flute to his lips. He poured out a sweet song into the clear night sky. No simple bird trill. This was a song that came from his broken heart. It was strong and sad. It fluttered like a bird with a broken wing. Hearing it, the moon came down to the tower. Pale and round and beautiful, she stood before Jax in all her glory, and for the first time in his life he felt a single breath of joy. They spoke then, on the top of the tower, Jax telling her of his life, his wager, and his long, lonely journey. The moon listened and laughed and smiled. But eventually she looked longingly toward the sky. Jax knew what this foretold. Stay with me, he pleaded. I can only be happy if you're mine. I must go, she said. The sky is my home. I have made a home for you, Jax said, gesturing to the vast mansion below them. There is sky enough for you here, an empty sky that is all for you. I must go, she said. I have been away too long. He raised his hand as if to grab her, then stopped himself. Time is what we make it here, he said. Your bedroom can be winter or spring, all according to your desire. 
I must go, she said, looking upward, but I will return. I am always an unchanging, and if you play your flute for me, I will visit you again. I have given you three things, he said, a song, a home, and my heart. If you must go, will you not give me three things in return? She laughed, holding her hands out to her sides. She was naked as the moon. What do I have that I can leave with you? But if it is mine to give, ask, and I will give it. Jax found his mouth was dry. First, I would ask for a touch of your hand. One hand clasps another, and I grant you your request. She reached out to him, her hand smooth and strong. At first it seemed cool, then marvelously warm. Goose flesh ran all up and down Jax's arms. Second, I would beg a kiss, he said. One mouth tastes another, and I grant you your request. She leaned in close to him. Her breath was sweet, her lips firm as fruit. The kiss pulled the breath out of Jax, and for the first time in his life, his mouth curved into the beginning of a smile. And what is the third thing? The moon asked. Her eyes were dark and wise. Her smile was full and knowing. Your name, Jax breathed, that I might call you by it. One body, the moon began, stepping forward eagerly, then she paused. Only my name? she asked, sliding her hand around his waist. Jax nodded. She leaned close and spoke warmly against his ear. Ludus. And Jax brought out the black iron box, closing the lid and catching her name inside. Now I have your name, he said firmly. So I have mastery over you, and I say you must stay with me forever so I can be happy. And so it was. The box was no longer cold in his hand. It was warm, and inside he could feel her name fluttering like a moth against a window pane. Perhaps Jax had been too slow in closing the box. Perhaps he fumbled with the clasp, or perhaps he was simply unlucky in all things. But in the end, he only managed to catch a piece of the moon's name, not the thing entire. So Jax could keep her for a while, but she always slips away from him out from his broken mansion, back to our world. But still, he has a piece of her name, and so she always must return. Hesper looked around at us, smiling. And that is why the moon is always changing, and that is where Jax keeps her when she is not in our sky. He caught her, and he keeps her still. But whether or not he is happy is only for him to know. There was a long moment of silence. That, Daydan said, is one hell of a story. Hesper looked down, and though the firelight made it difficult to tell, I would have bet a penny she was blushing. Hard Hesper, who I wouldn't have guessed had a drop of blushing in her. It took me a long time to remember all of it, she said. My mother used to tell it to me when I was a little girl. Every night always the same. Said she learned it from her mother. Well, you'll need to make sure you tell your daughters too, Daydan said. A story like that is too good to let fall by the roadside. 
Hespa smiled. Unfortunately, that peaceful evening was like the lull that comes in the center of a storm. The next day, Hespa made a comment that sent Daydan off in a huff, and for two hours they could barely look at each other without hissing like angry cats. Daydan tried to convince everyone we should give up our search and instead sign up as caravan guards, hoping the bandits would attack us. Martin said that made as much sense as trying to find a bear trap by putting your foot in it. Martin was right, but that didn't keep Daydan and the tracker from snapping at each other over the next couple days. Two days later, Hespa gave a surprisingly girlish shriek of alarm while bathing. We ran to her assistance, expecting bandits, and instead found Tempe naked, knee-deep in the stream. Hespa stood half-dressed and dripping wet on the shore. Martin thought it was hilarious. Hespa did not and the only thing that kept Daydan from flying into a rage and attacking Tempe was the fact that he couldn't figure out how to attack a naked man without looking in his direction or actually touching him. The day after that, the weather grew foggy and damp, souring everyone's mood and slowing our search even further. Then it began to rain. Chapter 89 Losing the Light the last four days had been endlessly overcast and raining. At first, the trees had given us some shelter, but we soon discovered that the leaves overhead merely held the rain, and the slightest stir of wind sent down showers of heavy drops that had been gathering for hours. This meant that whether or not it was currently raining, we were constantly dripped upon and damp. Stories after supper had stopped. Martin caught a cold, and as it worsened, he grew sullen and sarcastic and two days ago the bread had gotten wet. This might sound like a small thing, but if you've ever tried to eat a piece of wet bread after a day of walking in the rain, you know what sort of mood it puts you in. Daydan had grown truly unmanageable. He balked and complained at the simplest of tasks. The last time he had gone into town for supplies, he had bought a bottle of dreg instead of potatoes, butter, and bowstrings. Hespa left him behind at Crossan, and he didn't get back to camp until nearly midnight, stinking drunk and singing loud enough to make the dead cover their ears. I didn't bother telling him off. Sharp as my trooper's tongue was, he was obviously immune to it. Instead, I waited until he passed out, poured the remaining drag on the fire, and left the bottle sitting in the coals for him to see. After that, he stopped his constant derogatory muttering about me and settled into chilly silence. While the quiet was nice, I knew it was a bad sign. Given everyone's rising temper, I decided each of us would search for trail sign on our own. This was partly because walking in someone's footsteps over wet turf was a sure way to tear up the ground and leave a trail, but the other reason is that I knew if I sent Daydan and Hespa out together, their eventual argument would alert any bandit within ten miles. I came back to camp dripping wet and miserable. It turns out the boots I'd bought in Severin didn't have a lick of waterproofing, so they drank rainwater like sponges. In the evening, I could dry them out using the heat of the fire and a little careful sympathy, but as soon as I took three steps, they were soaked through again. So on top of everything, my feet had been cold and damp for days. It was our twenty-ninth day in the Eld, and when I came over the tiny ridge that hid our latest camp, I saw Daydan and Hespa sitting on opposite sides of the fire, ignoring each other. Hespa was oiling her sword, 
Daydan was idly jabbing the ground in front of him with a pointed stick. I wasn't in much mood for conversation myself. Hoping the silence held, I went wordlessly to the fire. Except, there was no fire. What happened to the fire? I asked stupidly. What had happened was rather obvious. It had been left to burn down to charred sticks and damp ashes. It's not my turn to get wood, Hespa said pointedly. Daydan poked at the dirt with his stick. I noticed the beginnings of a bruise high on his cheek. All I wanted in the world was a little something hot to eat and ten minutes with dry feet. It wouldn't make me happy, but it would bring me closer to happy than I'd been all day. I'm surprised the two of you can piss without help, I spat. Daydan glared up at me. Just what do you mean by that? When Alvaron asked me to do this job for him, he implied I would have adults helping me, not a handful of school children. Daydan snapped. You don't know what she... I cut him off. I don't care. I don't care what you're bickering about. I don't care what she threw at you. I care that the fire is out. Telu above a trained dog would be more help. Daydan's expression firmed into a familiar belligerence. Maybe if... Shut up, I said. I would rather listen to a jackass braying than waste my time with whatever you're saying. When I come back to camp... I expect fire and a meal. If this is beyond you, I'll arrange to have some five-year-old come out from Crossin and babysit the both of you. Daydan stood. The wind gusted in the trees above us, sending down heavy drops to patter on the ground. You're on your way to a meal you won't be able to stomach, boy. His hands clenched into fists, and I reached into my pocket to grip the moment I had made of him two days ago. I felt my stomach clench in fear and fury. Daydan, if you take a single step toward me, I will lay such pain on you that you will scream for me to kill you. I stared him square in the eye. Right now, I am irritated. Do not even think of making me angry. He paused, and I could almost hear him thinking of every story he had ever heard about Taberlin the Great, fire and lightning. There was a moment of long silence as the two of us stared at each other, unblinking. Luckily, at this point, Tempe returned to camp, breaking the tension. Feeling a little foolish, I went to the embers of the fire to see if I could rekindle it. Daydan stomped into the trees, hopefully in search of wood. At this point, I didn't care if it was Rennell or not. Tempe sat by the side of the dead fire. Perhaps, if I hadn't been busy, I might have noticed something odd in his movement. Then again, perhaps not. Even for a semi-educated barbarian such as myself, the moods of the Adem are difficult to read. As I coaxed the fire slowly back to life, I began to regret how I had handled things. That thought alone kept me from lashing out at Daydan when he returned with an armload of wet wood and dropped it at the edge of my newly rebuilt fire, scattering it. Martin came back shortly after I had rebuilt the fire a second time. He settled at the edge of it and spread his hands. His eyes were sunken and dark. Feeling any better? I asked him. Loads! His voice rasped wetly in his chest, sounding worse than it had this morning. I worried about the sound of his breathing, about pneumonia, about fever. I can mix you a tea that will make your throat a little easier, I suggested without much hope. He'd rejected all my offers of help over the last several days. 
He hesitated, then nodded. As I was heating the water, he had a fit of violent coughing that lasted nearly a minute. If the rain didn't stop tonight, we would have to head into town and wait for him to recover. I couldn't risk him catching pneumonia or giving away our position to bandit sentries with a coughing fit. I handed him his tea, and Tempe stirred in his seat by the edge of the fire. I killed two men today, he said. There was a long moment of stunned silence. Rain pattered on the ground around us. The fire hissed and spat. What? I asked incredulously. I was attacked by two men behind trees, Tempe said calmly. I rubbed the back of my neck. Damn it, Tempe! Why didn't you say something before? He gave me a level look, and his fingers made an unfamiliar circle. It is not easy to kill two men, he said. Are you hurt? Hespa asked. Tempe turned his cool look on her next, offended. I'd misunderstood his previous comment. It wasn't the fight itself he had found difficult. It was the fact that he had killed two men. I have needed this time to settle my thoughts. Also, I wait to when all are here. I tried to remember the gesture for apology, but I had to settle for sorrow instead. What happened? I asked calmly as I fingered the frayed ends of my patience. Tempe paused to choose his words. I was trying to find trail when two men jump out from trees. What do they look like? Daydan asked, beating me to the question. Another pause. One your size. His arms longer than mine, stronger than me, but slow. Slower than you. Daydan's expression darkened, as if he couldn't decide if he had been insulted. The other was smaller and quicker. Both their swords were broad and thick, edged on both sides. They slung. He held his hands perhaps three feet apart. I thought the description revealed more about Tempe than the men he fought. Where did it happen? How long ago? He pointed in the direction we had been searching. Less than one mile. Less than one hour. Do you think they were waiting for you? They weren't there when I came through, Martin said defensively. He gave a wet, tearing cough deep in his chest and spat something thick onto the ground. If they were waiting, they couldn't have been waiting long. Tempe gave an eloquent shrug. What sort of armor did they have? Daydan asked. Tempe was quiet for a moment then reached out to tap my boot. This? Leather, I suggested. He nodded. Leather. Hard and with some metal. Daydan relaxed a bit. That's something at least, he mused, then looked up sharply at Hespa. What? What was that look you just gave me? I wasn't looking at you, Hespa said frostily. You were so. You rolled your eyes. He looked at Martin. You saw her roll her eyes, didn't you? Shut up! I snarled at the two of them. Surprisingly, things grew quiet. 
I pressed the heels of my hands to my eyes and gave our situation a moment of uninterrupted thought. Martin, how much light do we have left? He looked up at the slate-colored sky. About another hour and a half like this, he rasped. Enough to track in. Then maybe a quarter hour of bad light after that. The sun will go down quick behind these clouds. Do you feel up to a little more running around today? I asked. His grin surprised me. If we can find these bastards tonight, let's do it. They've kept me tramping around this godforsaken place long enough. I nodded, reached out, and took a pinch of damp ash from the pitifully small fire. I rubbed it between my fingers thoughtfully, then wiped it onto a small rag and tucked it into my cloak. It wouldn't be a good source of heat, but anything was better than nothing. All right, I said. Tempe will lead us to the bodies. Then we'll see if we can trail them back to their camp. I stood up. Whoa, Daydan said, holding out his hands. What about us? You and Hespa stay here and guard the camp. I bit my tongue to keep from adding, and try to keep the fire from going out. Why? Let's all go. We can take care of them tonight. He got to his feet. And what if there's a dozen of them? I asked in my best scathing tones. He paused, but didn't back down. We'll have the element of surprise. We won't have the element of surprise if all five of us go tramping around, I said hotly. Why are you going then? Daydan demanded. It could just be Tempe and Martin. I'm going because I need to see what we're up against. I'm the one that's going to be making the plan that will get us through this alive. Why should Greenwood like you be making a plan at all? We're losing the light, Martin interjected wearily. Blessed Talu, a voice of reason speaks. I looked at Daydan. We are going. You are staying. That is an order. An order? Daydan echoed with dark incredulity. We eyed each other dangerously for a moment. Then I turned and followed Tempe into the trees. Thunder growled through the sky above us. A wind moved through the trees, clearing away the endless drizzle. In its place, a steady rain began to fall. Chapter 90 To Sing a Song About Tempe lifted the pine boughs that covered the two men. Laid carefully on their backs, they looked as if they were sleeping. I knelt at the side of the larger one, but before I could get a better look, I felt a hand on my shoulder. Looking back, I saw Tempe shaking his head. What? I asked. We had less than an hour of light left. Hunting down the bandits' camp without getting caught was going to be difficult enough. Doing it in a pitch-black storm would be a nightmare. You should not, he said, firm, serious. Troubling the dead is not of the Lethani. I need to know about our enemies. I can learn things from them that will help us. His mouth almost frowned. Disapproval. Magic? I shook my head, looking only. I pointed to my eyes, then tapped my temple, thinking. Tempe nodded, but as I turned back to the bodies, I felt his hand on my shoulder again. You must ask. 
They are my dead. You already agreed, I pointed out. Asking is the right thing, he said. I took a deep breath. May I look at your dead, Tempe? He nodded once, formally. I looked over to where Martin was giving his bowstring a careful inspection under a nearby tree. Do you want to see if you can find their trail? He nodded and pushed himself away from the tree. I'd start over there. I pointed to the south between two ridges. I know my business, he said as he walked off, shouldering his bow. Tempe took a couple steps away, and I turned my attention to the bodies. One was actually quite a bit larger than Daydan, a great bull of a man. They were older than I had expected, and their hands had the calluses that mark long years of working with weapons. These were not disgruntled farm boys. These were veterans. I've got the trail, Martin said, startling me. I hadn't heard the sound of him approaching over the low susurrus of the falling rain. It's clear as day. A drunk priest could follow it. There was a flicker of lightning across the sky and an accompanying grumble of thunder. The rain started to come down harder. I frowned and pulled the tinker's sodden cloak tighter around my shoulders. Martin tilted his head up and let the rain fall full on his face. I'm glad this weather is finally doing us some good, he said. The more it rains, the easier it will be for us to sneak in and away from their camp. He wiped his hands on his dripping shirt and shrugged. Besides, it's not like we can get any wetter than we already are. You have a point, I said, standing. Tempe covered the bodies with the branches, and Martin led us away to the south. Martin knelt to examine something on the ground, and I took the opportunity to catch up with him. We're being followed, I said, not bothering to whisper it. They were at least seventy feet behind us, and the rain was rolling through the trees with a noise like waves against the shore. He nodded and pretended to point at something on the ground. I didn't think you'd seen them. I smiled and stripped water from my face with a wet hand. You're not the only one here with eyes. How many do you think there are? Two. Maybe three. Tempe drew close to us. Who? he said with certainty in his voice. I only saw one, I admitted. How close are we to their camp? No guess. Could be over the next hill. Could be miles off. There are still just these two sets of tracks, and I can't smell any fires. He stood up and started to follow the trail again without looking back. I pushed a low branch aside as Tempe walked past and caught a glimpse of movement behind us that had nothing to do with wind or rain. Let's go over this next ridge and set a little trap. Sounds like the very thing, Martin agreed. Gesturing for us to wait, Martin crouched low and edged his way up to the top of the small rise. I fought the urge to look behind us while he peered over the lip of the ridge, then scampered over. There was a bright flash as lightning struck nearby. The thunder was like a fist in my chest. I startled. Tempe stood. This is like of home, he said, smiling faintly. He made no attempt to keep the water from his face. Martin waved 
and we stalked over the top of the ridge. Once we were out of sight of whoever was following us, I looked around quickly. Keep following the tracks up to that twisted spruce, then circle back, I gestured. Tempe hides there. Martin, behind that fallen tree. I'll go behind that stone. Martin will make the first move. Use your judgment, but it would probably be best if you waited until they were past that broken stump. Try to leave one of them alive, if possible, but we can't have them getting away or making too much noise. What will you be doing? Martin asked as we hurried to lay down a clear set of tracks as far as the twisted spruce tree. I'll be staying out of the way. The two of you are better equipped for this sort of thing, but I have a trick or two if it comes to that. We reached the tree. Ready? Martin seemed a little startled by my sudden barrage of orders, but they both nodded and went quickly to their places. I circled around and settled behind a lumpish upcrop of stone. From my vantage, I could see our muddy footprints mingling with the trail we followed. Past that, I saw Tempe position himself behind the trunk of a thick burl oak. To his right, Martin knocked an arrow, drew the string back to his shoulder, and waited, motionless as a statue. I brought out the rag that held the pinch of ash and a slender piece of iron, holding them ready in my hand. My stomach churned as I thought about what we had been sent here to do, hunt and kill men. True, they were outlaws and murderers, but men nonetheless. I deepened my breathing and tried to relax. The surface of the stone was chill and gritty against my cheek. I strained my ears but couldn't hear anything over the steady drumming of the rain. I fought the urge to lean farther around the edge of the stone and broaden my field of vision. Lightning flashed again and I was counting the seconds until the thunder when I saw a pair of figures slink into view. I felt a sudden heat flare up in my chest. Shoot them, Martin! I said loudly. Daydan whirled around and was facing me with his sword drawn by the time I stepped from my hiding place. Hespa was a little more restrained and stopped with her sword halfway out of its scabbard. I put my knife away and walked to within a half-dozen steps of Daydan. The thunder rolled over us as I caught and held his eyes. His expression was defiant, and I didn't bother to disguise my anger. After a long minute of silence, he looked away, pretending he needed to brush the water from his eyes. Put that away, I nodded to his sword. After a second's hesitation, he did so. Only then did I slide the thin piece of brittle steel I held back into the lining of my cloak. If we were bandits, you would already be dead. I moved my gaze from Daydan to Hespa and back again. Go back to camp. Daydan's expression twisted. I'm sick of you talking to me like I'm a kid. He jabbed a finger toward me. I've been in this world a lot longer than you. I'm not stupid. I bit down several angry responses that couldn't help but make matters worse. I don't have time to argue with you. We're losing the light and you're putting us in danger. Go back to camp. We should take care of this tonight, he said. We've already knackered off two of them. There's probably only five or six left. We'll surprise them in the dark, in the middle of the storm. Wham! Bam! We'll be back in crossing tomorrow for lunch. And what if there's a dozen of them? What if there's twenty? What if they're holed up in a farmhouse? What if they find our camp while no one's there? All our supplies, our food, and my loot could be gone, and a trap waiting for us when we come back. 
all because you couldn't sit still for an hour. His face reddened dangerously, and I turned away. Go back to camp. We'll talk about this tonight. No, damn it! I'm coming, and there's not a damn thing you can do to stop me. I ground my teeth. The worst part was that it was true. I had no way of enforcing my authority. There was nothing I could do short of subduing him with the wax simulacra I'd made. And I knew that to be the worst possible option. Not only would it turn Daydan into an outright enemy, it would undoubtedly turn Hespa and Martin against me too. I looked to Hespa. Why are you here? She darted a quick look at Daydan. He was going to go alone. I thought it was better if we stayed together. And we did think it through. Nobody's going to stumble under the camp. We hid our gear and doused the fire before we left. I gave a tight sigh and tucked a useless pinch of ash into a pocket of my cloak. Of course they did. But I agree, she said. We should try to finish it tonight. I looked to Martin. He gave me an apologetic look. I'd be lying if I said I didn't want this over, he said, and then added quickly, If we can do it smart. He might have said more, but the words caught in his throat, and he began to cough. I looked at Tempe. Tempe looked back. The worst thing was, my gut agreed with Daydan. I wanted this done. I wanted a warm bed and a decent meal. I wanted to get Martin somewhere dry. I wanted to go back to Severin, where I could bask in Alvaron's gratitude. I wanted to find Denna, apologize, and explain why I had left without a word. Only a fool fights the tide. Fine. I looked up at Daydan. If one of your friends dies because of this, it will be your fault. I saw a flicker of uncertainty cross his face, then disappear as he set his jaw. He had said too much for his pride to let him back down. I leveled a long finger at him. But from now on, each of you must do as I say. I'll listen to your suggestions, but I give the orders. I looked around. Martin and Tempe nodded right away, with Hespa following only a second after. Daydan gave a slow nod. I looked at him. Swear it. His eyes narrowed. If you pull another stunt like this when we're attacking tonight, you could get us killed. I don't trust you. I'd rather leave tonight than go into this with someone I can't trust. There was another tense moment, but before it stretched too long, Martin chimed in. Come on, Den. The boy's actually got a fair bit on the ball. He set up this little ambush in about four seconds. His tone turned jocular. Besides, he's not as bad as that bastard Brenway, and the money for that little privy dance wasn't half as good. Daydan cracked a smile. Yeah, I suppose you're right. So long as it's over tonight. I didn't doubt for a second Daydan would still go his own way if it suited him. Swear you'll follow my orders. He shrugged and looked away. Yeah, I swear. Not enough. Swear it on your name. He wiped the rain from his face and looked back at me, confused. What? I faced him and spoke formally. Daydan, will you do as I say tonight, without questioning or hesitation? Daydan, 
Do you swear it on your name? He shifted from foot to foot for a moment, then straightened a little. I swear it on my name. I stepped closer to him and said, Daydan, very softly. At the same time, I fed a small, tiny burst of heat through the wax simulacra in my pocket. Not enough to do anything, but enough that he could feel it, just for a moment. I saw his eyes widen, and I gave him my best Taberlin the Great smile. The smile was full of secrets, wide and confident, and more than slightly smug. It was a smile that told an entire story all by itself. I have your name now, I said softly. I have mastery over you. The look on his face was almost worth a month of his grumbling. I stepped back and let the smile disappear, quick as a flicker of lightning. Easy as taking off a mask, which, of course, would leave him wondering which expression was the real one, the young boy or the half-glimpsed Taberlin. I turned away before I lost the moment. Martin will scout ahead. Tempe and I will follow five minutes behind. That will give him time to spot their lookouts and come back to warn us. You two follow ten minutes behind us. I gave Daydan a pointed look and held up both hands with my fingers splayed. Ten full minutes. It'll be slower this way, but it's safest. Any suggestions? Nobody said anything. All right. Martin, it's your show. Come back if you run into trouble. Count on it, he said, and soon passed from our sight, lost in the blurry green and brown of leaf and bark and rock and rain. The rain continued to pelt down, and the light was beginning to fail as Tempe and I followed the trail, slinking from one hiding place to another. Noise, at least, was not a concern as the thunder made a near constant grumbling overhead. Martin appeared with no warning from the underbrush and motioned us to the marginal shelter of a leaning maple. That camp is right up ahead, he said. There's tracks all over the place, and I saw light from that fire. How many of them? Martin shook his head. I didn't get that close. As soon as I saw different sets of footprints, I came back. I didn't want you following the wrong tracks and getting lost. How far? About a minute's creep. You could see their fire from here, but their camp's on the other side of a rise. I looked at the faces of my two companions in the dimming light. Neither of them seemed nervous. They were suited for this sort of work, trained for it. Martin had his abilities as a tracker and a bowman. Tempe had the legendary skill of the ADEM. I might have felt calm, too, if I had the opportunity to prepare some plan, some trick of sympathy that could tip things in our favor— but Daydan had ruined all hopes of that by insisting we attack tonight. I had nothing, not even a bad link to a distant fire. I stopped that line of thinking before it could turn from anxiety to panic. Let's go then, I said, pleased at the calm timbre of my voice. The three of us crept forward as the last of the light slowly bled from the sky. In the gray, Martin and Tempe were difficult to see, which reassured me. If it was hard for me, it would be near impossible for sentries to spot us from a distance. Soon, I spied firelight reflecting off the undersides of high branches ahead. Crouching, I followed Martin and Tempe up the side of a steep bank made slippery by the rain. 
I thought I saw a stir of movement ahead of us. Then lightning struck. In the near dark it was enough to blind me, but not before the muddy bank was highlighted in dazzling white. A tall man stood on the ridge with a drawn bow. Tempe crouched a few feet up the bank, frozen in the act of carefully placing his feet. Above him was Martin. The old tracker had gone to one knee and drawn his bow as well. The lightning showed me all of this in a great flash, then left me blind. The thunder came an instant after, deafening me as well. I dropped to the ground and rolled, wet leaves and dirt clinging to my face. When I opened my eyes, all I could see were the blue ghosts the lightning had left dancing in front of my eyes. There was no outcry. If the sentry had made one, it had been covered by the thunder. I lay very still until my eyes adjusted. It took me a long, breathless second to find Tempe. He was up the bank some fifteen feet, kneeling over a dark shape. The sentry. I approached him, scrabbling through the wet fern and muddy leaves. Lightning flickered again above us, more gently this time, and I saw the shaft of one of Martin's arrows protruding at an angle from the sentry's chest. The fletching had come loose, and it fluttered in the wind like a tiny, sodden flag. Dead, Tempe said when Martin and I were close enough to hear. I doubted it. Even a deep chest wound won't kill a man as quickly as that. But as I moved closer, I saw the angle of the arrow. It was a heart shot. I looked at Martin with amazement. That's a shot to sing a song about, I said quietly. Luck. He dismissed it and turned his attention to the top of the ridge a few feet above us. Let's hope I have some left, he said as he began to crawl. As I crawled after him, I caught a glimpse of Tempe still kneeling over the fallen man. He leaned close, as if whispering to the body. Then I saw the camp, and all vague curiosity about the Adem's peculiarity was pushed from my mind.